Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It is 9.47 p.m. Pacific Time right now. February 20th, 2021 is the date. The show was originally scheduled for February 19th, and it didn't happen on February 19th simply because I was tired. And when I come into the show tired, I say, you know what? I am not going to do the show tired. In fact, if you go to the four-hour mark, exactly the four-hour mark of the January 17th show, you will find a moment where I fell asleep. Play it for like 30 seconds after the four-hour mark, and you will hear for like two seconds I fall asleep and just mumble nonsense and then just snap right back to talking normally. And I had remembered it happening, but then when I went to look in the archives to edit it out, I couldn't find it, and someone else found it later. Actually, my girlfriend found it later when she was listening to the show a few weeks later and uh, brought my attention to it. I'm like, ah, that's what happened there. Okay. Like I had a memory of like a momentary falling asleep, which doesn't usually happen to me, but I was so tired that night, I actually fell asleep during the show. You can still hear it January 17th right at the four-hour mark. So I don't want that to happen again. So for that reason, I did not do the show last night. I delayed it one day. I said, what's the harm in delaying it one day? So I did. I am more awake today, so that should not happen. What is happening, and in fact already started, is the Poker Fraud Alert free roll. But you have a bit of time to get in there. It started at 9.45 p.m., and it has 25 minutes of late registration, which means till 10.10 p.m., 22 minutes from now, you can get in. It is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which is located near the top of the screen. To learn all about it, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. It is real cash money that we are paying you if you are one of the paid spots. And we can pay you in a lot of different ways. Think of any way people receive money online these days, including Bitcoin, and I will send it to you. So... Check out PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. This week, we are giving away $51. $25 was an anonymous donation in honor of Robert Gray. If you remember, Robert Gray was a 56-year-old poker pro in Vegas who passed away in August from COVID. Very tragic story. So that uh, $25 was in his honor. And then the other $26, 15 of it came from Dive Bar Dave, a regular listener to the show. And Reno, another regular listener to the show, not the city of Reno, but a guy, I've met him before, gave $11. So thank you to the three of you to make 51. 25 for first, 16 for second, 10 for third. 25 for first, 16 for second, 10 for third is how the prize pool breaks down. So get in there. You still have about 20 minutes of course, your account has to be validated, so if you are not a member of the No Fraud Online Poker Room yet, then you will not be able to play tonight because your account won't be validated tonight. But if you have trouble getting validated, you can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, or you can message Belly Buster, Belly Space Buster, and he can get you validated. I'd actually prefer you go to Belly Buster because he's the one who runs the room all the way there in England, and I thank him for that. That's been long appreciated by me. He's been doing it now for nine years for the entirety of time that we have been on. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. If you want to call the Mount Charleston line, that is an old 70s rotary phone which forwards to me wherever I go. It is located on a mountain, Mount Charleston, in a cabin. 
and it sits there. It is a black rotary phone from the 70s. I've posted a picture of it recently on Twitter. You can see it is actually my phone with a phone number written on it, 702-430-1808. It is a separate line into the show, but you cannot text that number. The number you can text is the main number, 775-372-8355. You can text me before, after, or during the show, any time of day or night. You are welcome to text me. It is never too late, never too early. But if you text while we're on the air, there is a decent chance I will read your text on the air unless you ask at the beginning do not read on air. So thank you. Not thank you. Well, I was going to say thank you to those who donated to the free roll, but I already thanked them. I've given enough thanks. But I, I really do appreciate uh, the donations we get every week. Okay, so we have a chat room. We have a chat room where you can chat with other people while the live show is going. I know most of you don't listen live, but for those that do, there is a chat room. It works now on any device. You do need a form account to be validated and in good standing. Every two days or so, I check out the new registrations to Poker Fraud Alert and validate the ones which uh, I feel should go through. Basically, if you're not a spammer and you're not a formerly banned user, you qualify. But I do scrutinize each user because I, I don't want spammers on here. I feel very strongly about not just letting spammers get through. I have a, a kind of a spam filter which blocks out most of it, but a few of them get through. And I don't ever let them get validated. That's why you never see f- spam on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. But uh, sign up for a forum account, and once it is validated, you will be able to get into the chat room. And it now works on any device, as does the radio player. If you go to the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com, then you will see the radio player, which, again, now works on any device to listen to the live show or the streaming reruns. Speaking of the streaming reruns, we have the call-to-listen line, which is a phone number you can call to listen either to the live show when we're live or the streaming reruns when we're not live. That is where it picks a random episode to run and runs it start to finish. Whenever you call in, you join it in progress. And when that episode's done, it picks another random episode over and over and over again till we come back live on the air. That is on the call to listen line. It is also on the radio tab on the player on there. It's also on the TuneIn app. But the call to listen line is a number you just call up and listen. It's not a call-in number to the show. It's a way to call and just listen to the show. It does not require an app, does not require a smartphone, does not require a computer, does not require the Internet, does not require a data plan. It does not even require a good cell phone signal. If you're driving in the mountains or the hills and you have one bar, that is good enough because it never freezes and never buffers. No matter how weak your signal is, it will not freeze. It will not buffer. It'll either play or it will hang up on you. One of those two. It will not buffer. So the phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. The alternate number, which works the same way, 641-741-1095. If you forget any of these numbers I gave out, just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, and they are all listed there for you. Because I know they're not that easy to remember, but they're right there. So, what's the problem? Save it in your phone. Over a million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line, which is free to call if you can call a number in the U.S. for free, except with T-Mobile, where they charge you one cent a minute because it's considered a high-volume number. It's the we're, we're victims of our own success. The T-Mobile decided to start hitting users for one cent a minute, which I don't get. I don't get any piece of it, just because there's a lot of calls to that number, because there's been over a million minutes listened total, not just through T-Mobile, but through uh, all forms of calls to it. So it has been very well used since I put it up about six years ago. 
Actually, not five, about five, not six years ago, but like five in three months. I don't want to overstate that. Okay. So I will give you our agenda, and then we will get going and uh, see if we can find some co-hosts later on, as we often do. Last week's show was almost nine hours. In fact, live, it was longer than nine hours. But uh, once I edited out the crap and uh, the breaks and things like that, it was about eight hours and 50 minutes. So I think maybe our longest show of all time. If it wasn't, it was the second longest show of all time. So very, very long show last week in a week where I was wondering if it was going to be a short show. So we will see who we can pick up tonight. I think there's somebody we can pick up right now. What's happening, Jeff? Hello, Trader Ruski. Welcome to the show. How you doing? I had a nap, some coffee. Oh, I'm nice. to go for at least an hour and a half. Okay, very good. Maybe what we'll do is... Uh, you can stay on for at least the first two segments. Then we have a prank call where you'll have to be quiet. And uh, maybe at that point, if you're too tired, you can just hang up. We, we do have a prank call, which I'll get to in a second for our agenda. So let's, let's talk about what we're doing tonight. And then we'll get going as fast as possible so we get the maximum amount of Trader Ruski before he falls back asleep. Daniel Negranu and Phil Helmuth have agreed to play the next high-profile heads-up match. These seem to be all the rage recently. We first had the Phil Galfond matches. Then we had the Polk and Negranu match, which is now completed. And then we had the scheduled, but not yet uh, begun, Landon Teese versus uh, Bill Perkins match, which then spawned a side controversy involving Terrence Chan. And then now... We have the Negranu and Helmuth match, which in a way spawned from the Polk and Negranu match that preceded it. So we'll talk about that as our lead topic. Our second topic will have nothing to do with poker or gambling. It's a general topic, but it's one I think a lot of you will find interesting. It involves a poker fraud alert listener who wrote in to me about a $12,000 Super Bowl ticket disaster where he actually spent $12,000 on two tickets for the Super Bowl through StubHub and got screwed, and then StubHub did not want to honor it. And he asked me what I would do. So I will tell you about that situation. I won't identify who it is because this person asked me not to identify him, and I'm going to respect that, of course, but I will tell you his story which I did get permission from him to tell on radio, because as soon as he messaged me, I said, this is a great story for radio, provided he's okay with me telling it. So he said, sure, okay, just don't use my name. I said, okay. So I'm going to tell the story. Then we will have a prank call. You know how I get these calls? I'm sure you get these calls, too, from fake tech support traders. You get a lot of fake tech support calls of uh, Dell, fake Dell, oh, fake yeah. HP, fake Microsoft. Yeah, we, we all get them. So the problem is, every time I get one of them, I think, oh, perfect, I can record it for radio, but uh, I don't have anything set up to do so. And then I say, okay, we'll call on radio, we'll call live on radio, but then they're never around. Well, I finally found one, which is around at this time. We're going to call them up. Then we're going to talk about the renaming of the Las Vegas McCarran Airport that has happened. It is going to be called Senator Harry Reid Airport. So it has been renamed 
after Harry Reid. Actually, I don't think they're going to say Senator. I think it's going to be Harry Reid Airport. Anyway, uh, we will discuss that, and we'll discuss whether Harry Reid is deserving of such an honor. Then I'm going to give you an update on the Lee Bradbury situation. If you remember, Lee Bradbury is the one who posts on the forum as A. Hoosier A. He is the one who was hit with the frivolous restraining order by Christopher Mitchell, the Baccarat scammer, and that uh, in that order, Christopher was accusing him of being someone else named Kevin Davis, who is one of Christopher's uh, enemies on YouTube. Now, Kevin Davis and A. Hoosier A., Lee Bradbury, are two completely different people. We had them on together on the show, and you heard them talking together. Obviously two different guys, but Christopher Mitchell is such a delusional moron that he was sure he found the elusive Kevin Davis and thought it was Lee and actually hit him with a frivolous restraining order, which actually won which was a huge miscarriage of justice, and then Lee has since had to hire an attorney to appeal it. So he's been going through that process. He had another court hearing very recently on this matter, and I'm going to give you an update as to what happened there. If you remember uh, the last you heard of it, we had Lee on the show in a two-hour segment where he explained the entire frustrating situation, which was uh, a very interesting story. If you didn't ever hear that, uh, you can find this uh, a few months ago. We did that. But uh, we're going to have an update tonight. You've probably heard of Puggy Pearson, a legendary poker pro from the 1970s and uh, that general era. But you may not know that Puggy also had a younger brother who was also a poker pro. Puggy died in 2006, but his younger brother, J.C., J.C. Pearson, has been playing and grinding in Las Vegas for well over 40 years. So we'll talk about uh, J.C. Pearson, and the reason we're going to talk about him is that he passed away in January at the age of 87. So we will talk about uh, Puggy's brother, who is much less known, except to grinders in Vegas, many of whom know him. Then we will have a little flashback. I was at the Win in 2012, Another poker pro sat down at my table and told me that he had a 1,000 Bitcoin and asked me what to do. And I'll tell you what I told him and what the results were. Four Las Vegas hotels are going to be resuming normal operations after a few months ago they chose to shut down midweek, where they completely closed. That is being reversed in four different Las Vegas properties in what might be a sign of upcoming good news for the city of Las Vegas, which has been struggling badly over the past year due to COVID-19. Speaking of bad news for Vegas, Cosmopolitan had a potential nightmarish situation, a fire that broke out on the 51st floor. How do you like to be on the 51st floor of a hotel when a fire breaks out? Well, that's what happened. I will tell you what the result of that fire was. Obviously, you know it was not... uh, like another MGM Grand 1980 fire where the whole building goes down because uh, this was something you didn't see in the news probably. But it was a fire, and it did cause some injuries. So I will tell you what happened there and what the results of it were. And I'll tell you about my experience in the Cosmo, and I'll tell you what I kind of pictured. Like, had I been there, what that would have been like. A man hit a $1.1 million jackpot at a table game at the Tropicana Atlantic City. But the bigger story, just the jackpot itself I wouldn't report here, that happens all the time. The bigger report here is that the guy 
tipped $50,000 on that $1.1 million win. So we'll talk about that tip especially, and we'll talk about the difficult situation of tipping jackpots. It's actually a lot tougher than you think. The Tennessee Lottery, which manages sports betting in the state of Tennessee, has voided numerous Super Bowl bets, and they closed 74 accounts in relation to those bets, claiming that they were illegal. So let's talk about what happened there in Tennessee in the legalized sports betting market. Finally, we will have some uh, coronavirus news, and if we have time, I will do the editorial that I meant to do last week about uh, what I consider to be a real Republican and what I consider not to be a real Republican. And you might be surprised. I, I, I have a feeling that what you're picturing I'm going to say is actually not what I'm going to say, unless you know me really, really well, and maybe you know what I'm going to say. But maybe I won't say anything at all because I'll be too tired or worn out by the time we get to that segment. So we will get going so I don't get tired and worn out, and so Trader Ruski maximizes his time with us. Let's go on and talk about the Negranu and Helmuth match, which is in the process of being set up. So, as you know, Polk and Negranu completed their match with Negranu losing by $1.2 million. And uh, he was the underdog, so people weren't shocked that he lost, and Polk is known as one of the best heads-up-no-limit players of all time. So, of course, uh, people were expecting him to win, and he did. But, of course, there were still critiques of Daniel's play. People did wonder if Negreanu could have played better, even given the fact that he was an underdog. Could he have done better than he did? Did he make some egregious mistakes? Did he do anything that was disappointing? Well, Phil Helmuth, who is not a heads-up-no-limit specialist by any means. Phil Helmuth is a tournament player. He's a really good no-limit hold'em tournament player, which is a different skill set than playing heads-up-no-limit. Now, I will say that Helmuth impressed some people when he played a heads-up match uh, sort of recently against uh, Antonio Esfandiari, which was televised, and Helmuth won. And people thought Helmuth played a lot better than they expected him to play. People expected Antonio was going to win. Helmuth was going to look like a fish. He did not. Helmuth actually looked very good. And people were pretty impressed with what he did there. So Helmuth may be better than you think, but still, he's not a Doug Polk. He's not a guy who's just grinded tons of heads up, no limit in his poker career. This isn't really what he's done. Helmuth was mainly a tournament guy. He's had... Tremendous success at the World Series, of course, as we've seen. And when it comes to his feel for no-limit hold'em tournaments, especially big field tournaments, it's hard to picture who is better than him. Maybe at some of these, like, nosebleed ones, there are better players, but I'm talking about, like, a big field no-limit hold'em tournament. Helmuth is really good at these. He has a great feel for uh, when to put the money in and when to not. You can't take that away from him, no matter what you want to say about Phil Helmuth. But does he have the ability to beat Daniel Negreanu, who's an excellent all-around poker player, and who improved over his time playing Doug Polk? In fact, I think he probably learned from playing Doug Polk, and is now a better heads-up, no-limit player than he was 
going into that match, could Helmuth beat Negreanu? So this is where it all started. There was an interview in early February, I think like February 9th, February 10th, where Helmuth complained about Negreanu's play. And listen to this. It's a two-minute clip. I'm going to play you what he had to say about how Negreanu played in that match. And keep in mind that last I heard, Helmuth and Negreanu were friends. So this was kind of surprising to hear from him. Phil, did you have any action or did you bet on the feud between Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu? And overall, what are your thoughts on that matchup? Yeah, I I was disappointed in the way that, that Daniel played. Um, but I know his coaches, his coaches are brilliant. And so he has brilliant coaches. And I and so everything that I have talked about with his coaches, you see, I talked to these guys for a couple of hours. I love the way they thought about No Limit. Then I sent them to my agent. And then they ended up with Daniel, not with me, because I was like, what are they going to teach me? We, we're aligned on our philosophies. So I think they're great coaches and they know what they're doing. I think that their heads-up theories about, you know, three-betting every time you have jack three of clubs and jack five of clubs and a lot of these hands, you know, that you know that seemed, seemed like that's a lot of money to get in some weird spots. So I was betting on Daniel's talent, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, if Daniel's going to try to play Doug playing pure GTO or next-level GTO, then to me, Doug has a lot of fire. And he's, you know, and so Daniel's trying to fight fire with fire. I thought Daniel should have fought fire with Daniel. And so I told Doug I'd play him uh, next. And, uh, you know, uh, and I'm ready. So I've won 29 of my last 30 30 heads-up matches. I won the last heads-up tournament I played in. And so I think I've only lost once to Kerry Katz, our boss, at a World (laughs) Series tournament. And I remember I had aces and he had sixes. But, I mean, to be fair, uh, most of the money went in after it came King 6-deuce. I overplayed the aces. You heard there that he was criticizing Daniel's play by basically saying that uh, Negreanu tried too hard to be like Doug. He was trying to be Doug and failed at it. He said he should have just been Daniel. He should have just uh, listened to those coaches. And then just played as himself. He shouldn't have tried to play Doug's style because Doug is going to be better at his own style. That That's what he's trying to say there. Interestingly, this is what Phil Galfon credited to his turnaround when he was losing his ass to Vinny Vitti in that first match and then completely came back and ended up slightly winning that match, which nobody expected. They were pretty deep in and Vinny Vitti was killing him and it looked like Galfon had no chance and seemed to have had the very top levels of the game pass him by only to come back and win and then win every subsequent match. And what Galfon said he did was he threw away everything he learned recently. He studied the recent form of the game. He studied the way that the currently successful pros were winning in Heads Up PLO. And then he realized that's just not me. That's just not my style. That's not what got me to where I am. I'm going to go back to what made me successful. I'm going to play my own style that I know works, and I'm going to stop trying to emulate the style that these guys are using that have wor- has worked for them. Because if I try to be them, they're going to be better at being themselves than I can at being them. 
But my own style, which I have confidence in, I'm the best at that. So he used that approach after basically emulating their style was failing, and it worked great for him. And so far, he hasn't lost a match. So definitely, Galfon made the correct move there. So Helmuth is basically saying, I don't know if Helmuth's even aware of that's what happened with Galfon, but Helmuth's basically saying the same thing here. He's saying that Daniel should have been Daniel. He shouldn't have tried to be a, a poor man's Doug. So that was on February 9th, February 10th, and Negranu was not happy about this. Negranu thought that Phil was being unfair and that Phil was uh, criticizing him. Yeah, really, not much merit. That was what Daniel thought. I, I don't know what to think. If you ask me who I think is right there, I don't know. Uh, I I didn't watch the match. I only was watching the results as it was happening, so I can't really comment on that. But here's what Daniel said back. Daniel said, Yo, Phil Helmuth, you said you watched zero of the match but seemed to have strong opinions on the play. That's interesting. I didn't hear that he said he watched zero of the match. But, <laughs> yeah, you can't really have strong opinions of the form of play if you didn't watch any of it. I'll play you a heads-up match live, online, at any stakes you feel comfortable with for as many hands as you would like. Want to play, big guy? So Phil agreed, and now they are going to set up a match. In fact, you can already bet on the match. Now, this is not set in stone. Negranu even said to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, that he doubts that the match will really happen, though he may have been saying this just to goad Phil into doing it. He said, I think he's chicken, to be honest with you. I think he's scared. I think he knows he's going to look bad. In case you're wondering, they do have betting odds established, and on Bet Online, the odds last I looked were minus 250 on Daniel. So Daniel, this time, is the favorite despite the fact that he lost $1.2 million to Polk, which is more than nine big blinds per 100. And Helmuth beat Esfandiari three matches to nothing. The last time he played a heads-up no-limit, he was claiming that he's never lost a heads-up no-limit match except to carry Cats, where he took a bad beat. And uh, he didn't take a bad He, he, he uh, overplayed a, a, a flop where Carrie flopped a set, is, I guess, what happened. But whatever. I still think Daniel is the favorite if this does happen. But don't count out Phil Helmuth. He seems to be better at uh, heads up, no limit than you think. It is possible that, that Helmuth won't actually do this, but that he just agreed to it at the moment. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to really happen. I'm sure there will be a lot of attention on it if it does happen. The format of it is not even known yet. Presumably, they will be playing No Limit Hold'em, and presumably, this will be uh, something like a bunch of hands in a cash game format. So we will see if they do a similar format to what they did with Polk and Negranu, which was a cash game format with a set number of hands, or if it'll be like a heads-up sit-and-go format, which is actually what uh, Phil Helmuth did with Antonio. So that hasn't been hammered out yet. In fact, as far as I know, they haven't discussed yet which one each of them would prefer. Now, the question becomes, is this real or is this for publicity? With Polk and Negranu, at least you knew the two hated each other. 
and that, yeah, probably each of them realized they get some publicity out of it. The two of them really did seem to want to play each other as part of a, grug- a grudge match, like they were saying. The, they weren't acting for 10 years pretending like they didn't like each other. The hate between the two was very legitimate. Now, it seems like after this match, they have uh, come to terms. I don't think there's going to be any further bashing of uh, Negranu by Polk. It seems like they, after doing this together, now they're okay with one another. I don't think that Negranu loves him, but uh, I think that the trolling is over, and I think the bad blood, at least outwardly, is over between those two. But as far as I know, Negranu and Helmuth are friends. In fact, uh, the last time I played with Helmuth, which was at an Omaha event at the World Series, and I happened to end up right next to Helmuth towards the end of day one. And Negranu was over at the next table, and he was recording one of his vlogs, which they were letting him do. You know, if I tried to pull out a camera and do the same thing, they would tell me I can't, and if I do it again, I'm going to get a penalty. Of course, Negranu can do it because he gets special privileges there, like all the big-name pros do. The big-name pros of the World Series, they have all kinds of things they can do that are outside the rules that they're allowed to get away with. And it's kind of BS, but that's the way it is. They want to kiss ass to the big-name pros because they want them participating there. So they want to keep them happy. So the World Series cares if Negranu is there and playing a lot of events. They don't give a crap either way if I play. I know that's the way it is. Anyway, Negranu was recording one of his vlogs there, and he was filming Negranu berating, not, he was filming Helmuth degrading people. And <laughs> when he was uh, filming Helmuth, I actually made a comment on camera about Helmuth, and he filmed me talking a little bit of trash about uh, Helmuth right there. But it seemed to be in a friendly way. Like, he wasn't filming like, ah, Phil, I'm going to humiliate you. It's kind of like, oh, look, Phil's popping off again. That's what he's doing. So those two have been friends. And I am wondering what is going to happen. If you remember when Phil was very, not Phil, when when, uh, Daniel was very outspoken about UB, and he was bashing UB for the scandals and everything else. And he was right. You know, me and him were on the same side there. One person that he didn't bash was Helmuth. He went after Annie Duke all the time because Annie Duke was awful to him from the very beginning. When Daniel was a nobody in poker and sat with Annie, Annie was very nasty to him. So, so Daniel was really no fan of Annie from the very beginning. And that remains true to this day. So Daniel was very happy to bash Andy all the time in relation to UB. But he kept quiet about Phil because Phil was his friend. So this does make me a bit suspicious that maybe this is orchestrated. I'm not saying it is, but I'm also not saying it isn't. Whereas the Helmuth, uh, or the Negranu Polk one, I don't think was orchestrated. And when I say not orchestrated, I mean that I don't think it was something like, hey, you know what, let's pretend like we're, really hating each other and setting up a grudge match because we hate each other so much. That'll be really fun. Like, I think it developed organically, that heads-up match. I think that uh, Polk challenged him and Daniel accepted. I don't think this was premeditated. But this could be. This one with Helmuth and with Negranu could easily be premeditated. So we will have to see what ends up happening with that and if there's any signs that this is something that the two of them 
cooked up for attention. The problem, if that's the case, is that they could be playing for fake money. And again, I'm not trying to be a conspiratard here. I'm not trying to be someone who's finding a conspiracy in everything that occurs in poker. I'm just saying I know these two are friends, and for them to set up kind of their own heads-up grudge match just because Phil put out some mild criticism of Daniel's play. And keep in mind, it wasn't even that bad what he was saying. It's not like he's saying, hey, Daniel's a fish. He had no chance. He was saying Daniel did have a chance. Daniel, I was betting on because he's a great player, and he just decided not to play his own game. Like, that's in a way complimentary. That's saying, Daniel, you might have beaten him. If you were yourself, instead of trying to be, uh, trying to emulate somebody else's style. So that's kind of a critique of decision making rather than a critique of skill. When you insult somebody's skill, it's much worse than when you insult a particular strategy. Because everybody can make a mistake, everybody can make a bad choice, but if you just outright lack the skill, then that's something you can't make up for very easily. So it looked like he was just insulting Negranu's choice in the way he approached the match rather than his abilities. So for Daniel to act so outraged about this seems a little bit suspicious to me. And if both people agree to either play for nothing and just refund the losses to one another or play for much less, so maybe they play for 10%, 20% of what they say they're playing for, but yet the public thinks it's for much more, Uh, there it starts to be less interesting and even in some ways dishonest. Of course, I have no proof of this. And in fact, I I don't even have any evidence of this. So I don't want you to say, oh, Druff is saying this whole thing's staged. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a possibility. Whereas the Polk Negranu one, I thought was not very likely. So we will have to see. We will probably never know. But when two friends... Say, I'm going to play you heads up for saying this to me. Okay, fine, let's do it. Like, that already makes me wonder a bit what's really going to happen. I don't think they're going to throw hands. I think they're going to really play. But, you know, like I could say to Trader Ruski, okay, let's play each other uh, heads up, million dollar freeze out. And that wouldn't get a lot of interest in the general poker world, but I think on Poker Fraud Alert, people would find it very interesting of me playing Trade Ruski for a million bucks. But if we secretly had an agreement to return whatever money each of the other loses or return 95% of it, that would actually be uh, much less interesting if you knew the truth about it. So that, that's why I'm saying when it's two people you think normally wouldn't do this, you always have to wonder why is it happening. So we'll see. It is possible these are just two guys with a lot of money that want to kind of have a friendly, yet not so friendly, heads-up match after one gave a criticism of the other. So who knows? Trader Risky, do you have any opinion? Do you think there's any chance that uh, this is staged in some way? I I doubt it. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I think back then when people, you know, when, when, um, Helmuth went to UB, and then Howard Leonard and them went to Full Tilt. I mean, he stayed away from all that, and they thought they were all shady. You know, I guess I'm surprised he didn't speak out about Helmuth as much, but there wasn't really any... I don't know. I guess he should have done that. Well, I know they're friends, though. That's what I'm trying to say. I've known for a long time these two are friends, and that's the reason he didn't speak out about Helmuth. Now, 
he was extra motivated to speak out about Annie because he hated her from the very start. And when, when you come in to something like poker as a nobody and an established name treats you like crap and then you rise up to become a bigger name than they are, then, of course, you're going to hold a grudge about it and remember remember how that person welcomed you into the game. So I'm not even blaming Daniel for having those feelings about Annie, and you guys have heard my feelings about Annie, which aren't too different. So I'm not even criticizing right. Danny for this, but uh, he was friends think, with, with think, uh, Phil. I think for Helmuth, I think he just thinks he's just a whore. He just wants the money, and he just you know likes the publicity and doesn't really get into the details and I don't know. Probably just doesn't get on him too much because he assumed he didn't know much. But well, Daniel kind of became that recently to too. That's that's the biggest criticism of Daniel in recent years is that he has become a corporate shill for these poker sites, which he has. And uh, now I will say he's not representing a site like UB, which had a huge cheating scandal. But Daniel has taken some fair criticism for really becoming a complete corporate shill for whichever sites that he's uh, promoting. First it was Poker Stars in the Amaya days, and then it became uh, GG Poker presently. So I, I do understand those criticisms that people have thrown at Daniel. I think some of them are too harsh. I think Polk was too harsh in the way he criticized him. So I'm not saying that I agree fully with them, but I, I see where these people are coming from, and I think they're kind of semi-valid in what they're saying. So, right, but they're not even in the same, you know, atmosphere of like being involved with a UB or a, or a, a CBOC or something like that, you know. No, I agree. It's not the it's same thing strange. at all. Like, I'm not saying Daniel shouldn't be representing these sites. Whereas I felt Phil should have quit. He should have sold off whatever he had in UB and quit once he became aware of the scandal, and he did not until uh, almost before it went down anyway. And Daniel just signed on to sites which are flawed, but are sites that if they offered me to sign on, I would sign on to. So I'm not criticizing him for signing on to them. Uh, I do have some criticism for Daniel and his uh, promotion of certain things the sites have done or excuse making for them when they've been wrong. But uh, again, I, I agree with you that they are not the same thing and not equivalent. I was just saying that I don't think Daniel would see Helmuth as a shill since he's also become a shill. He just hasn't shilled for a site that's as bad as UB. But I just think my point is when you know when Daniel gets involved, I feel like he gets more involved to really know what's going on in the company as to where Phil, I guess, doesn't, and he probably feels he doesn't. Okay, that part is true. I will say I will say that it is it, one criticism that Helmuth got is that he he did not really get involved in the day to day operations of UB, and that and that was one of the reasons it was believable he didn't know about the cheating as it was happening because he was so detached from the whole thing. They would just uh, put his face and name everywhere, and he just shrugged his shoulders and didn't really care what was going on there. And then even during the scandal, he only paid minimal attention. And I'm not defending that. I, I feel that he didn't handle that well, Phil, and I felt that he enabled UB to continue operating because he continued to be the face of the site until he finally left there at the end of 2010. So he had over two years where he was still promoting them, and I got on his case for that. So, like, I, I agree that was not good, and I agree that Daniel does take more of a hands-on approach in the operations of the site and in knowing what's happening there. And you can see that both in how he handled Poker Stars and how he handled uh, GG. And, and that's better that he does that. It's just 
something that he also does is when the site is acting in an unethical fashion, not as, anywhere as bad as like UB with the actual cheating, but when the site acts in an unethical fashion, he's quick to defend them in kind of shill mode rather than just staying out of it. Because if you're representing a company, if you're the face of a company or if you're promoting them in some way and they make a decision you don't like or don't approve of, but it's not like outright scamming or cheating. It's just a decision you think is is not totally ethical. Uh, as I've said before, it's not fair to expect that person to just walk away over that. I mean, you can say, oh, yeah, the, if they see anything slightly that uh, isn't ethical with the company, they should leave. Yeah, okay, you try leaving when you're getting like a million bucks a year. It's, it's a much easier thing to say from the sidelines. So those that were saying Daniel should have quit over the supernova elite scandal, I disagree. I, I didn't think he should quit. I, I don't think many people in poker would have. That would have been uh, – to give that much up over something like that, um, you have to have principles that are so strong that and, – and I'm not even saying in a good way, like to where – like uncompromisingly strong that where if there's anything that bothers you about the way a company's run, you're going to give up a million bucks a year. Like I – very few people would do that. But at the same time, there's a difference between walking away and just saying, look, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to get involved in it. If you guys want to make this decision, fine, but I'm not going to defend it on social media, just letting you guys know. And that's that's the way I would have handled it. That's the way I would have handled a number of these things, which Daniel's taken heat for, is I would have said to them, okay, guys, I disagree. It's your company, though. You can do what you want. Here's my advice. If you don't want to take it, that's fine. But I'm also not going to go on social media and you know, bring down my own name by defending this decision I disagree with and everyone's going to hate. And then if they want to fire me or not rehire me, then I would accept that. So I wouldn't walk away, but I also wouldn't defend it. And that, that would have been the approach I would have taken. And Daniel did not take that approach. That's where he took criticism. But at the same time, there are some people with some very unrealistic expectations of him. And I think they were holding him to standards that they themselves would not have lived up to if they were in Daniel's shoes. And I always try to think of that for myself when I criticize other people. I try to think, if I were in that situation, what would I realistically do? Not what do I wish I would do or what do I like people to think I would do, but what would I actually do? And if I feel I would actually do something different and I would be making a better or more ethical choice, then I will criticize the person. If I think, no, I probably would have done the same thing, then then I don't criticize them because I understand it. Let's... uh Move on here. That's about all I have to say for, about this at the moment because we don't have the details yet. Just kind of a theoretical thing that has been agreed to at the moment but hasn't actually been set up formally. Okay, so now we're going to move on to talk about a situation with StubHub. And it involved a listener of Poker Fraud Alert. I will guarantee you this did not happen to me. I'm not using a, quote, Poker Fraud Alert listener as a stand-in for myself. And this did not happen to anybody who is close friends with me or related to me. This is truly a Poker Fraud Alert listener. I will give you one hint, and it's someone I've met before, but I won't tell you how well I know them. I won't tell you how many times I've met them, but it's someone I've met before and that is a radio listener and that I got to know through them being a radio listener. So they messaged me about something that happened to them involving the 2021 Super Bowl, which they attended. 
I asked for their permission to tell the story. They wanted my advice. They actually wrote to me asking for, for my advice in the situation. And then as soon as I read it, I thought, oh, okay, I definitely have to talk about this on radio, but I'm not going to be a jerk and use this guy's story if he doesn't want it out there. Like, yeah, I could put it out there and not use his name, but I still didn't think this was fair. If the guy messaged me this whole story, I didn't want to put it on radio for the listener's entertainment unless he was okay with it. So he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Just don't say who I am. Which, by the way, I don't quite understand because he didn't do anything wrong here. So I, I, I would put my name on this, but he's choosing not to, and that's totally fine. I respect that. And I will tell you in advance, this guy was in the right but I'll tell you the whole story, and then I'll ask you, Trader Ruski, after I tell the story, what you think you would do and what you think you would be entitled to here. So this is what he said. Hi, Todd. I'm looking to get your opinion on a situation I have going on right now. I'll try to summarize it as quickly as possible. My wife and I bought a pair of Super Bowl tickets from StubHub at the very last minute, like we were standing right outside the stadium when we bought them on my phone, and we still ended up missing 10 minutes of the game with the time it took to get in and go through security. By the way, that's pretty much how I have been attending the Dodgers World Series <laughs> when they've been making it in the past years, where I would actually buy the tickets as I was driving. I would have like StubHub on my lap, and I'd keep refreshing. I don't know why the reason this guy was doing it that way, but the reason I was doing it is because the best deal was to be had that way when people were panic selling as it was getting too close to game time. Anyway, he goes on to write, the NFL has rules that given the COVID situation, if you have a pod of tickets, whether it's two, three, four, six, or eight, you are not allowed to split the tickets and sell or transfer them to different groups. All people occupying a pod must be from the same household and all pods are distanced by at least six feet and one row from each other. StubHub has a similar rule that sellers are not allowed to split the seats. So we're under the assumption that all rules would be followed when we were buying a pod of two. Now, let me stop here and explain that again. This is all COVID-related. Like in 2020, when the Super Bowl didn't have these rules yet because COVID was just at the very, very beginning, uh, this did not apply. 2019, this did not apply. I don't know about 22, but in 21, the NFL has rules regarding how people can sit together. So if you're from the same household, you can sit together. If you are not, then you can't. So what they did is they defined these ticket groups in what they call pods, where whatever group of tickets you buy is, then you and everybody else in your household can sit together. But then other households, people that are separate from you and your group, have to be distanced from you. So... Number one, they can't sit in the row directly behind you or in front of you because that's too close. And number two, they cannot sit right next to you. There has to be six feet of distance from whatever the last seats are in this pod group and the next pod over. And also there cannot be anyone directly in front or behind in the other rows. So those are the NFL rules. He said StubHub had similar rules. So let's go on. He wrote, it turns out this was not the case. About 10 to 15 minutes after we sat down, other people sat in the seats immediately next to my wife. I asked if those seats were theirs, and they showed me their tickets on their phone that proved they had those seats. In fact, there were six seats in the pod, and they had been split into groups of one, two, and three. 
I suspect they were split that way because getting close to game time, any group of four or larger was selling for substantially less per ticket than comparable seats in pairs. So apparently at the Super Bowl, the best per ticket price was going for groups of one, two, or three, that once it was groups of four or more, that uh, they were getting a lot less per ticket. And presumably that's because the Super Bowl ticket prices are so high that in order to bring a family of four to the game, it costs a ton of money. So people who would normally bring their entire family may just go by themselves or, or, or with their wife or with their best friend. You're typically not going to take a very big group unless everybody's paying their own way. And, of course, then you have to find a group of people who are willing to pay this type of money for each ticket. So it's not that easy to put a, a group of people together even in your own family, to go to the Super Bowl because of the expense, unless you already have these tickets. But if, you, if you're going to buy them on somewhere like StubHub or anywhere else on, on, the, on the market, it's going to be very expensive. So it was basically found that the big demand was for the uh, one, two, or three seats, at least uh, close to game time. So he said, at that point, our only choices were either to stay in the seats or leave the game. All other seats were zip-tied so they couldn't be used or occupied. All open-air, standing-room areas where people could typically gather to watch the game were blocked off due to the COVID restrictions. StubHub customer service had just closed. Remember, this is Sunday. So they weren't going to be able to help. So for the entire game, we sat directly next to a group, including a teenager sitting right next to my wife. And he mentions the teenager because who is likely to be pretty reckless regarding COVID? Teenagers. (laughs) I've seen it personally. I remember when I took uh, Benjamin's mom and Benjamin on a hike in the hills in an area I didn't think was going to be that popular, but I hadn't really been to very much because it wasn't all that close to here. And it turned out it actually was pretty popular and more crowded than I expected. And this is during COVID time. And you would not believe the way the teenagers were acting. Maybe you would. I mean, they they were crowding into cars. They were not social distancing. They were acting like everything was normal. If you watched the way these teens were acting, you'd have no idea that COVID was going on. They were making no attempt to distance from one another, or even from us. We had to watch out and keep away from them. It's a little bit stressful. So teenagers don't really care, because teenagers know that they are highly unlikely to get any bad effects of COVID. For just about every teenager in the country, the worst they're going to get is mildly sick and then they'll feel better, and it'll be fine. It's not like the rest of us who are older. So he, of course, was very worried that the teenager was not showing any degree of caution, and that the teenager in that whole group was the most likely one to have COVID, and that's who's directly next to his wife in the seat right next to her, definitely nowhere near six feet of distance. So that's a very tough situation. He paid $6,000 per ticket, and... His wife is sitting next to a teenager, and this is in violation of NFL rules, but he's saying there's no available seats, so really his choice is to either just put up with it or go home. And if he goes home, he's not even sure that he's going to get a refund because he can't reach StubHub. So it's not like he says, well, I'm just going to deal with it because I really want to see this Super Bowl. It was that he couldn't even reach StubHub, so it would be possible he'd just leave and go home, miss the game that he paid $12,000 for, and StubHub would refuse the refund if he were to ask for it. So 
he didn't know what to do. He went on to write, pre-COVID, it would have sounded crazy to complain about having to sit next to people. But this kept bugging me throughout the game in the evening. The seller knowingly made the decision to break the rules in order to get a sale from us, and StubHub helped facilitate the sale through their marketplace. This wasn't like simply forgetting to list that a seat had a partially obstructive view. This was knowingly exposing us to additional COVID risk that we did not agree to. Had we known we would be seated next to people, we would have bought another pair of tickets. I know that I'm entitled to some sort of refund or compensation. This is where I need your help. The total price of the tickets was $9,200 plus $3,000 worth of fees, which is pretty crazy. It shows you how much StubHub makes here. For a total of about 12200 Of course, I called up StubHub on Monday, that is the day after the Super Bowl, and complained. Within a few hours, they made an offer to me of 20% of the total price, or just over 2440 Now, before you were all that exciting, oh, wow, that guy's getting over 2000 bucks back. Listen to what he says next. I politely declined, stating that the amount was less than the total fees they collected from me, which is true. Think about it. They're actually still making money on this transaction, even if they give him back 2440 I told them I wasn't comfortable with them and the seller profiting from what was a sale done in bad faith. They said they would escalate it and get back to me. Now, before we go on here, Trader Ruski, what do you think he deserves back here? He did watch the entire game, but he could not reach Subhub at any point during the game. So he had to make a decision completely on his own. Uh, so he had paid 12200 for these two tickets total. And his wife is stuck next to this teenager, directly next to him in a, in a close stadium seat. If you had this situation there, what, first of all, what would you have done? Would you have stayed or gone home or something something else? Well, I would have stayed. And I mean, you know, I mean, did he try to find like a, a person there, an usher or something where they could make other arrangements or clear out some of those seats to show that... Yeah, he didn't say that. I wondered that, too. He didn't say that. Uh, That's actually what I would have done. What I would have done is gone to an usher and said, hey, can you find me equivalent seats here that are open? But I have a feeling because it's a Super Bowl. This isn't like a Tuesday Dodgers game where half the stadium's empty. Uh, This is a Super Bowl where they already are operating at much less than full capacity because of COVID. So I have a feeling every single seat was probably full. But maybe they could have found something well, else in the stadium. Right. I mean, I would think they were the best spot. But look, regardless, I would be going after StubHub for at least half. Yeah, maybe even the whole thing. I mean, I think you can make us think about this. And I actually realized, since you were talking, I have a friend at StubHub. You know, she's like a senior kind of... UX person there, but I can certainly, if you need help, you know, talk to her and see if I can get. Uh, well, that's good. I'm going to remember that when I have problems with them. But okay, uh, that's that's okay, very generous of you to offer. I still want to have a relationship with this person. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go on here and, and hear the rest of the story. So he said today, which was sometime last week. Today, I got a call from a member of the StubHub quote executive response team. She identified herself as someone who, quote, works for the president of StubHub. She gave her contact info, and I believe she is legitimately a high-up person there. Maybe it's the same person you know. Her, her first offer was to give me all of the fees I paid back, 
And after further negotiating, she went up to a total of 30% back, so the offer was just over $3,600. I told her I didn't want to have to file a dispute with a credit card company, but if it came to it, I would. So he still wasn't happy with the uh, 30%, obviously, which I, I don't blame him. Uh, my offer to her was that she could come take out the face value of the tickets and give me back the difference. Her response was basically, one, we're not giving you that much back. Two, I am the person responsible for handing, cre- handling credit card disputes, and StubHub almost never loses a dispute. And three, if the credit card company does take your side and you win the dispute, then we are shutting down your StubHub account permanently. That is pretty ballsy for them to say that we're going to ban you if you dispute this. We're going to screw you here if you dare try to dispute this and you win. Instead of just accepting it and moving on, we're going to punish you by banning you from StubHub forever. And they put that in writing. She told him this on the phone. Okay. So say, I mean, I don't know. That was in writing. They could have big problems. Yeah, so he said, I politely dis- declined the additional 1200 He said, if we were disputing down the road, I wouldn't want it on record that I accepted their, quote, final offer, and told her that I appreciated her calling me back. She told me she appreciated me not yelling. <laughs> then she gave me her contact info and said something weird. She said, if you end up testing positive, could you send that to me and it will try to help? Well, to me, that's not weird. To me, that would influence their decision, because I know what she was thinking at the moment. She was thinking, this fucking guy, yeah, he got a seat that he technically shouldn't have been sold, but he stayed there, he watched the whole game, and if neither he nor his wife actually got COVID, which this was already several days later, so it was already uh, fairly likely he didn't get COVID at that point, because you usually know within two or three days. Sometimes it'll be five to seven days, but uh, it was already getting close to that. So if you've gone that long and there's no COVID symptoms, you either don't have COVID or are going to be asymptomatic and it's not going to matter. So uh, she's like, hey, if, if you end up getting COVID and test positive, can you send me that proof? Because basically at that point, then he has actually suffered d- real damages. And then then they would be open to something even more than this. You know, Then they could even possibly be liable for more than just the ticket value. So at that point... She's basically saying, oh, yeah, we'll help at that point. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll do something for you then if it turned out you got COVID. But she's thinking on the flip side, if it turned out he didn't catch COVID and his wife didn't catch COVID, then no harm, no foul, which I think is bullshit. She didn't say those words, but that's what she meant. I think is bullshit because he didn't have peace of mind during the game that he paid $12,000 to attend. He had to sit there worrying about him and his wife, especially his wife, catching COVID from this teenager that was not supposed to be next to them by NFL rules. It's not like uh, he's coming to his own conclusions or it's not like he's just uh, deciding for himself uh, how many feet he feels were between him and and, uh, this teenager. It was NFL rules that were in place prior to the game regarding seating. In fact... If he were to go up to an usher and say, hey, we're in seats we shouldn't be here, we're too close to somebody, what the usher very likely would have done is taken them out of these seats and either moved them somewhere else or said, sorry, you have to go home. But the NFL had very strict rules that different households simply could not sit together under any circumstances. It was not different households can sit together if uh, someone greedy on StubHub sells a ticket they shouldn't. 
if you are from different households, you had to stay apart six feet and not directly in front or behind anyone else. And these were established well before the game. So to me, it's pretty insane that they would be thinking they're at StubHub that as long as you didn't actually catch COVID, that who cares if you had to sit there worrying during the game that you're going to catch it? And who cares if you had to sit there worrying after the game that you caught it? He said, so they're basically admitting they did wrong, but what do you think the appropriate compensation should be? It was definitely a unique situation, which makes me think I could win a credit card dispute, and I'm okay with them terminating my account. I can buy and sell elsewhere. By the way, I told him in response that... uh, while it's not ideal to have his account terminated, there are ways around it. If he still wants to use them, if they shut him down, because it, there, there really is not an equivalent. They're kind of a monopoly. I say kind of because there are t- other ticket brokers out there, but really, StubHub is so ingrained in secondary market ticket sales now for sporting events especially, that if you can't use them, then a major option has been taken away from you. The biggest option by far has been taken away from you, and often the best deals are found on there. So it's not trivial to lose StubHub, even if you hate them. But I said you could use a friend's account, you could use your mom's account, you could use your dad's account, you could use uh, your wife's account. So there's a lot of other accounts you can use, and the only way you could run into trouble is if you attend a game where you're not with the person whose account you used, and then you have to show ID in some way. That's the only way you can run into trouble. But other than that, uh, it doesn't matter whose name it's in as long as you trust the person whose name it is in and they trust you. But he said he's okay. He said he's even willing to just stop using them entirely. He said, one last thing. I have a call into the NFL as we speak. I called before talking to StubHub today and left a message for someone. Uh, I do believe it's someone in the NFL offices in New York City based on the number I called and the operator transferred me. I'm still waiting on a call back. So he said, sorry for the long message, but I thought you'd be interested in this customer service case. So, okay. Here's how I feel about it. I think you already may have an idea, but I'll tell you my full feelings on this matter. StubHub has what they call the StubHub Fan Protect Guarantee. And they make a lot of additional sales. They grew to be as big as they are, partially because of that Fan Protect Guarantee. Because it is something to make people feel comfortable about buying tickets there. Because you hear so many stories about people who buy counterfeit seats or other seats that are not what they are supposed to be. And then the buyer gets screwed. So what Subhub put together was a guarantee to make any ticket buyer feel comfortable. Here's their guarantee from their own webpage. I'm reading it right now. It's right in front of me. The Subhub Fan Protect Guarantee. Buy tickets with confidence. Get valid tickets to any event or your money back. We go out of our way to find replacement tickets if there's an issue with your order. And if your event is canceled and not rescheduled, you will receive a credit worth 120% of the amount you paid for the impacted event. So that's that's on the buyer's side. I won't get to the seller's side because that's not important here. So the first term is the most important. Get valid tickets to any event or your money back. Was this a valid ticket? It was not. According to NFL rules, that ticket was not valid because that teenager was too close. They had another party sitting too close to them, and the NFL would not let those seats be sold that they ended up in. So these were not valid tickets. 
A year ago, they were valid tickets, but today, they are not valid tickets. These receipts, which were supposed to be empty, which NFL would not allow fans to sit in. Period. Done. Not valid tickets. Valid tickets doesn't mean you can walk through the door. Valid tickets means you have seats that you are allowed to sit in, and they were not. Just because they happened to sit there and get away with it does not mean they were valid. So they were sold in valid seats. The only argument StubHub could have back was that instead of going home, that he sat in the seats anyway, which he already admitted to the woman he spoke to, so he couldn't even change the story. He, he admitted to her that they watched the entire game. So her argument back could be, you can't get back the entire money because you watched the game anyway. And she may even have a secondary argument that ultimately, even though she, that there was some lack of peace of mind, that ultimately nobody caught COVID. But well, and another thing to drop is, you know, they went to the Super Bowl, so it's like it's not like you know, if you were going to live in a bubble and be so concerned about COVID, you wouldn't go to the Super Bowl, even if they're, you know, even if they said you're going to be certain, you know, certain. Distance. Well, yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of a third argument that uh, right that you're, you're already subjecting yourself to some risk by going there exactly. at all. Exactly. So you're you, not like barricaded in your house, and all of a sudden we exposed you. Yeah. But but still, I, I think the strongest argument is on his end that he was sold tickets that were not valid, and it actually says right on StubHub's fan protect guarantee: get valid tickets or your money right. back. So yeah, but I mean that's not what they mean by valid in that case, though, right? Well, no, I, I think it is. That's not what they meant when they wrote it. But it, that's the term valid. True, you, true. you can't you can't really change that. It's either valid or it's not valid. It's kind of like when I went to Wells Fargo one time and I tried to withdraw money that was shown as available and they had the cash in the bank, but they said, "Sorry, we can't give you this money." It was it was to go on a, a gambling trip to Lake Tahoe. They said to me, "We can't give you this money. The funds aren't available." I said, "Yes, they are. I checked online. It says it's available." And they said back, just because it says the funds are available doesn't mean they're actually available. <laughs> and I said, what? Then what does it mean? They said, well, um, it can say that, but uh, in reality, you know, we, we sometimes want a little bit of longer time to pass since the last deposit went through. I said, but that's what available means. When you say they're available, that means you do think the amount of time has passed. So is it available or not? You're telling me the website's wrong? Well, it's not wrong, they told me. I said, of course it's wrong. There's no such thing as... It's available, but you can't have it. It's either available or not available. So if it's available, I can have it. And if it's not available, it's not. And if it says available, then it's wrong. So once again, is the website wrong? And the teller said back to me, no. (laughs) And then they had the manager come out who tried to have the same debate with me. And I said, once again, I am not walking out of here unless you give me the money which your own website says is available, or you convince me it's a technical error. Don't just say it is. Convince me, and we have to call the main phone number to convince me, and I have to be told a convincing story as to why that is an error. But if you admit the website's not an error, then the funds are available, and I am legally entitled to them, and I'm not walking out. So they actually told me, oh, okay, fine, as a one-time courtesy. I said, no, it's not a one-time courtesy. I said, you're going to give this to me, and if this happens again, you're going to give it to me next time. If the funds are available, they are available. There's no such thing as available but not available. It's either available or it's not. Well, same thing here. It's either valid or it's not. There's no such thing as a semi-valid ticket. 
So you've either been sold a valid seat or you have not been sold a valid seat. Now, you could say something in between might be a valid seat that isn't as described, like what he said with like a partial obstruction. So let's say you buy a seat that doesn't say it's obstructed. You get there is an, there is an obstruction. I still think that's crappy and there should be something done, but at least it's a valid seat. At least it's a seat that by the rules of the stadium, you are allowed to go sit in and watch the game, even if it's not the type of seat you were hoping to get or thought you were buying. But here, you are not allowed to sit in that seat. So it's not a valid seat. So I thought he had an extremely strong case that even if he stayed there, and I would say the perfect answer he has as to why he stayed there was that he couldn't reach StubHub to ask what to do. So he feared that if he went home, that they wouldn't refund him. And so he had to make the decision, do I just put up with this because I spent 12000 bucks, or basically uh, leave and get nothing out of it and then possibly get no refund? So, of course, he, you know, he had to make a decision that either way it's going to be very stressful. And he chose to stay, fearing maybe you know he's not going to end up getting a refund even though he strongly feels he deserves one. So that, that would have been the answer. In fact, that's the answer I told him to give them if they asked him again why he stayed. But I told him to press very hard about this fan protect guarantee. That's the whole reason that's there. And something else. StubHub has made a fortune from this fan protect guarantee. Look at the fees he was charged here. $3,000 of fees on a $9,200 purchase. That's insane. So think how much money they are making. Not just on the Super Bowl, but on all events. And they've made these partnerships with... uh with the professional sports leagues to directly transfer the tickets. It's not like in the old days where you'd have to buy the seat and have it mailed to you. This is that you get it directly transferred to you through the team and the the ticket becomes yours. But StubHub makes a fortune here because fans know this guarantee exists. The fans know that it's far safer to buy from StubHub than from the guy outside the stadium pulling tickets out of his jacket because you know that if there's something wrong with the tickets you buy, that StubHub's going to take care of you. So people shop with confidence. It actually says buy tickets with confidence. That's what it says right there on the page. And that is the reason a lot of people use StubHub. Some of it is the availability and the fact that they're huge, but some of it is that people trust them. So when you make a lot of additional money because you're guaranteeing you can be trusted and you're going to take care of it if if there's a crappy seller there, then you have to eat it when there is a crappy seller and you can't try to worm out of it just because the value of the tickets happens to be high. But before you feel bad about StubHub, I want to tell you something else about StubHub. They also can get the money back from the seller. The seller doesn't get the money immediately. They hold up the money for a period of time before releasing it because of things like this. So they can collect all of the money back from the seller. In fact, I wonder if that initial offer of the first the 2400 whatever and then the 3600 I wondered if perhaps this was StubHub trying to double dip where they would take all the money back from the seller and yet only give a partial refund back to this guy and keep the difference. It's possible they could have done this, but anyway, uh, because there's, there's no way they did it. They they were not going to do anything to the seller on the other side. They have a lot of strict terms for the sellers that they have to adhere to a bunch of rules. And if the seller does not adhere to these rules, they do risk not getting paid, and they really have no legal recourse. So they hold back the money for a little bit of time, exactly for this reason. So this was super easy for StubHub. All they had to do was swipe the money right back from the seller and give this to the buyer because he was sold invalid seats. 
But the reason StubHub didn't want to do this was because then they lose their fees too. They can't say, okay, we'll keep our fees and just take the uh, the principle of it. So even though that's what this uh, listener offered, he, he was actually offering to her, hey, how about you keep the fees and just give me back the principal? Probably thinking about that, they could just take it back from the seller. But uh, they, they actually said, no, we're not giving a refund that large. What I think was happening is I think that this woman at StubHub was seeing the amount and just thinking, I don't want to refund. I don't want us to lose this much in fees. It's it's one thing to give a refund for a ticket that was two hundred bucks. It's another thing when we're dealing with uh, with thousands here, with thousand three thousand in fees that we're going to have to give up. As far as which of the two gets to keep the money, whether the seller or the buyer, they don't really care, but they do care about their own fees. So they did not want to give a refund because what they were not going to be able to do is keep the fees and then uh, take the entire money from from the seller. So. StubHub probably was going to keep a percentage of whatever was taken back, whatever it was. So they, they, uh, they were obviously. Uh, my guess is they were probably just going to whatever they gave back to this buyer. They would have uh, subtracted that and their fees according to the same percentages from the seller. Maybe the whole thing from the seller, but I'm thinking that and and their fees. They just kind of pretend it's a, a lower sale. So if they give back 3,600, it would all of a sudden become an $8,600 transaction with the usual fees taken out instead of 12,200. These are just my guesses, but that's that's what I think. Anyway, I am very much on his side. I think he deserved an entire refund because of the fan protect guarantee. Now, if there was no fan protect guarantee. Then it becomes a little bit more questionable because, the, like, let, let's say this was a, just a dispute where one person sold it to the other. Well, then the first person could say, hey, you still attended the whole game. You still got some value out of it, and you didn't actually suffer any kind of damage COVID-wise. Maybe some psychological uh, nervousness during the whole thing. But even that goes away pretty fast because once some time has passed and you caught no COVID, then that's that. You don't have to sit there worrying about this for months. So... The, per- the seller would have some argument that the buyer got value out of this and therefore shouldn't get an entire refund. I'm talking about if it was just two individuals with one suing the other. I still think the buyer would have a stronger case. But with StubHub, when they have stated this guarantee, that changes everything. When they've stated you get valid tickets or a full refund, then that's it. When you make additional sales because of that guarantee, then you also have to eat it on the other end. You can't have it both ways where you make sales thanks to the guarantee, and then when people want the money back, you go, ah, you know what, we, we don't want to uphold the guarantee. Like You can't, you can't do that. You can't, try, you can't worm out of your own guarantee. It's kind of like poker rooms that want to worm out of their guarantees for tournament uh, prize pools when they don't get enough entrance. And I always criticize that. I say if you want to attract people on a guarantee event, then you have to be willing to eat when you don't make the guarantee. Same thing here. You have to be willing to eat the high-value purchases if uh, if it turns out the that bogus tickets in some way or invalid tickets in some way are sold, and if you can't collect the money back from the seller, which, again, they can. They just are going to have to give up their own fees. So that's my position on this, and I told him to be very strong about this. I told him to definitely speak to the NFL. I said he was on the right track, that what he wants is something in writing, even like an email from the NFL saying that this was an invalid ticket. Now, they probably knew there after looking into it, but uh, it's even stronger to have something from the NFL saying the C2 Shadden uh, was not allowed by NFL policy, which I would think if you 
reach the right person at the NFL you could probably get. Because all they're doing is, uh, they're not making decisions here. All they're doing is giving you an affirmation of a policy they made. So they're not even putting their asses on the line with anything. They're just saying, oh yeah, yeah, our policy is that two households that are not related cannot sit together. That's all he have to say. He gave me an update. He said, I finally have a couple updates to share. Turns out that last week and yesterday, the NFL ticket offices were closed. That's why I wasn't getting response to them. Today's response, though, was not great. All they said basically was, thanks for your email. We're closed last week. We have to defer to StubHub as far as resolving the dispute, but we will take note of your message and try to make sure situations like this don't happen again in the future. (laughs) Come on. I I detest that type of response. I hate the, well, there's nothing we can do for you, but we're going to make sure that we take care of future customers after you. We're going to change. Thank you for improving us. I always give the same response back when I get that type of crappy answer. My answer back is, I'm not a free consultant. I It doesn't excite me that you are making it better for your own business in the future or that you've improved your process. If you'd like to hire me as a consultant, sure. But since you're uh, me giving you my bad experience and you telling me that you're doing nothing for me but improving your company for the future does nothing for me, does nothing to resolve my own situation. So I don't care about that. So again, how are you going to resolve my situation? And I've had to have this discussion with a lot of representatives from large companies over time that give me this type of crap that they've noted this and they're going to try to improve their process. Or I've heard before, this was a teachable moment where they acknowledge something wrong happened, but they don't want to do anything for me. Just, we, we've, we've coached such and such people, it's not going to happen again. I go, okay, but what about what happened to me? So, same thing here. The NFL, they dropped the ball here. Uh, I think some of the problem, I'm not blaming him for this, because I probably would have phrased whatever he wrote to them or said to them the same way as he did, because you have to mention StubHub, because otherwise uh, you're leaving out a huge part of the story. But the problem is once you say StubHub, they're like, oh, okay, this is another stupid ticket dispute involving StubHub. We don't want to get involved, which partially is correct. It is true that they probably should not be getting involved in resolving a dispute between StubHub and this guy. But he's not looking for a resolution. He's looking for an affirmation of their rules. Were the rules broken or are they not broken? So that is exactly what he said. He wrote back, I emailed back and said that all I was asking for was them to send me an email sending that they could see the ticket transfer in their system, that it was part of a larger pod, and it should not have been split per their rules. I took a screenshot of their teams where it said the part about not splitting pods and attached it. This was around 4 p.m. I didn't see a response after that. So that was, uh, I'll tell you the reason he gave the time in a second. So basically he's saying, uh, I don't want you to resolve my dispute. I just want you to affirm that this was not allowed. And here were my seats, here were the other people's seats. Tell me the, tell me in writing this was not allowed. Here's proof I sat there. Tell me for sure that this was invalid. Please. Well, they didn't get back to him, but two hours later after this, he got a call from StubHub. It was the same lady he had talked to the previous week. She started out the phone call saying, Hi, I'm the one he spoke to last week. Do you remember me? Yeah, unless he had amnesia, he's not forgetting that call. 
when you've been stiffed out of twelve thousand dollars for your Super Bowl tickets, and and you're speaking to the only person who can help you, that is a pretty memorable conversation. So the week after, you're not going to forget that conversation. So of course he said yes, I remember you. So she said, "I'm just calling to let you know that I escalated our issue, your issue to the executive team, and they agreed to refund the entire amount." Nice. He said, that was a nice surprise. I told her I appreciated it. I was glad we could continue our 12-year relationship. He said, I estimated I have made them over 100 k in fee revenue over the last 12 years for my sales and purchases. Wow. I've never told her that, and I don't know how if she was aware of that. She said something phony like, we're all thinking of you and hoping you stay COVID-free. Yeah, come on. Then he just then she just laid out the details of how I'd get the refund and see it on my credit card within five days, and then I'd get an automated automated email from them with the exact amount. I actually had been planning on starting the credit card dispute on Thursday. By the way, he's talking about the Thursday which just passed two days ago. If I did not make any progress by then. I figured I was going to put an end to my StubHub account. Now I'm kind of conflicted because I want people to be aware that they need to speak up and not just take it if they are in the same situation, but at the same time, I don't want to rock the boat with them because they did provide a positive resolution in this case. Well, see, you got both. You got the money, and I'm making people aware, and I'm not naming you. I, I guess that's why, like, I guess he, I, I don't know exactly what his thinking is, but uh, I guess he's saying he doesn't want to make them look bad after they did the right thing, but but they didn't do the right thing. They They jerked him around for some time and then did the right thing. So you are correct in wanting to make people aware, and that's noble of you to do. And if you don't want to put your name to it, I understand. And that's why I am putting my name to it. That is, I'm telling the story, and I'm telling you guys that I know who this person is, and I believe him, and I've met him before, and he seems like an honest guy. But I'm the one telling the story. So... Thumbs up to StubHub for doing the right thing at the end, but thumbs down to StubHub for refusing at first and trying to give a very substandard refund and uh, acting stubborn about it initially. I do wonder if the timing here was not coincidental. Remember, he emailed the NFL back at 4 p.m., and then at 6 p.m. the same day, all of a sudden StubHub was backing down. So I do wonder if perhaps, it it does seem kind of quick, but is it possible that the NFL received this email back, looked into it, like maybe at first they just kind of skimmed it and dismissed it because it looked like a dispute with StubHub that they didn't want to get involved in. Then he's like, no, 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 I just want you guys to verify illegal tickets are sold through StubHub. Can you verify these are illegal tickets? Illegal in the sense that uh, they were too close together according to COVID standards. And StubHub had agreed with the NFL to adhere to this. So they did have a reason to be mad at StubHub over this. So I do wonder if perhaps the NFL reached out to someone high up at StubHub and said, what the hell? How are you allowing this to occur? Our agreement was that you would not do this. And it's possible at that point StubHub said, Oh no no no! It's just you know it was a weird oversight. Uh, we're taking care of it. We'll get this guy his full money back. Like it's very possible that the NFL didn't necessarily demand that they take care of this guy, 
but maybe the NFL raised issues saying, like, what the hell's going on here? And quickly stuff was like, oh, no, 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 we're taking care of it. It's all going to be good. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. This is just like a one-off thing. Don't worry. This guy's going to be made whole. Like, it's possible that was their action. And that was why so quickly he got an answer. I've seen this before, where you're running into a lot of stubbornness and a lot of sorry, that's all we can do, nothing further, tough luck. And all of a sudden something changes. And then the company wants to help you. Something freaks them out, something spooks them, something makes them worried that they're vulnerable in some way, and all of a sudden, all they want to do is help. I have seen that before in some of my dealings, where it really seems like I'm just out of luck, and we have to sue whatever company it is that I'm having an issue with, and then there's a complete turnaround, which I later figure out is because of something that happened that was in my favor that I didn't realize. So, congratulations to this guy. I am glad that this had a happy ending. Now, let's see what we can learn from this. Because, yeah, you're not going to be in the exact same situation as this guy, especially, hopefully COVID's going to pass or improve greatly over the next year. And this type of thing is less likely to happen. But... Let's talk about any dispute that you have with StubHub and what you can do, what you should do. First of all, I always like to say Druff's rule of being a consumer is if you don't get what you expected, if you bought something and it was not as you expected it, and when you look more carefully and see that the error was not on your part, meaning it wasn't you just... uh being a complete dumbass and misreading something, but that most people would feel the same as you. Most people would have the same expectations as you. I don't mean you missed something in the fine print. I mean, the average person in your shoes, what would they expect? If the answer is they'd expect what I was expecting, and then you didn't get what you were expecting, then you got screwed. That is Druff's rule of consumer expectations. If you didn't get what you're expecting, and the average person would have been expecting the same as you, then you got screwed in some way. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but either way, you got screwed. So that's the first thing to establish, and it's important because it's important to know if you're in the right or not. Because not only is it good practice to only push matters where you actually are in the right, rather than just angling for things you think you can get, but it's better to really only do this when you really are in the right. But second, the other side is more likely to realize you're in the right, even if they don't want to admit it. So I have had people come to me before, with not about ticket things necessarily, but about other consumer-related things. They say, hey, Druff, listen to how I got screwed. And I hear the story, I go, no, no, they were actually right. And I explain to the person why I feel the company was correct or mostly correct. So sometimes customers do have a perception that they got screwed in some way when they really did not. But often the customer really does get screwed. And this is one of those cases. So once you know you're in the right, once you know you did not get what you were paying for, then you need to relentlessly approach it with that belief and basically with the idea you're not going to give up. You should not go for half. You should not go for a quarter. You should go for 
whatever you really feel that you are owed in the situation. And of course, it depends on the existing situation of what you really should be owed. And of course, it's subjective. But like in this case, because StubHub had that fan protect guarantee, he should be owed 100% back, and that's what he got, because that was their guarantee. If there was no guarantee, I'd say he should get a part of it back. Not all of it, because he did stay and watch the whole thing, but uh, I would say a part of it. So you have to determine these things, and each situation is different. But let's go back to StubHub. If you have determined with StubHub that you've gotten screwed in some way, even if it's not directly their fault, even if it's just the seller screwing you in some way, you need to speak up, you need to call them up, you need to clearly say to them what the problem is. If it's something that's a high dollar value, you probably want to start off with someone higher up. You're not going to have a low-level employee offering a $12,000 refund. They're not going to have that sort of authorization. You do have to give them time to investigate and go through their process. You can't uh, demand that they do it right on the spot, though they do have to get back to you in a reasonable amount of time. They can't tell you it's going to make, take uh, four months. But yeah, if they want to take a week or two to look into it, that's fine too. But you do need to get them looking into it. You need to calmly give them all the facts. You should not yell. You should not use profanity. You should not... Uh, Use any kind of language that would be uh, inflammatory. And very important, do not ever talk about lawyers. Do not ever talk about lawsuits or lawyers because then you will be referred to legal. And that's another huge mistake people make when dealing with companies is they start talking about, well, I'm going to have to give this to my lawyer. And they think the company's going to be scared. Well, they're not scared because StubHub and other large corporations, they all have attorneys that work for them full time. So they're not paying hourly for an attorney. They're not having to pay extra money to hire an attorney. They just hand this to their in-house attorneys. So they're not afraid of this. They have these attorneys to handle whenever people threaten to sue them. And what they will say if you threaten to sue any large company is, okay, we'll put you in contact with our attorneys and then shut down. And you don't want that because unless you really are going to sue them, unless you think you're done with the conversation – you don't want them to shut it down. You want to resolve it without doing that. So you never mention attorneys to any large corporation or even medium-sized corporation because they're not going to be impressed. All they're going to do is shut you down. You can say this to individuals who don't want all the hassle of being sued, but a, a corporation is not going to be afraid of that. So never, never talk about lawyers or lawsuits. And this guy didn't do that. I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying you shouldn't do that. But you also need to make it clear to them what your expectations are. So now if, if it's something where you think you may get better than expected, then sometimes you don't want to say the expectation. So if, expect, if your expectation is a full refund, or you're hoping to get a full refund, then you can say, I want a full refund. If your expectation is, let's say, a large partial refund, then you could say, I want back what's fair here, and then let them determine it. And if they come back with something better than you expected, great. If they come back with something worse than expected, then not great. Like... In this example, it was good that he uh, wasn't specific until they offered him that 30-whatever hundred, and then he said, oh, no, that sucks, and then he wanted uh, basically everything back but the fees, and they said no, and then ultimately he got better than that. But it's better to let them throw it out first than have you say, no, this isn't good, and press for more, because basically whoever throws out the first number 
is at a disadvantage. But also, you should never accept a partial if their own policy would indicate you're getting a full refund. And that's that's the case here. So with StubHub, definitely, if something violates what they call their fan protect guarantee, then you should definitely get a full refund. And don't let them talk you out of it. Don't let them say, well, you watched the game, or, uh, well, your fault was this, your fault was that. No. If you were sold a ticket, which was not a valid ticket in any way, then you're entitled to a full refund. And even if you were sold tickets that are valid, but were not as described, then you were also entitled to a full refund. Now, when I say as described... I don't mean the view wasn't quite as good as you were hoping, or the picture makes the view look closer than it is. I I, I mean that, uh, like, if they say these are two seats together and they're not, one of them is uh, behind the other and they don't disclose that, or, or or there's a space in between them and there's someone else in between you. That's that's not what you were buying. So if they sold it as two tickets together in the same row and you get there and that's not what you have, then you're entitled to a full refund. And you need to call StubHub and say, I'm not going to accept anything but a full refund here. And sometimes you need to get higher. Sometimes you need to escalate it. Do not let lower-level employees decide this for you. In fact, it looks like this woman, despite claiming she was so high up in management, claimed she escalated this to the, quote, executive team to do this. Now, maybe that was a lie. Maybe she decided it herself and wanted to come up with an excuse of why she originally gave a lower number and then took some time to get back and then came back with the full amount. So the executive team may have seemed like BS. Maybe she uh, she said that so he doesn't tell his friends to always call her if they want a full refund, that it kind of puts this faceless executive team as the ones who made the decision. But it's also possible there is that team that made this decision, perhaps because the NFL put some pressure on them for selling these tickets in the first place. But whatever it is, if you end up in a situation where you feel you are due money back from StubHub, then you need to get to someone that is in some sort of management position. And then you need to calmly and firmly make your case. I always like to use language like, it is very important to me that we, that, 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 that the right thing is done, or that I am treated fairly or that I get the appropriate refund here. I always like to use the language, it is very important to me, or it's extremely important to me, because that's a way to get the message across that you're not going to give up if you don't get good resolution, without sounding too threatening, without sounding too confrontational. It's like a a polite way of saying, I'm going to be a tremendous pain in the ass unless you're doing what I'm asking, unless you make this right for me. But by saying it's very important to me, or you can also say I'm going to put a lot of effort into making sure that this is resolved properly. You can say that too. These are ambiguous statements, but they get the message across. They're they're polite, but firm statements. So I've used that language a lot when I have dealt with any kind of uh, dispute. But with StubHub especially, make sure you get your refund if something's not right, because that's why they have that guarantee. And do not let them talk to you, talk you into believing that you should only take a partial. And know that they can take the money back from the seller. Which is important because they should have a, a lot more willingness to do this. Number one, they have this guarantee, which they make a lot of money from. And number two, they can recover most of it back from the person who scr- screwed you in the first place. 
So it's not even like StubHub is going to eat it. They're eating the fees they're charging that they charge to process a BS transaction. So truthfully, they shouldn't make any fees on this. And truthfully, the seller who intentionally sold something he shouldn't have sold should not make the money either. So the right thing happened here. Because if you look at it, the seller deserves nothing for pulling the shenanigan. And StubHub deserves nothing for processing the, the transaction when they shouldn't have. So I'm glad he got back the whole thing. That's the right resolution. Okay, so Trader Ruski, how awake are you right now? I'm about to pass out. Well, that's good timing. It's uh, good timing because uh, I'm not sure how late the... Indian scammers are going to be awake, or I shouldn't say awake because they're in a different time zone, but I'm not sure how late this thing's going to be open. I'm not sure if it's going to be open after midnight. So uh, I have not tested it any time after midnight, so I do want to get this prank call out now. Uh, I assume you'd just be listening anyway, so you can uh, go into dreamland. If we happen to still be around when you wake up, then we'll be happy to have you back. Okay, Draft, sounds good. Okay, so uh, we will talk to you either later or next week. Thank you for being part of the show once again, Trader Ruski. Thank you. All right, good night. Good night. Okay, so as promised, we are going to make a prank call tonight because we have not done a prank call on the show in quite some time, and I know some people miss those segments. I have been looking for a long time to prank a scammer those cold call scammers. Nothing to do with poker, nothing to do with casinos or gambling, but, you know, you get these calls and you're told you owe money or they pretend to be from Dell or HP and try to get you to pay them to fix fake viruses on your computer. By the time I call them back for radio, they're not there anymore. So we're going to call one tonight that I have verified is there. And I'm trying to think which character I should use. I think I'm going to go with Dwight Thornwood, the Southern character. We haven't used him that much, but he was well-liked when he appeared on a recent show. So we will bring Dwight Thornwood back to call about the money he supposedly owes. I don't really know what angle they're going to take with this. Obviously, it's some sort of scam. So we will feel it out with Dwight. Here we go. Hello? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah this is uh, Dwight Thornwood. Uh, I got oh. there a phone call from uh, yeah. this. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, yes, I can hear you. All right. So my name is Dwight Thornwood. I got me a phone call from this here number. It said to call back. It says something about me owing uh, $299. And I, I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, if you all would like to explain to me. Yes what this is about, yes, maybe we can I resolve this uh, situation. So first of all, sir, this is Jack, and this call is about your computer firewall services, which is called Expire, okay? And today's auto renewal day, your account has been charged that the reason $299. What? So you want to cancel that, or you want the money back? Well, uh, I, I don't know nothing about no $299. I didn't sign up for... Uh, for some service. Sir, wait, wait, what, again. what is this here service you're talking about? I didn't sign up for nothing for no two hundred ninety nine dollars. Talking about, we are talking about the main thing is that right now, right now your computer service, okay, the service which you're having on your computer, which is called expire right now. 
So do you like to renew that or you want to cancel that and get back the money? Now, wait here one cotton pick in a minute. Now, you're talking about some computer service. Now, I don't subscribe yes. to no services. You know, I bought this here computer Sir, from Dell. Maybe they, you forget. Maybe you forget about. Okay. Well, no, I, I don't forget about nothing. Let me tell you something. My daddy told me if you don't know how many steer in your barn, you're going to end up paying for a lot of bull. Okay, so I know I never paid no two hundred ninety nine dollars for no you computer are not service. Paid, sir. We are not telling you you are paid anything. We are not selling anything. Okay, I'm telling you you will not understand that. We are telling you, sir, your computer service, which is called expired, that the reason you have been charged two hundred and ninety nine dollars. So you want to cancel that, or you want to get back the money? Well, I, I, I want to do on both. I want to cancel it and give me back that there money because I didn't pay for nothing. Okay. Not a problem, okay? If you want to cancel that, we are going to cancel that service and we are going to refund back the money, okay? All right. And if you're not going to cancel that, you want to be continued the service once again, then you are going to charge the money $299. But you said you want to cancel that service, right? That, that is so correct. I, I don't want no service for no two hundred ninety nine dollars. You know, this sir, this here computer ain't worth much more than that. I I paid like six hundred bucks yes. for this here computer. I ain't paying half that for some service on the computer that I don't know. You are already paid us, right? We are already paid us, right? So we are going to help you out to get back the money. Wait, you y'all telling me that, that I paid you two hundred ninety nine dollars and don't know it? Now, how how in tarnation is that possible, sir? Sir, listen to me. Because today is the auto renewal day, okay? And you are using the Microsoft Windows computer. And you are not only one of the customer, okay? All the customer accounts has been charged, the auto renewal service plan, okay? And they have any problem on your computer, they're going to cancel that service and get back the money. And you let me know, do you have any problem on your computer? No, my no, computer right? is it's running a okay. It ain't got no... It's all good. Okay. Okay, not a problem. So we are going to help you out to cancel the auto renewal service, and we are going to refund back the money right now. Okay. So you can let me know right now. Are you in front of your computer so I can providing you the online refund application form on your computer? Yeah, yeah, I'm right. I'm right there. I'm my my computer's sitting right in front of me. It's got up right now the website of uh, cornweekly.com. That's my favorite site. I read about corn every week on there. It's very fascinating. You may, may okay. not be your cup okay. of tea, but for me, it's, it's something I like. To. Sir, you're interrupting me Do here. That's that's kind of rude. Did your daddy teach you not to interrupt? Because my daddy, my daddy, he tanned my hide when I said anything when while he's speaking. So if uh, if you don't mind, let me say what I'm going to say, and then I will stop, and then you can speak after that. Like we have that sort of conversation. Yes. All right. You go right ahead. Sir, sir, do one thing, okay? You can can let me know. Are you in front of your computer right now? Yeah. I, are you hard of hearing? I okay. said. I said I'm not, not hearing in front of my computer. See, there you go interrupting me again. Okay, I'm in front of my computer. Do what do, what do I do right now? What do I do right now? Okay, do one thing. Have a look on your typing keyboard, the extremely left hand side bottom of the corner. Do you see the CTRL key? And beside the F and key, you can see the four flag Windows key. Yeah, I see that there, a Windows key. Yeah, that's what I call that that uh, Bill Gates key. You, you click on that, and then he sticks a kind of vaccine yes, you in your arm. To, you get sick. You need to press the Windows key and the letter R. All right, I done, like I done that. I done that. And what came up? 
It says, uh, it says run, and I, I gotta type something in this box here, but I ain't got no idea what to type. I ain't one of them, uh, one of them, uh, Silicon Valley nerds. You know what I'm saying? Okay. You can suck your mouth and listen to me. The, I can give you the step, okay? Yep. So you can type on the panel, www. Yep. Then type T, then type A. Yep. Then type K. All right. Then type E. All right. So it's it's so it's, it's take, right? Yes, yes. Then type S. Yep. Then type U. Yep. Then type P. Uh huh. This 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 here is quite slow. This reminds me when I'm back in kindergarten and uh, and Miss Lurleen says to me, Dwight, can you recite the ABCs? And I said A B C D. Listen to me. Okay? Yep. Start your mouth. Yep. Okay. I'm telling you first. S U P P O R T. Well, see that that there's faster. See, we just sped up here. See, we ain't on. We we, are, we 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 just all went S- from a tricycle to a John Deere. Why you? Why you telling me the over, sir? You can type on the panel www dot take support t a k e s u p p o r t. Okay. You can type on the panel. Yes. I did. I done then that. Give a dot. Then type. Okay. Then give a dot. Then type u s. All right, so www.takesupport.us. Now, it pop up this screen yes. here. It says, take support, the simplest way to find your solution. And then yes. it says, y'all yes. going to take and control. Wait, well, well, hold on. Hold your horses here. Thank you, sir. Why keep talking? Because I, I, I'm concerned here. You called up. You tell me I, I already paid two ninety nine dollars. Sir, we are helping you out. I know, but I have to understand what I'm doing. Someone My daddy always tell me if if you lead, let someone lead you blind, you're going to end up in the bottom of the lake. Now let me tell you once again. It says you're going to take control. Of my operating system. Oh, no, that is what it says here control. on this here screen. It's not control. Okay. We can type. Hello? Yep, I'm here. Uh, yes, you can type the bottom, okay? Body. It says bottom, the quick links. You can see the bottom says quick links. Yep. And below the quick links, you can see the last one, the Supremo. The, in the right hand side bottom of the corner, the, la- the last option. That says Supremo, S U P. Okay, well, what what is Supremo? Supremo? What what is what is that? What does that mean? Give a click on Supremo and help of the Supremo, you can see the refund application form. Okay, I give a single click on Supremo, and once you click on Supremo, sir, you can see the left hand side bottom of the corner, the Supremo dot exe. Well, yeah, yeah, well, I see that. Yep. Yes. Uh, yep. Yes, you double click on that. And All right. once you double click on that supremo.exe, I can giving you the option, okay? You can see any option. Well, hang on one cotton picking minute. Now, a light bulb just popped over my head. Now, I ain't one of them uh, tech nerds, you know, but I do have a question for you. Y'all said that you're just going to refund my money. Now, why do you need to be part yes. of my computer? Why do y'all need to get in my computer through I'm this Supremo you. thing? Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen. Yes, I can. I'm telling you. I can giving you the all question answer. Okay, we are giving you the refund application form. Okay, and help of this form, you can get back the money. 
what in tarnation are you talking about? If you took my money, why don't you all just bring it back to me? Just just refund my credit card. I don't understand why I need to go to, to this, this supremo.exe. In help of this side, you can see the, the refund application form, okay? So you can double-click on that supremo.exe. And once you double-click on that, you can see any option came up. The so if I click on this, you're all telling me it's going to give me some refund form right there? Yes, the refund application form. Help of this, supremo.exe, you can see the refund application form. And when you need to fill up this form, you can get back the money. So don't worry, we are trying to help you out, okay? And you can see all all and everything on your on, on eyes, okay? We are not going to try to do anything wrong with you okay so you can let me know sir once you press once you click on supremo.exe what came up you can see any option came up well i i ain't clicked it yet i'm, I'm still deciding here see, let, let me all tell you all what's going on here okay now you tell me that i paid 299 dollars but i cannot find any record that i paid such yeah, an amount what is it what is that listen to me sir i can show you all and everything okay what service what what I am going to refund back the money? Well, okay, what credit card? Where where did I pay this two ninety nine? Can you tell me which credit card I use so I can see it on my bill? You're not. Paid, Maybe sir. y'all made a mistake. You're not pay. Your account has been charged. But what, what what do you mean my account? Where, where is my account? What kind sir, of account? Listen to me, okay? You can see the supremo.exe. Yeah, I see that. Double click on that. Look, this this may be the way y'all do this stuff in the, that there India there where y'all are, but here in no, Texas, sir. here in Texas, we do not click on Supremo dot nothing unless we know why we are clicking on it, and you you can't even tell me what kind of account I has has been charged. What I'm saying to you, you motherfucker, you not understanding? Hey, you are not being very polite on here. I will go into strong word, okay, you motherfucker. Why why are you calling me that name? I thought you were all trying to help me. Now you call me that name? Call right now. Goodbye. <laughs> that sounds like a guy who realizes that he was not going to get any money out of me. Let's, let's give him a call back. I don't like the way that ended. Hello? Yep, uh, this is a Dwight Thornwood. Uh, someone from your company just called me up and said I was a motherfucker. I want to complain to his supervisor. Can you please look up my record and take we care of it? We are not able to take your call right now. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, I think we have to call back one more time. Thank you for calling the session department. How can I help you? Yeah, uh, my name is Dwight Thornwood. I keep getting calls from your their phone number, and I got some very rude people calling me some very dirty names. Someone said I was a motherfucker and hung up on me. Now, until I can speak to the supervisor, I'm going to keep on calling back here. Right now, goodbye. When do they get tired of this? Do you think at some point they'll get tired of this and stop answering the phone? Thank you for calling the cancellation department. How can I help you? Now look on here, Punjab. You you all keep calling me. I'm going to keep calling you till you give me a supervisor to get that there person fired who talked to me in that rude way.
We are not able to take your call right now. Well, that's Goodbye. a darn shame. That there's a darn shame. We're going to have to call him back. Thanks for calling the Defend Department. How may I help you? Yeah, look, I tell you, you don't mess with Texas. Now, y'all keep calling me names. You keep calling my phone until you get a supervisor. We're not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. No problem. Fortunately, this does not cost me any money. Hello? I'm going to keep on calling y'all till y'all tell me what's going on here. We are not able to take your call right now. Hello? Uh, hello, my friend. This is uh, Dirad Qureshi. Um, I am calling from the Indian League of Scammers. I am looking to reach uh, my fellow scammers. We have we been, we have a big problem. We call right now. Goodbye. <laughs> we are not able to take your call right oh, now. Oh, now they don't want to answer Goodbye. the phone. That's not good. So what kind of customer service is this? I'm afraid they might call the uh, New Delhi police on me. We are not able to take your call <laughs> right now. <laughs> they just heard my voice. They hung up. Yes, I'm going to call up you scammers all day and all night, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. What do you think about that? We are not able to take your call right now. Mm-hmm. We're calling the defense department. How may I help you? Let me speak to your supervisor now. Now. We are not able to take your call right now. Hmm. Goodbye. Wonder how many people they have there. We are not able to take your call right now. <laughs> they just hung up before I even heard anything. They're assuming anyone calling is me. They're getting paranoid. How can I help you? This is from David. Are you the supervisor? We are not able to take your call right. Guess that guy didn't get the memo not to answer the phone. Like everybody else is on board with not answering except, except him. David, can I help you? Hello? 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 We are Freaking not able to take your call right scammer. Now. Goodbye. Piece of shit. Okay, let's call back. Thank you for calling us the cancellation department. How can I help you? Does your vagina smell? Be honest. We are not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. Thanks for calling a cancellation department. How may I help you? Yes. Hello. Yes, this call is all about your computer services and protection. Your computer service is expired. That is why you're getting a call from my company. Okay. Do you have any computer or a laptop? Do you have a red dot on your forehead? We are not able to take your... Thank you for calling customer service. How can I help you? 
Yes. Do you shit in the street? You shit in a hole on the street? Be honest. We are not able to take your call right now. Thank you for calling cancellation department. How can I help you? Yes, when will you get a real job and stop scamming people? Fuck your ass, motherfucker. Oh, someone's angry. We're not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. We are not able to take your call right now. Hello. Hello. We are not able to take your call right now. Thank you for calling a cancellation. How may I help you? Yes, uh, how could I buy that music that goes dun 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 that little hold music before you come on? How do I buy that? We are not able to take your call right now. We are not able to take your call right now. Oh, look at that. This is Nan answering the phone. I think it's my fault. Somehow I think I'm to blame for this. We are not able to take your call right now. Goodbye. I have to imagine this is not a good day at the office there in Bangalore. Yes, how can I help you? Yes, how do I visit your office in Bangalore? Sorry? How do I visit your office in Bangalore? We are not able to take your call right now. We are not able to take your call right now. We are not able to take your call right now. We are not able to take your call right Well, I think they are done. I think I have worn them down. I don't think they're going to be giving me my refund. That's really too bad. Well, maybe we'll give them a call later. <laughs> you know what's great about it is you can just do this without guilt. This is something you can you can just call someone over and over and over and harass them and get all your aggressions out and know that you have zero guilt about the situation because you're screwing with scammers and, in fact, preventing them from taking calls from others. Well, I'll have to save that number. I have to imagine that it's going to be shut down pretty soon, if not immediately. <laughs> that first guy was pretty aggressive, though, wasn't he? That first guy was like, he wasn't a very good salesman. Like He was too impatient. He was too impatient with Dwight. That was the first problem. When you're going to scam someone, you have to provide better customer service. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about something totally different. Let's talk about Harry Reid and the McCarran Airport. So McCarran Airport is the one major airport in the Las Vegas area. And uh, I have actually not flown in or out of it very often, which may surprise a lot of you, given my long time of both uh, visiting and living in Las Vegas. But uh, I just 
never like to fly to or from Vegas because the drive to L.A. doesn't take that much longer than flying. I mean, yes, the flight in the air is about an hour, but it's all the BS before and after the flight that takes time. And I can get from L.A. to Vegas in four hours typically, and then I have my own car there. And I'm also on my own schedule instead of being on the schedule of the airline. So there's many reasons not to fly. It's also cheaper not to fly. But, yeah, you can get cheap flights. But to me, I'd much rather drive. So I've only done McCarran flights uh, on a few occasions. However, of course, I've heard of McCarran Airport a lot. I've heard about it a lot. It's something that you are very aware of if you live in Las Vegas or even if you don't live in Las Vegas. Most people have heard of it. Well, they have decided that they are renaming McCarran Airport, and that's because it turns out that the guy it was named after, Patrick McCarran, was not a very nice guy. He was an anti-Semite. He also made uh, nasty comments about immigrants at the time. Now, yes, it's not fair to judge someone based upon things they said many years ago by today's standards. There were many things that normal, average people said 50, 60, 70 years ago that would sound pretty outrageous today. And you can't say, oh, this person's so awful for saying such and such, if such and such thing was okay to be said at that time. So you do have to view that in the lens of the time. However, there were people who still held inappropriate views even at that time. Maybe not as inappropriate as they'd be considered today, but still inappropriate nonetheless. And Patrick McCarran definitely was an anti-Semite by the standards of the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. He died in uh, 1954. Now, he is known for his contributions to aviation. So, minus his personal behavior, he would have been a good one to have the airport named after. But I did understand the desire to name it after somebody else, or to just name it after nobody. I'm not a big fan of cancel culture, as you guys know. I'm not a big fan of judging things from the past in the viewpoint of the present. In fact, if you do too much censorship of the past, if you try to avoid discussion of mistakes in the past, if you avoid exposure to culture from the past, then you're doomed to repeat your mistakes. What you should do, if something from the past is inappropriate, is simply point it out. Simply point out that such and such being said or done in the past is something that we wouldn't do anymore today and for this reason or that reason and make the contrast make the contrast why the current approach is better why the language used back then is no longer appropriate but don't take the example away we even see uh, Disney movies being censored or changed or taken off the shelves or Disneyland attractions too where they're changing them because of uh, supposed racism, which 
isn't really true. Like, these things aren't even racist. They're just kind of, uh, it may be a little racially insensitive, but they were things made a long time ago when it wasn't seen that way. But nothing, like, outwardly racist, so you should leave it there. Even if you want to have a discussion of, uh, okay, well, you know, in, in modern times we wouldn't do this. In modern times uh, we might uh, consider this differently. So I, I'm not a fan of, of whitewashing the past or hiding the past simply to avoid offending people. But in this case, since it is honoring one individual, when you name an airport after someone, you're honoring them. Like, we, we wouldn't have the Adolf Hitler International Airport. Even though he's a very significant figure in 20th century history, you would not have an airport named after Adolf Hitler because he was a terrible man and you don't want him honored in any way. So, while Patrick McCarran was nowhere near Hitler... There's the same concept applies, that if it was found upon looking into someone's history, that even at the time that they held views that were considered bigoted and that were considered inappropriate by many people, that um, maybe we shouldn't honor them. Maybe we should undo anything that was done to honor them when perhaps uh, these things weren't known or when these things weren't uh, considered. So that's different. That's different than you know, pulling down a statue of somebody who was a hero in American history because uh, he said something racist about black people in the year uh, 1780. So there, there's different standards for different times. And you also need to look at the body of someone's work, the body of their lives, and also acknowledge that people make mistakes and occasionally say stupid things. And that uh, you don't want to put everybody to a purity test that nobody would pass, especially nobody in a certain era would ever pass. But back to Patrick McCarran. I'm not opposed to the renaming of this. And it's not just because it's anti-Semitism and I'm Jewish. Though he said other things that didn't have to do with Jews that were also offensive. But it's it's not just that. So I, I if he said very racist things about black people. Like, they, like anything like that that were a prominent part of his personality, not just one-off comments, but if it was a prominent part of his personality, and he also did positive things, but if this is a prominent part of his personality that even then would have been seen as objectionable by many people, then fine, if you want to go back and rename it, I'm okay with that. But... My bigger issue is who they're choosing to name it for instead. So they're going to be calling it Harry Reid International Airport. And you may say, what's wrong with that? Harry Reid is a longtime, now retired Nevada senator. At one point, he was the Senate Majority Leader. He was a senator for 30 years. He is still alive, but since he was a very big figure in Nevada then why wouldn't they name it after him? Well, I'll tell you why. Harry Reid was corrupt. Anyone who observed Harry Reid knows he was corrupt. Harry Reid actually had a very unusual beginning for someone who ended up not only a U.S. senator, but as a Senate Majority Leader, and a Senate Minority Leader for that matter, too. Harry Reid grew up in the tiny town of Searchlight, which is in Nevada. It's south of Vegas, tiny town between uh, Nevada and Laughlin. And his father, Harry Vincent Reed, was actually the operator of a whorehouse. So he was the son 
of the operator of a whorehouse. Now, his father did commit suicide at the age of 58, but Harry was already 32 by that point, so it's not like uh, not like he saw his dad kill himself when he was a little boy. His dad did this once he was 32. Harry actually lived in a shack originally, which had no indoor toilet, no hot water, and no telephone. Which, yes, this was much uh, earlier. He grew up in the 1940s. But still, even in those days, that was living very primitively. So he rose up from that to eventually become a U.S. senator. He was uh, he first entered a Nevada state politics in uh, 1968, uh, eventually became a congressman in uh, 1983, I believe. He was once the chair of the Nevada Gaming Commission, a position he held for four years, starting in 1977. And he got elected to the Senate in 1987 and remained there for 30 years. The problem was that Harry Reid was known to be very corrupt. He was known to take bribes. He was never convicted of this. But this was something that was known and not even that big of a secret. That if you want Harry Reid to push something for you, you bribe him. And he got very good at taking bribes and concealing it enough to where he wasn't going to be prosecuted. If they looked into it really closely, they would have found it, because it wasn't wasn't that hard to find. But uh, he put a few levels in place to make it to where he wasn't directly the one accepting them, and uh, the money would be placed in a foreign account, which he would eventually uh, access in a backdoor fashion, and he felt that was enough, and I guess it was, because he got away with it. The most prominent case of bribery that is of interest to us in our community had to do with Full Tilt Poker, of all things. Harry Reid was originally anti-online poker. He was anti-legalized online poker. And that's because at the time, the casinos were anti-online poker. And he was going along with what they wanted, presumably because they donated to his campaigns. Now, that part's kind of okay. I mean, I'm not saying that's good, but that's very common among politicians, that the campaign donors are given consideration. So I'm not going to say that's awful, because then you could say this about a ton of politicians. That doesn't make him unique. What does make him a lot more unique was that he was outright taking bribes. So with Full Tilt, what happened was that they really wanted him to switch his position on this. And uh, Jeremy Johnson, who later was a convicted telemarketing scammer, Jeremy Johnson was doing a bunch of things. So one of the things he was doing was telemarketing scamming, and one of the things he was doing was payment processing for online gambling, including online poker. In fact, if you remember back in uh, 2012... We had Chad Ellie, who was also a big payment processor at the time, and he, in fact, went to prison for it. But we had Chad Ellie on the show to talk all about the world of payment processing. Still a very interesting listen if you want to go back and hear it. It's from uh, November 2012 we had him on. He talked about Jeremy Johnson, who he said screwed him too. And Jeremy Johnson uh, apparently was instructed by one of Reed's associates to put a million dollars into a mysterious account if he wanted to see Reed change his view on supporting online poker. 
So basically, the price that Harry Reid was putting on his position, whether he was for online poker being legalized or against it, was... One million dollars. Reid did not say this directly. He wouldn't be stupid enough to do that. Reid had someone else approach Jeremy Johnson when they were talking about other things that had nothing to do with this. But uh, at some point during the conversation, which was recorded, by the way, this person who had a connection to Reid told Johnson to put a million bucks in a weird foreign bank account and that uh, there would be a good chance that Harry Reid would change his position. That's basically what he was told. Now, you may say, why would Johnson do this? Why would Johnson care? Well, Johnson was basically told to give this message to Full Tilt and get the money from them. It was kind of a third party going to a third party to add additional levels in the way so it doesn't directly appear that it is a bribe. So the payment processor for Full Tilt, who had a very close relationship with them, was talking to somebody who had a close relationship with Harry Reid, and he was told to put a million dollars in a certain account, and then uh, there'd be a good chance that Reid might uh, change his position. It was kind of uh, it, it very strongly uh, implied there that that's what's going to happen. Well, that actually happened. Johnson went to Full Tilt and said, hey, Full Tilt, uh, you need to put a million bucks in this account for Harry Reid, and then he will change his position. So Full Tilt's like, okay, <laughs> it's worth it to us, so let's go ahead. Because they were hoping that online poker would be legalized and that they would be able to be part of it. So they put a million bucks into this account through Jeremy Johnson. They gave it to Johnson to put in the account, which Jer- which Johnson did and proved that he did. And then, lo and behold, Harry Reid changed his position on online poker. And you can look it up. You can look it up. He switched positions. Harry Reid went from very anti-online poker to pro-online poker. And if you look at the timeline, and when Johnson made this recording, and when Johnson had this million dollar that he put in, to that mysterious account, that occurred between when Reed was anti-online poker and pro-online poker. And keep in mind that before this, it was pretty much an open secret that Reed took bribes. Now you may say, well, okay, whatever, you know, like, we want online poker legalized, so, you know, if that's the way it's got to be, that's the way it's got to be. It wasn't our money, it was Full Tilt's money. Well, still, this is a U.S. senator, a very high-ranking U.S. senator, taking million-dollar bribes to change the position. That is very, very corrupt and very, very illegal. And had he been investigated for this and convicted of it, then he would have gone to prison for the remainder of his life, which the remainder of his life is not going to be that long because he is now over 80 years old. So why did he not ever get arrested for this? If there's all this evidence I'm talking about, Why didn't you hear much about this? You may have heard about it before on this show, but why has this not really been in the mainstream news? Well, fortunately for Harry Reid, the administration in power at the time was the Obama administration. And Eric Holder, who was then the attorney general, really did not like prosecuting 
anyone in his own party, especially major figures in his own party. And to him, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, it was a bribe. Yeah, it was a million dollars. But it was about online poker, and no one really got hurt from it. So the federal government actually refused to cooperate. Eric Holder's office refused to cooperate with the state of Utah when they wanted to investigate this. They wanted to investigate this as part of uh, some other things that were going on with Jeremy Johnson and his relationship with two different state attorneys general in Utah, both of whom eventually got arrested and convicted for their role in uh, working with Jeremy Johnson and his telemarketing scam. Two different attorneys general, amazingly. But uh, as part of that, they also wanted to look into Reed and this bribe that Reed took in order to uh, change his position and that it was done through Jeremy Johnson, who they had been closely investigating for both, uh, for mainly the telemarketing scamming, but they also knew he was doing the online gambling processing. So Utah really wanted to investigate Harry Reid, but they were not allowed to do it. They were not getting uh, really anywhere. If you Google Utah investigate Harry Reid, you will see a number of articles from very respected news sources. You'll see the Wall Street Journal. You'll see the Salt Lake Tribune, which did a lot of uh, articles on this. You'll see Mother Jones. You'll see 8 News Now, which is uh, a Las Vegas uh, station. You'll see ABC News. KUTV, which is a Utah station. you see the Associated Press. So this isn't just me making up conspiracy theories about a Democrat. Google it, you'll see it's all real. But they were getting no cooperation. The federal government did not want to cooperate, and there was only so far they could go. The Salt Lake Tribune, in December 2016, it says, here's the... uh, title of the article. A $2 million check, Harry Reid and one frustrated prosecutor. It says Davis County prosecutor wants to know if feds backed away from allegations surrounding the powerful Nevada senator. And it starts off with the $2 million cashier's check was drawn at a St. George bank on November 5th, 2010. From there, it was sent by FedEx to a Los Angeles attorney who represented Full Tilt Poker. Made out to Mail Media Limited, a full tilt owned entity used to launder online gambling funds. The millions were then deposited into such and such place in Switzerland where Mail Media had an account. And from there, Davis County Attorney Troy Rawlings is investigating whether it went into a Marshall Islands account in the name of Searchlight Holdings Inc. to benefit or even bribe Harry Reid. Hmm. Searchlight Holding Inc. I wonder whose company that would be. Hmm, where did Harry Reid grow up? Searchlight? What a coincidence. And it says, but the documents gathered by the Salt Lake Tribune from state and federal investigators, court filing and public record requests, including audio recordings of interviews and thousands of pages of transcripts, summaries by investigators, emails, requests for evidence and other materials, show that the DOJ and FBI failed to pursue a vigorous investigation of this money and any potential tie to Reed. 
The available evidence contains no direct connection between the money and the Nevada Democrat, only that Rawlings wants to dig into that possibility. Federal authorities have stymied his effort, leaving Rawlings to wonder why. Were agents ordered to steer clear of that money trail? And if so, by whom? In short, was there a cover-up? You can read that if you want. That's in the Salt Lake Tribune. It's pretty serious stuff, right? Like, Really, the federal government in the mid-2010s ran interference for Harry Reid. So this bribe that he got from Full Tilt was never uncovered. Even though if they really wanted to look closely, like the Salt Lake Tribune had, like this Rawlings guy had, then they would have uncovered some pretty convincing evidence and Reed could have been tried and convicted for public corruption. Would have been a huge scandal. Can you imagine Harry Reid going to prison for the rest of his life over this? Instead, almost nobody knows about it. Seriously, Google it. If you if you think this is just me trying to attack a Democrat, seriously, Google it, and you'll see all the different sources talking about this, including many on the left. And this wasn't the only instance. It wasn't like he had his one lapse and in his final years in office, he accepted this bribe. This was where uh, Harry Reid was doing this for a lot of his career. And he never paid the price for it. This was a very corrupt man. This was a politician who enriched himself over and over with bribes to change his policy. Should we be honoring someone like this? And this is not a politician from back in the 1950s when maybe this sort of thing happened more often and there was a lot less oversight and people weren't as good at investigating and uncovering this. This was happening in the 2010s. We had the Senate Majority Leader and then the Senate Minority Leader. We had a major, major, super powerful Democratic senator taking million-dollar bribes. So he should not be honored. And as I said, forget the 2010 thing with Full Tilt. If you ask someone in the 2000s about Harry Reid, who was familiar with him in his career, they'd say, oh yeah, he's corrupt and he takes bribes. Like everybody knew. Everybody who paid attention knew. Not everybody, but everybody who paid attention to his career knew. I knew this living in Nevada for more than half of the 2000s. I knew about this. And I was nobody special. I was just someone who was uh, following politics and Harry Reid. Someone texted me, Harry Reid is the inspiration for the politician character in the movie Casino. Dude definitely got mob kickback back in the day. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew. So why are they honoring him? He doesn't deserve it. This was not an honorable figure. This was a criminal who got away with it. Everybody knows he got away with it. So, okay, I guess we can't try and convict him, but we shouldn't be honoring him. This should not be the Harry Reid International Airport. This is just a final middle finger to those who have been frustrated watching Harry Reid stay above the law. Someone suggested, why don't we just make it the Las Vegas International Airport? Why does it have to be any name International Airport? You want to take off McCarran? That's fine. Why not just make it Las Vegas International Airport? Let's look at Los Angeles. We have LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. 
Now, there are some terminals within LAX which are named after somebody. Like there's the Tom Bradley International Airport or International Terminal, which is the uh, terminal for international flights within LAX. This is honoring Tom Bradley, a former mayor of L.A., but it's not the Tom Bradley International Airport. It's the Los Angeles International Airport that is named after nobody, and it's the way it should be. I know there are other airports that are named after people, like JFK in New York is a big one, but it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, most airports are not. Most airports are just named after the city in which they are located. So why can't Las Vegas just be the Las Vegas International Airport? In fact, that would make the majority of people happy. Instead of honoring a corrupt Democrat, how about just honor nobody? You take the anti-Semite and the anti-immigrant guy off of the airport and just put nobody. Put the city of Las Vegas, which is what it is. The airport has nothing to do with Harry Reid. The airport is for people to fly in and out of Las Vegas. So just make it the Las Vegas International Airport. Big mistake. I hadn't thought much recently about Harry Reid and his bribery antics, but definitely that was the first thing that came to mind. I was actually pretty shocked to see this really went through. I heard this being tossed around, but I was pretty shocked that they actually decided to do it. I thought there would be enough pushback. By the way, Harry Reid almost lost in 2010. Remember 2010 when a lot of Republicans did very well in that midterm election? Uh, Harry Reid was one who was vulnerable because basically Nevadans were sick of his crap. He was not popular in Nevada. I knew a lot of centrist types in Las Vegas who uh, really didn't like him. People who voted for Obama in 08, people who still liked Obama for the most part, so they weren't like angry people who wanted to vote the other way in the midterm. These were still pro-Obama people in 2010. But they said, I hate Reed. I want to vote him out of office. There was a lot of hatred for Harry Reid in 2010. People were sick of him. People were sick of his corruption. People just felt like he was your typical selfish, corrupt politician who didn't give a shit about the people he represented. So they were ready to vote him out of office. And unfortunately, remember the Tea Party? Remember the Republican Tea Party? The Tea Party had some influence in 2010. And they got a lot of really, really bad candidates nominated to uh, for, for Senate and for Congress in the 2010 election. Now, the Republicans did well anyway, but it was despite the Tea Party, not because of the Tea Party. They would have done even better if there was no Tea Party. But unfortunately, uh, Reid went against one of these terrible candidates, a candidate I was very against seeing... Uh, nominated and he won and it was pretty easy to paint opposition against uh, this candidate who opposed Harry Reid her name was uh, Sharon Angle she said a lot of crazy things I personally knew a lot of people in Las Vegas who told me that they hate Reid that if there's any like semi-normal Republican candidate running against him, they would have voted for the Republican, but they couldn't vote for Angle because she was crazy. They called her the crazy lady. She was actually leading, despite that, in the polls. One poll had her up as much as uh, 11 points. However, by July of 2010, she was down by 7 points. That was one of the largest swings 
in polling data in a month's time that has ever been seen in a Senate election. She ended up losing by 5.7 points, so it wasn't even that close. But it was assumed that she would have, or not, that a better candidate would have beaten Reed, that uh, Reed was very vulnerable and would have lost to anyone who was not crazy. And as I said, I personally knew people who said that exact same thing. So you had the diehide Republicans voting for her, but the people in the middle, the ones you really need to win, they just could not bring themselves to vote for Sharon Angle. And I kind of understood why. Like, I couldn't even explain to them why, why they should vote for her, because she was crazy. So, like, they tell me Harry Reid sucks, but at least he's not crazy. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> what was I going to say? I was actually hoping that uh, Danny Tarkanian would win the Republican primary. He was a better candidate, but he did not. He was actually the son of famed UNLV coach Jerry Tarkanian, but he lost the primary to Angle. I voted for him in the primary that year. Had he gone against Reed, he would have won, by the way. I can't say that for sure, but uh, from my analysis of the situation at the time, that's what I strongly believed. I wasn't just being hopeful. Like, I really thought that. Like, once Angle won, I'm like, okay, she's not going to win. <laughs> I knew she... And she hadn't completely blown up yet, but I, I knew she wasn't going to win. I knew she was just too nutty. So he got lucky. He Instead of being voted out of office, he got to retire. And that's too bad. So he had several more years in the Senate after that. He was there for another uh, six years. But really, he should be in prison. And if he can't be there, he shouldn't be on the damn airport. I hope if you are on the opposite political side as me, if you could just go look up the facts and you'll see I'm right about this. Maybe you don't agree with me about other politicians I don't like. But I think with Reed, if you look up the facts and read these articles, I think you'll agree he's corrupt and shouldn't be honored. By the way, I don't think Republican politicians who are corrupt should be honored with anything like this. And in fact, in general, I'm not really for airports being named after individuals anyway. You want to name a stretch of a highway after them or whatever, that's fine. But airports, just leave it the name of the airport. Not only is it kind of stupid, it's also confusing. If you hear about you're flying into such and such airport, you go, where is that? What airport is it? Like, it's just, it's so much nicer if you just know where the airport is. So sure, we have really famous ones like JFK, where you know it's New York, but there's others that aren't as well known that you go, what is that airport? What? Like, it's just better if it's named after the city. Okay, moving on. I'm going to give you an update about Christopher Mitchell and Lee Bradbury and that ridiculous, idiotic restraining order. So, quickly to review, we had A. Hoosier A. on here a few months ago to tell the very frustrating story about his experience with being hit with a restraining order, a totally bogus restraining order, by Baccarat scammer Christopher Mitchell. The reason it was so outrageous was that Lee Bradbury, known as A. Hoosier A. on the forum, had never contacted Christopher Mitchell in any way, shape, or form, had never been in the same place as him, 
had never been in the same place as Christopher Mitchell's wife or kid. He had no direct contact at all with Christopher Mitchell. Never emailed him, never called him, never chatted with him, never saw him, never visited his home, nothing. The only thing Lee did was attempt to warn one of Christopher's victims that he was being scammed. And you know what? The guy was being scammed. So Christopher tried to contact this guy, an old man named Bob Hesley, and he tried to convince Bob Hesley that Christopher was scamming him, and uh, Bob told Christopher and sent him a screenshot of the conversation. It's even possible that Bob let Christopher use his account to talk to Lee, but whatever it was, Christopher got the full information there, got Lee's name, because Lee had his real name up on Facebook, and then Christopher decided, with no evidence and no real reason to believe this, that Lee had to be the same person as Kevin Davis, who we've also had on this show, who was doing a lot of videos about Christopher Mitchell being a scammer. So, he just decided they're the same guy. It's impossible to Christopher Mitchell that there's two different people who are calling him a scammer. It has to be the same guy, because if Kevin Davis calls him a scammer, and if Lee Bradbury calls him a scammer, they've got to be the same person, right? Never mind that Christopher Mitchell actually is a scammer. So, <laughs> he decided he's going to file a restraining order. Which, which, first of all, it doesn't even make sense, because even if he found the real Kevin Davis it still wouldn't be justified to serve a restraining order against him because Kevin Davis also was not contacting Christopher Mitchell. I don't know if he ever has, but I know that what Christopher Mitchell is very angry about is nothing that a restraining order could stop. He's mad that Kevin Davis makes videos on his own channel that calls out Christopher's scams, which is basically free speech. You can do that if you want. Now, if you're lying, you can be sued for uh, slander, and you can be sued for libel if you do the lying in written format, but uh, it's really not lying, because <laughs> Christopher Mitchell has been scamming people. Christopher Mitchell has been contradicting himself and lying in order to sell bunk Baccarat systems which do not work, and he lies about his results by a, a tremendous amount. And instead of admitting that he is a loser in Baccarat, claims that he wins 99% and sometimes even 100% of the time. He claims he's a millionaire from his Baccarat system, which, again, is a complete lie. I mean, there's tons of lies. We've talked about it before. So uh, Kevin Davis making videos exposing this, even if he's very relentless and makes tons of them and is very insulting in the videos, this is all completely fine. And there's nothing you can do about it in a court of law, either civilly or criminally. And a restraining order will not stop this. A restraining order cannot stop someone from talking about you. They can only stop someone from contacting you. But Christopher Mitchell decided he's doing it anyway. So he filed a restraining order against Lee Bradbury, who wasn't even doing this. He wasn't even Kevin Davis. And he filed a restraining order claiming that Lee Bradbury was Kevin Davis. I was sure Lee was going to win this restraining order case. Lee did not get an attorney. Lee does not have a lot of money. Lee really did not want to waste money on an attorney on what seemed like an absurd case because the burden of proof is on Christopher. Christopher can't just say, oh, I know I know Kevin is Lee, so therefore I'm getting this restraining order. In court, uh, Christopher is required to prove, number one, that he is being stalked and is being harassed, 
And number two, that the person doing it is Lee. Not just he thinks the guy making mean YouTube videos about him is Lee. He needed proof that it's Lee. Well, somehow he won because of this stupid circumstance that came up where the judge got confused and erroneously believed that Lee was recording the courtroom to put up on his channel. And the judge, pretty much out of spite, then granted the restraining order against Lee. I could not believe this when I heard it. I mean, I believed that Lee was telling me the truth, but I couldn't believe it happened. I was shocked. Well, the first thing I said to Lee at that point was, you need to go get an attorney now and get this appealed. Because there are ways to appeal restraining orders in Nevada, but once that happens, you, you need an attorney to do it. It's uh, Lee failed on his own the first time because of that stroke of bad luck, and now he needed an attorney to help him out. So he hired some attorneys. He got it for a $1,500 flat rate, which given all the work that ended up having to be done was a good deal. And uh, he did spend the money on this on, on these attorneys. Lee has sent me proof that he spent this money. Not that I think he would have lied to me, but I'll get to in a second why I'm mentioning that. And uh, he went through the process of appealing it. So last I had told you guys, and he told you guys too when he was on here, the way it was left was that they went back to court and Christopher made a fool of himself for the second time. By the way, Christopher almost got himself uh, jailed for contempt in the first one. You know you know the case that Christopher won? Uh, right before that misunderstanding, Christopher was actually being very confrontational with the judge, and the judge almost uh, stopped the whole thing right there and put him in jail for contempt. But uh, Christopher made a fool of himself again in court for the appeal and claimed he had evidence he didn't, and then when the judge asked to see it, then Christopher said, well, no, I never said I have that. And uh, the, the whole, you can go back and listen to the whole story if you want. But the end result was that the judge partially reversed it. He said what he's going to do, he's going to change the restraining order to a no-contact order, where it's kind of a more of informal thing, where neither of them were to contact each other. And that if either one contacted the other, that they could complain to the court and the judge would bring them back in to talk about this. And that uh, the judge said he wants to see them in court in six months to see where this stands. So that's the way it was when we last had Lee on this show. Now that was, we had Lee on here less than six months ago because Lee didn't come on here and talk about it right away. He wasn't ready to come out and talk about this publicly yet, but a few months ago he was. Well, he just went back to court for this revisiting of it that was scheduled by the judge at the time when it was changed to a no-contact order. And what happened? Christopher did not even show up, and the judge vacated the entire restraining order. That's it. It's done. It has been reversed. It is not on Lee's record. It is gone. It's like it never existed. Lee has no desire to contact Christopher Mitchell or see him, but it's important not to have this on your record because it can affect employment, it can affect background checks, and it looks very bad if you have a restraining order that was approved by a judge against you. It makes you look like a crazy stalker, which Lee is not. And Lee definitely was not stalking Christopher Mitchell. This was 
an absurd abuse of the court system and by a, a complete stroke of luck and a coincidence, a moody judge was basically uh, confused into believing that uh, Lee was playing games with him for YouTube views and uh, granted a restraining order that never should have been granted. And the funny thing is, look, if he really believed that Lee was recording his courtroom and screwing with him and screwing with the court, you don't punish him with a restraining order for something he didn't do. You hold him in contempt. (laughs) So, So somehow Lee wasn't held in contempt he wasn't doing it. He, he shouldn't have been held in contempt. But if if you were to do anything about this, if this was what was happening, he should have been held in contempt. This restraining order should not have been in place no matter what was going on there. But anyway, the judge was never going to admit that he acted emotionally was wrong, but uh, he did realize that this was not a good restraining order and undid it, especially once uh, Christopher did not show back up. By the end of this whole thing, even by that last hearing prior to this one, the judge was very sick of Christopher. Christopher constantly lied to him. Christopher was nasty to him. Christopher seemed like he was full of crap. Like, he could tell. He could tell that... Uh, I mean, he didn't like Lee either because of what happened before, but he, he could tell Christopher was not a sympathetic character, which he is not. So uh, that at least worked in Lee's favor. And finally, all this trouble and stress and... $1,500 later, then this is over. Lee was also worried, in addition to being something that would interfere with his employment, he was also worried, since the court kind of established in a way that he was Kevin, which he's not, what if Kevin goes and does something that would be considered against the terms of the restraining order, such as like following uh, Christopher around somewhere and, and recording him, and then they convict Lee for it. Like, Lee was worried that might happen, and I, I said, well, it's not that simple, but yeah, I, I understand why you're concerned about that. It's really crappy that there's a restraining order against you based upon you being someone else who you're really not, and then you have to hope that other person doesn't do what you're told not to do, or you're going to pay the price for it. Like, it was a really messed up situation. Should have never happened. Huge miscarriage of justice. And when people heard him come on here in our like two-hour segment about it, I got a lot of comments from people saying things like, it was a very interesting segment and they enjoyed it, but they felt so bad for Lee and they were so frustrated on his behalf hearing everything that happened and hearing how badly he was abused by the court system. And I agree. He was. And Christopher Mitchell was the prime abuser there and the judge enabled that abuse. So I really hate frivolous abuses of the court system. In fact, I'm currently experiencing that not by Christopher Mitchell but by one Michael Possel but as you guys know I have an attorney on my side and we are dealing with it and hopefully this will be disposed of in a few weeks when this is heard in court on March 18th but I hate things like this and I love to see when those who attempt this either fail or even better get negative consequences from it because that's not what the court system is for. And that's really, really nasty to do. So the good news is this is done. The bad news is that Lee had to endure all of this that he didn't deserve. All Lee did was try to warn a victim of a scam. That's all he did. It's not like he saw that Christopher Mitchell was a scammer and tried to screw with him and tried to harass him. The, Lee did not contact Christopher. Lee contacted a victim 
and said, hey, you're being scammed here, watch out. You're an older guy. I mean, he didn't say that, but he was thinking, hey, this is an old guy getting scammed. I want to help him. And then look what happened to him. A very, very sad story. Now, before I end the segment, I would like to put out this appeal to people who are listening to the show. And I've done this before, but I'm reminding you guys. We put out a request for money to basically pay for his legal expenses here. Not that it's anyone else's burden, because it's not. Nobody should be expected to do this. But I can tell you, from my observation of the entire situation, and I I was watching it pretty closely. I was quite interested in it. In fact, I even offered to testify on Lee's behalf, if necessary. I can tell you that this was totally frivolous, that Lee had done nothing except try to contact an elderly victim of the scam, and that uh, Lee did not deserve any of this. So I had said on a previous episode that I was attempting to raise the $1,500 to basically bring Lee back to even financially from this entire thing. Because he paid $1,500, real money, to attorneys to appeal this frivolous restraining order. And while it was successful, he's still out $1,500. We raised $550. So... If you would like to donate anything towards that, if you have not donated yet, if you've already donated yet, that's that, don't worry about it. Uh, Eric Benzamokin did mention that uh, he's also going to contribute here, so we're going to get some from him as well. But um, anybody else who has not donated yet, please donate, and I'm going to make you this guarantee like I did a few months ago, that in total, not more than $1,500 will be collected. That Lee is not going to make even one penny on this whole thing. So it's not like one of these GoFundMe campaigns where someone's asking for 1500 and then they end up collecting uh, 50000 from sympathetic people and they make off like bandits. Even if their entire situation was legitimate, they still end up making way more money than what they were asking for. And they come out with a profit. This is not going to happen here, because I'm the one who's going to be administering it. You're going to be sending it to me, and then I'm going to forward it to him. So Lee is not going to receive more than $1,500, nor am I going to collect more than $1,500, because once we're up to $1,500, I will tell everybody I am not collecting anymore. So all I want to do is collect a total of $1,500 and send it on to him, and I have already verified that he legitimately paid exactly $1,500 to this law firm. And I've seen the receipts, I've seen the bank statements, and I am confident that this really did happen as stated, and he paid 1500 as stated, because I've seen the proof. So just to let everybody know, you don't have to, there's really, you don't have to trust Lee. Even if you like him and he sounds like a decent guy, you may say, well, I don't know him. Well, you don't have to trust him, because I'm telling you, you can trust me that this is all real, and that he's still out $950, because we've raised 550 which I have given him, I'm not holding it. I gave him the 550, and we still need 950. I think it's 550. It's something around 550. I have it posted on the Christopher Mitchell thread. I'll have to check again, but it's five something. I sent him. I think it's 550. I will look at the exact number after the show, but somewhere in that neighborhood. So, if you would like to donate to Lee, and again, if you're someone who's already donated, don't worry about it. I'm not asking for more. I'm saying if you have not donated yet and you'd like to, I'm not expecting you to, but if you'd like to, because he really doesn't have much money. 
That's the truth. This is not a rich guy who got hit with this. This is someone who's a, a working man. This is someone who uh, can use every penny he can get, especially during COVID. He's a Las Vegas resident during COVID, which as you can imagine is not good for someone who uh, works a regular job. Actually, recently is even more in need of the money than before. So I wanted to put this out here as we have our final resolution here. And I won't be asking for more, by the way. It's a, This is over, first of all. The restraining order's gone. But even if Christopher does something else, I'm not going to say, okay, well, now we have $10,000 of new expense. No. That's it. All, all I'm going to be asking for in total for Lee is this 1500 and we've gotten a little more than a third of it so far. So if you would like to, please uh, text me 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. All lowercase exactly as it sounds, and I will tell you how you can send me the money, and I will forward it to him. Again, no pressure. I never want to pressure anyone here to give money for anything, but just putting that out there, because I, if, if you do want to donate to a good cause, that's it. And I, I have donated. I donated 100 bucks. So I'm not just uh, telling you guys to contribute money where I don't put any myself. I, I sent 100 bucks. Of that five, whatever, 100 was for me. And I was the first donor, in fact. I was asked by I am Greek in the chat, how come Lee's attorney could not get the money refunded? Well, because this is an appeal, and that's not the way appeals work. So the only way he would have a chance to get that money refunded would be in the restraining order hearing that initially went down, and uh, furthermore, often these are not given anyway. Uh, usually each side pays their own fees. That's why the anti-slap legislation that I am utilizing to fight back in the Mike Possel frivolous defamation suit against me, that's why that legislation is so important, because that does provide you to get the money back that you are spending to defend this and file the anti-slap if you prevail. So if I prevail here, then Mike Possel will owe my attorney's fees. Now, whether that can be collected is, is a different story, but at least there will be a judgment against him for my attorney's fees. And same with Veronica, if she succeeds with her similar anti-slap motion over the same matter. But this is different. This is a restraining order where you're on the defending end, and typically uh, the winner on the defense side does not get their fees back. In fact, often in restraining order cases, there are no attorneys involved. Usually it's just two individuals without attorneys. It's similar to small claims. Now, there can be attorneys in restraining order cases. They're just usually, it, usually there are not attorneys unless one of the people is very prominent. So like if you're harassing a celebrity and then the celebrity gets a restraining order against you, yes, it's going to be their attorney usually who is uh, directing the whole thing, but just like if your ex-girlfriend files a restraining order against you, she's probably doing it with no attorney, and you're probably going to be showing up also without an attorney. And that's usually the way these go. So that's the answer to that. I say this with no legal expertise, but that's what I've come to understand regarding attorney's fees and restraining orders. Disposition asking in chat, did that old guy Bob Hesley ever see the light regarding Christopher Mitchell? Was it worth it? No. <laughs> in fact, he appeared 
in future videos with Christopher Mitchell. And Christopher is very smug about it, saying, Ah, see, guys, you thought that he was supposed to be me. Kevin Davis is saying that I was pretending to be him. Look, he's right here. Obviously, he's not me. Ah, ha, 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 ha. We haven't seen Bob recently, though, so there's a decent chance that Bob lost his ass with Christopher's system, as most people do, and realized finally that he was taken. But who knows? Uh, Christopher loves targeting the elderly, as most scammers do, because the elderly, uh, number one, are just easier to trick because their minds are not as sharp anymore as they once were. And number two, because they tend to be very stubborn and they will they'll basically stick to the same conclusion they had initially and not change their minds as easily as young people were. So younger people are more willing to say, hey, I made a mistake by trusting this person. They're a piece of crap. This is a scammer. Where the old person, once they decide they like this person, will kind of make excuses in their head for why this person's okay. Kind of to stick to their original assessment and not admit to themselves they got scammed. So even if they start to suspect it, old people are more likely to believe the excuses and force themselves to believe the excuses. So the elderly are very frequent targets of scammers. And... Uh, it's very sad. It's, you have to really, really be scum to go after elderly people who, for the most part, don't have much of an income anymore. And you're going after their uh, either their last dollars or even if they have some money, you're going after people who uh, probably don't have the same mental sharpness that they did when they were younger. It's just really, really scummy to do. Okay, we have a call coming in. Let's take that here. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. This, Hi. This is um, this is a friend of um, Shoeshine Box. Yes. Hi. I I, uh, I was told Hi. about you. I know you've contacted me recently about an issue with ignition. Is that correct? That's correct. I was on ignition poker, um, and uh, I won a big jackpot there. Well, it wasn't you know really big, but it was you know, two grand and. Uh, then um, I, wa- I also had some money in my account, and I asked for a withdrawal, and for some reason, or whatever reason they, they took, they, they blocked me out of my account and said there was something wrong with their security software that they share with their affiliates, and that whatever the issue is, that I need to contact them. But they won't give me the name of whoever the affiliate is so that I can contact them and ask what the problem is. I don't owe anybody anything. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, I I believe you, uh, but uh, in order to resolve anything with Ignition, but before I go on further, I just want to let you know, I've played on Ignition for a long time since they split off from Bovada. I shouldn't say split off since they kind of duplicated Bovada. And Bovada you can still play too. But I've played on them pretty much since the beginning. I've withdrawn a lot of money successfully. I I mean, I I play at the high limits on there. So when I do withdrawals, they tend to be like low five-figure withdrawals, and I've done a number of them, a lot of them. So um, they, they pay me very quickly. They have never tried to steal my money or screw me. But with that said... They will have these weird policies that they obsess over and will sometimes do things that are unethical or wrong and then 
dig their heels in and become very difficult. So it's it, like it's very weird because I'll have people have discussions with me like, oh, I have $100,000 on Bovada right now. Or I have $100,000 on Ignition. Uh, and they get very worried and think, hey, I bet if I try to cash this all out fast, they're going to find a reason to take it from me. And I go, no, they won't. They go, no, of course they will. I go, no, no, they won't. And I, I say, I guarantee they're not going to do that. That's not what they do. And they said, but I've heard people having problems. They go, no, no, people have different kinds of problems. They, Bovada and Ignition have certain things they obsess over. And if you run into those things, they're going to be very difficult. But just like the typical player who runs up money and cashes out is going to be fine. So what happened to you is the question. And I think from what you're saying, it sounds like that they think some sort of shenanigans occurred involving an affiliate Maybe they think the affiliate owes the money, or the affiliate broke the rules in some way, or they think you're some kind of duplicate account. Now, have they told you at all what they think you no. did? No, that's the, that's the issue. I I have had withdrawal from, uh, you know, other withdrawals from them. And you're right, you know, it took them a couple of days, but they did get me the money. Um, but how I th- this was just out of the blue, and honestly. Those other sites, it's been about two years since I was on them. And um, so if they had an issue with me, they should have just contacted me. I think it's just an excuse. But Well, um, see, that, that, let me stop you there. I actually don't think it's an excuse. I think you're in the right, and I think they're making a mistake, and I think they're being stubborn. And that's a, See, whenever you're dealing with something like this where a poker site is screwing you, you have to kind of try to think like them. And even if you are really getting screwed, you have to think, well, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Do they think they're right or are they just outright trying to cheat me? Now, some poker sites out there really are just a scam and will outright cheat you. Ignition actually is not, but they, they have some obsessions. And I'll get to it in a second what some of them are, and this might apply to you. And maybe we can go in this direction to try to figure it out. But they have some obsessions which sometimes result in uh, false positive account closures where they think people are trying to screw them and as a result they shut their account down when in reality the people are not. What Ignition doesn't do is they don't outright cheat people. They don't just outright look for reasons not to pay them. And if they did, um, they, they would really be looking to nail the bigger people, like like like, like me, for example. They would make right. a lot of money if they could shut me down. And just uh, find an excuse to take all my money. But they don't because I'm very standard on there. I, I just sit there. I play poker. I, I grind on there. I, I win money. Every so often I cash out. So um, people like you, uh, they're not looking to find a way to take your money. But when a problem occurs that may not even be your fault, they think the worst of you. They they accuse you of something which you may not have done and it's hard to convince them otherwise. So what they have an obsession over is people trying to play games with them regarding uh, bonuses or any kind of extra money that they may get. So here, here's some examples. I'm not saying you did these things or they even think you did these things, but here's some examples of what they obsess over. Uh, bonus abuse, which is where people keep creating new accounts to get welcome bonuses over and over. So you, you, you make an account, you get a welcome bonus, then you say, okay, I can't get another welcome bonus, so here, I'm going to make one in my brother's name. Now I'm going to make one in my sister's name. I'm going to make one in my mom's name. I keep doing this and, and, and getting these bonuses. If they catch that, they get really pissed and shut them all down and take your money. So they're very obsessed of anything that could be like that, that that would be bonus abuse. Now, with affiliates, they I haven't heard of this as often, but they may have a concern that there's some kind of uh, rakeback abuse because they don't provide rake back to people. 
So um, any money they give affiliates that's a percentage of the rate generated, the affiliate is supposed to keep and not then distribute this to the players, nor are the affiliates supposed to play as themselves. So like an affiliate's not supposed to refer themselves or refer someone closely related to them and take over the account. So for an example, uh, they wouldn't like it if a referral, if an affiliate had his mom sign up and then uh, they were giving rate back to the affiliate from the mom's rate generated. They would think that it either, it, either they don't even like the relationship or they don't even like that it may be the affiliate himself playing as his mom. So whatever it is, they, they, they're, they're also a little bit sensitive that any affiliate money they're paying out isn't really a case where they would want to pay that money, where they don't think it's a real case of someone being referred. They think it's someone who is either the affiliate themselves or someone who is very close to the affiliate that's just doing this to get extra rake back. So in your case, I I, I think it could be something like this, even though you may not be guilty of anything here. So so have you ever had an affiliate? Honestly, no. I've played on Bovada... I have played um, on uh, other sites, you know, like um, Terry Jackpot and I don't know what else, you know, something. There's a lot of there's a lot of them out there, but I have played on them. But, uh, you know, I haven't owed them anything or done anything. The only thing I can think of is my husband and I play on the on the same account and. Usually I put in, you know, money into the, into the account, but this particular time he put his, uh, Bitcoin in. So that, that is the only difference. Well, they, they can't tell where the Bitcoin came from. The Bitcoin doesn't have a source of origin that they're going to find. So that they're not going to care about that. And it doesn't sound like they're accusing you of having two people on one account. It sounds like they're accusing you of some sort of bizarre affiliate issue. So when you signed up for Ignition, did you click on a link? on an advertisement, like go go play Ignition Poker, or did you just go to ignitioncasino.eu and sign up? Well, I have played poker, and I've had, and I have played casino. I, when I signed up, it was for poker. No, um, I don't mean, I don't mean what it was um, for. I'm saying, really how, how did I, you get there? I did, um, you know, put in for the bonus. Well, no, but that's not what I'm asking. Uh, I'm asking, I'm asking how you signed up. When, when you signed up is one of two things. You either just went directly to their website and signed up, or you clicked on some link on a site that was advertising them and then signed up. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was trying to find out what other, um, oh, I was playing on Bovada actually for like the longest time. And then I was like, well, let me explore. And I went on to this site that, that, that said, uh, you know, the 10 best sites for our... Uh, okay. Nice I, yeah, I'm is, figuring it out. Know. I think I know what's going on here. You signed up through an affiliate without realizing it. And that's that's not bad. Yeah. It doesn't hurt you any. But uh, now, unfortunately, it is because there might be a problem with this affiliate. So it, it looks like that um, when you click on this link to Ignition from the 10 best sites, what happens is they become the ones who referred you and whatever you generate, whatever income you generate for ignition, whether it's uh, slot losses or poker rake or both, they get a right. piece of it. So 
That's now that's legitimate. That's fine. They're, they're not the affiliates not doing anything shady there. That's exactly the agreement they have. They're, they're trying to refer people there, and then they've referred you. They looks like they legitimately referred you. You found them through a search engine. That's the way it's supposed to work. the The problem yeah. has occurred that something looks like it's gone wrong between the affiliate and uh, and them, or they have some sort of false suspicion that you and the affiliate have some sort of association. I don't know which of the two it is, but I think it's probably one of those two. Uh, so what, what needs to be done from here, see, I understand this a lot better now, and I think there's a fair chance of you resolving this. You just have to reach the right people. What needs to be done here is you need to... Uh, now, what have you done to get a hold of them first, before I tell you what you need to do? Other than cursing them out on their stupid chat, which doesn't help you. Yeah, their, their chat's terrible. So yeah, you, yeah, the, the chat is totally useless. But uh, have you tried to call yeah. them or email them yet? Yes, I have. Okay, which one did you do? I did both. And, and to be quite honest, um, they were they're supposed to contact me via email or call me. In the, within the next 48 hours, they stay. Because I screamed at them so much, I went on constantly every hour on the hour just to bust them, to, to tell them, hey, you blocked me out of my account. And um, because not only did they, not only did they not give me my withdrawal, but they blocked me out of my account, which uh, I had put, you know, Bitcoin in. So that's, you know, the issue that I have is, you know, where's my money and why are you not allowing me to get it? Yeah. No, no you have a good point here. You, you have a great point. You should get your money. And it does sound like to me they're having some kind of dispute with the affiliate, which has nothing to do with you. In fact, you don't even know the affiliate. You just click some random link to get there, which is no, their... F- and, the, and the fact that they won't tell me what the problem is, who it's with, or what, you know, why they're blocking me out of the account, that alone is telling me that their internal auditors are are keeping me out for for you know well yeah and I, and I, I think I know what's going on here I, I I think they believe that this affiliate has been playing games with them and and maybe signing up people who uh, uh, you know signing up people in a way that they don't want as I said like either signing up their close friends or their family members or maybe playing you know signing people up and then playing themselves or who, who knows what it is. What, whatever They're unhappy with the way this affiliate is doing things, and then they're punishing anyone who ever clicked that link who don't even know them, which is not fair, which is totally not fair. Yeah. So it, it, would, it, would, uh, it would be like you see an advertisement uh, for a bank, and you go in and deposit money into that bank, and then uh, the right. bank keeps your money because they have a problem with that advertiser. Like you say, wait a minute. That's uh, that. That why does that have to do with me? I doesn't care if I saw the ad to come in. I have nothing to do with these people. So, bottom line is, you actually have a decent chance at this one because if they really look into the trail of whatever happened here, they will see that you're innocent. You just got to get them to look. So, uh, what I would do first of all is when, when did they tell you the forty eight hours is starting? When did they say you're going to get a forty eight hour call? Um, last night. Oh, last night. Okay, so this may resolve itself uh, before next week anyway. But if they don't call you, I would call them on Monday between the hours of uh, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern. Not your time. Whatever time you are, I don't know where you are. But 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, I would call them and then ask to speak to a supervisor. They'll have to take your information, but then they will give it to a supervisor. 
once you get the supervisor, I would suggest, yeah, but I would do this again. Once you get them on, I would say, and just do this very politely, and you can do politely and firmly. Like, you don't, don't yell at them, but don't, uh, you know, don't act like you're, uh, you're that happy either. So I would just say, just lay it down very simply. I clicked on an ad to get here. That's how I signed up. I'm being told there's some issue with affiliates. I don't even know who these affiliates are. I clicked on a link that I found through Google to sign up for your casino. And uh, I have no idea who these people are that I clicked on. I don't remember which website it was, but I'm being told you have some problem with them, and I have no knowledge of who these people are. I have nothing to do with them. If they've done anything wrong, please take it up with them and not me. All I did is I clicked on a link, and I'm playing. And I need so I need you guys to look into this as much as you can, and you will see that I did nothing wrong, and that all I ever did was click on a link, Signed up and played, and if you guys have an issue with them, it's your fault for signing up some kind of an affiliate that wasn't very honest. But I have—I don't know who they are. I have nothing to do with them. And if you investigate my account, you'll see I have nothing to do with them. So I need my money. It's very important, and and also that uh, um, I'm not going to go away. I'm not going to give up with this. I, I will let all of uh, poker and gambling media know about this, and uh, and I. I need this to be resolved, and I need this to be resolved now. And I, I, I'm, I'm getting tired of waiting. And uh, right. what, what you're really looking for is a call from what's known as the financial services team. The financial services team is actually kind of a code for middle management. And okay. they're the ones who make these decisions. The financial services team, it doesn't sound like it from the name, but what they're doing is they're the ones who decide who to suspend. They're the ones who, who have control of suspensions. I actually once got wrongly suspended on Bovada for uh, by that team for something I didn't do. They they undid it, but they were kind of nasty to me about it on the phone and still acting like I did something wrong when I didn't. I won't get into the whole story, but I had, I had $56,000 on there at the time, so that was very unnerving. <laughs> I was yeah. very nervous that I was going to lose that $56,000. I, I, mean, I, I, I played the casinos in Jersey all the time because I used to live there. And, uh, you know, I've never had a problem uh, online, uh, you know, ever. They've always paid me, right, you know, because of the commission. I mean, they always pay me on time and uh, never had an issue with Borgata or, um, you know, with Party Poker or any of those other sites. I, You know, now I'm out west and it's it's a little different out here. Yeah, well, and, um, I, okay, but but the thing is here, I, I still think when it comes down to it, you'll be able to prevail here because one thing i'll say is they're not likely intentionally doing this they're doing this because at the moment they believe that you have something to do with this affiliate who screwed them and as soon as you press them and they look into this more closely they'll they'll probably see that you had nothing to do with whatever happened but you do have to assert yourself here and just tell them i you have no idea what you're talking about i clicked a link to go here if whatever that advertiser is they have a problem why does this have to do with me? Right. You've, you've and you've and and uh, if you don't want to tell me what the problem is, that's fine. But at least explain to me why you think I have something to do with them. It's not my fault if I click on a link of somebody that uh, you guys have a problem with later. Like, and just it, the thing is, if you get the supervisor to be uh, sympathetic, they can. What you can try to ask ask is is the financial services team here, and that's why you should call between nine and five because. Uh, 9 to 5 Eastern, because that's when they work. 
and they might be able to ask, can you put me on hold and contact them and ask them when are they going to call me and what have they found here? And and just stick to your guns. Just keep telling them over and over, what did I do wrong? Ask them. I clicked on a link yeah. that is an advertisement for your casino. I signed up and I played normally. What did I do wrong as a customer? And just ask that over and over, especially when you speak to this yeah. uh, financial services team, hopefully, which will call you. And uh, and they'll probably determine when it's all done. The answer is nothing, and they'll pay you. That's that's my prediction. If it does not, mm-hmm. then you can feel free to get a hold of me, and I, I will continue to press this matter on this show and on my forum, and and uh, and bring their attention to the fact that I'm pressing this matter, and and maybe they can uh, they'll feel a little more pressure about it because like it's funny like I've when I've had some arguments with them in the past. I tell them about this site and this show, and I've actually been put on hold while they go look into it. And they go, "Yeah, okay, fine, we'll do it." Like, so they, like they see this this site and show exists, and they go, oh, "Okay, okay, fine, 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 fine." Like, so it's it's funny yeah. that uh, that actually had some power. Like, I'll tell them I have this, and they're like kind of doubtful, and they're like, "So what's the name of it?" And I tell them, and they go, "Hang on a second. They go, "Okay, we've decided to make a one-time exception." And I know it's because they see I really have this, and it'll make them look bad. So. I will I will assist with pressing this if they don't give it, but uh, do, do give them this week, including you should follow up on it this week and call them between nine and five. But see what happens this yeah. week as far as what you get, and and try to get this financial services team to talk to you. They're, they're the ones that make the decision. Thank you. I really appreciate. It. I like your show. I would, my husband and I we listen to you, uh, you know, but from but, but from from afar, <laughs> and uh, we have we've never really called in. Never had a reason to call in, but we find the uh, information very helpful. Yeah, I'm glad. And, and, and we wh- show the best. Wh- wh- where do you live? We live out in Arizona. In Arizona. Okay, well, good luck in resolving this. I know this is incredibly frustrating when you run into something like this, and I remember how it felt for me when I ran into it. And In fact, it doesn't even matter the amount of money. It doesn't matter if it's 56000 or 2000 Anything that's, that's more than just a few dollars, it's like really maddening when your money just gets confiscated. And uh, and you know yeah. you did nothing wrong, so I I can feel for you there, and I I I always try to help with these situations so people can get their money. Thank you, I really appreciate it. Your help. Okay, no problem. Good luck. All right, take care. Have All a right. good night. Bye. There we go. I hope that has a good resolution. I believe her too. I mean, you guys heard her. She doesn't sound like a <laughs> a scammer or anything. This is just some woman. She plays on. Ignition and won some money, got some jackpot in the slot machine, and they they think she's part of some affiliate scam. I mean, th- this happens to, with them and Bovada. They just Bovada really has these weird obsessions. Bovada Ignition, they really have these obsessions that people are trying to screw them. Now, this isn't all unjustified. There are people trying to screw them. There are people who angle them with the bonuses and with other things like that. So I'm not saying that they're paranoid for no reason. I'm just saying that they have a high level of paranoia, which sometimes causes innocent people like this woman to get wrapped up in it and get screwed, which is very unfortunate. So if you're going to be this paranoid, what you have to do is you have to make sure that those that you are grabbing in your net are not innocent people. Otherwise, you're doing a very bad thing. If you want to be extra vigilant, at catching people who are trying to abuse your system, that's one thing. But they take that way too far. That's one of my criticisms of them. I I have several criticisms of uh, Bovada and Ignition. Despite the fact that 
they do pay. They pay very fast. They've been reliable regarding paying people for their entire existence of two decades. And they have never had a major scandal. So these are all pluses. But there's a lot of smaller things that happen. And then instances like this. Then there's Trader Ruski's incident where they just basically screwed everybody in a, in a sit and go and were unreasonable about it. So these weird things happen there occasionally where they just dig their heels in and don't really want to do the right thing. And when it's happened to me, you guys know me, I've pressed them very hard and gotten resolution. But most people don't want to bother with this if it's not a huge sum of money. And then sometimes the people who do have more money involved, like this woman, she didn't have uh, $50,000, but she did, she had enough. I don't know if she said it, so I don't want to repeat it. But I, I know what she had on there because I was told by her friend Shushan Box. And, you know, it's, it's definitely it, it's definitely enough to be pretty alarmed at. And uh, now they're not letting her get it. And it sounds like she's like a recreational player. I mean, it's their investigations department isn't very good. <laughs> That's all I can say. Too many false positives. I am Greek. Asked, will they pay her if she's sharing her account with her husband? Um, they could throw that as a technicality. Yeah, she probably shouldn't mention that to them. I don't know if she has already, but if she has not, she probably should not mention that. Uh, now, if they're just sitting in the same house using the same account, um, it's not a big deal. If there's one account used the whole way. Where they're more bothered if it's the other way, if you have two accounts where one person's controlling both, especially if it's for bonus abuse, that's what really upsets them. Like, there was a guy bitching on 2 Plus 2, and I was actually on their side, where he complained about the fact that uh, his girlfriend signed up and that uh, they're accusing both of them of bonus abuse. And it was so clear that his girlfriend wasn't really playing. It was so clear that uh, he signed up as his girlfriend to get a bonus and then basically moved all his money to her. Basically, he cashed out. They bought it under her account. She suddenly played the same games he was playing and got the bonus, of course. And then they shut down both accounts and said that they were engaging in bonus abuse. Well, they were. I mean, <laughs> and the guy got very indignant. What, you're saying the girls can't play poker? No, we're, we're saying that it's obvious it was you. If you suddenly leave the site or, or go down to very low limits and, and suddenly she's the one playing your former limits, it's very clear that uh, you switched accounts here where you took over, you made an account for her and took it over and she used your account to play very low stakes. And uh, you did this to get an extra bonus. I mean, it's it was obvious to them. It's obvious to us. And you're not being honest with us here. So, like, if you're going to try to angle with those things, then you have to take the risk they're going to catch you and there's going to be some consequences. But if you've done nothing wrong and they just screw you and falsely accuse you of something, then that's a huge problem. And the, then they shouldn't be looking for little technicalities, which they don't seem to be. They just look like they're saying outright, nope, there's a problem with the affiliate, so we're not paying you. So they're just – they didn't directly say they think she's involved, but they think she's involved. They're not going to just punish randoms who clicked on affiliate links. They, they're punishing the, the – uh, they're punishing her because they probably think that 
think, or at least they think it's possible that she has something to do with it. And that's why they said contact the affiliate. Now, I'm thinking about it right now. I guess it's possible they're taking the attitude that the affiliate screwed them in some way. So they're just basically shutting down everybody and saying to the affiliate, hey, you know, either make it right, whatever you did to us, or we're not going to pay anyone you referred, and we're going to get the money from them. The problem with that is these affiliates are not – this would work if these affiliates uh, only referred their close friends and family, but they're actually not supposed to do that. They're actually supposed to refer strangers. So you're punishing strangers because the affiliate's bad? That makes no sense to me. So I really think it's more likely that they just suspect she's involved in some way, which I don't believe she is. Shoeshine Box put in chat, thank you, she feels less frustrated. Yeah, I, I hope so. And the, it, it's at least a good sign that they claim someone's going to call her in 48 hours. So it's possible she will get a call tomorrow or Monday, and it's going to be someone from that financial services team who might uh, come to the conclusion that she's innocent. And I have seen it before where they shut someone down and then talk to them and then decide they're okay. Sometimes they're kind of nasty about it when they do it. Like I, I've seen it before where, where someone gets a, uh, still gets a lecture before they reopen the account, including me on Bovada when, they, when I had that 56000 they froze. They reopened my account, but they still gave me a lecture, which I didn't appreciate, but, because I did nothing wrong, but whatever. Like I, I didn't want to dick around with them too much because I had 56 I was just happy to get access to it again. By the way, you don't know how crazy I would have gone with like blowing them up and going after them if they had taken my fifty-six thousand. I told them that too. I said, I said I, I run a site that focuses on frauds and scams and poker, and you know I, I'm not going to just allow you guys to take fifty-six thousand from me without a major consequence. I'm just letting you know that. I even told them I know about all the different payment processes. I said, I said I don't want to be difficult on you guys. I don't, I don't want to sound like a guy is threatening you. But I'm also not going to let you steal $56,000 from me without consequence. I'm just letting you know that. I'm asking you to treat me fairly. And I'm telling you, I'm the wrong person to steal it from. <laughs> so I, I guess they got the message because they uh, they unlocked me. I was falsely accused of bonus abuse. It, it was such an egregious false accusation, too. Like, different than this. Here it wasn't over something someone else did. It was basically I, I made a deposit and got a bonus that they gave me permission to do and then later told me that even though they gave me permission to do it, that uh, I should have known not to do it anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, no, uh, if I call up your support and say, can I make this deposit for a bonus? And they say yes, and I do it, then that's on your support for giving the wrong answer. Not on me for trusting what your own support says. And they're like... Well, yes, we see you were given that answer. We, we, we pulled the call. I'm like, why are we having this conversation then? Why, why are we even talking now if you pulled the call and see I was given permission? <laughs> it, was, it was absurd. But, but don't think they didn't want to give me a little lecture at the end about bonus abuse. Isn't it sad that the state of U.S. online poker right now is that in most places, them and ACR are the two best options? They're the two, not the two worst, the two best options. Both very flawed sites, but... At the moment, they're still the best options because they pay, and they pay fast. Unless you signed up with an affiliate, they have a problem with it, apparently. Okay, let me go on here to the next topic. I want to talk about Puggy Pearson and his brother, JC. He was a big figure 
in the 1970s poker scene, which, yes, it was a lot smaller than today's scene, but nevertheless, it was a scene, especially in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. He was part of the Las Vegas version of the scene. Puggy Pearson was born in 1929, and he was raised in Tennessee in a rural area. He had uh, eight siblings. He was one of nine kids. He had an accident. I'm not sure what kind of an accident, but he had some kind of accident when he was 12 years old in 1941 that left him with a disfigured nose, which kind of made him look like a pug. So that's how he got the name Puggy. It was a nickname. His real name was Walter Pearson. And in fact, uh, I believe Walter Pearson was also his father's name. So his real name was Walter Clyde Pearson. And at the age of 12, they started calling him Puggy because of the disfigurement of his nose. He joined the Navy. And while he was in the Navy, he started to play poker. Just kind of for fun with his other shipmates. And he found he had a talent at it. He was actually a good poker player. Puggy did not have much of an education. He was, again, raised in rural Tennessee, and he and his siblings uh, didn't go very far in school. In fact, uh, it was said that Puggy had only a third-grade education. But he found he had a natural talent at poker. Pearson actually was the creator of the freeze-out tournament idea, where you were... uh, given a set number of chips and that you're out of the tournament when you bust. That was actually Puggy who invented that. And uh, he actually shared this idea with uh, Nick the Greek Dandelos in the early 1950s. Dandelos then brought it over to Benny Binion. And after uh, Puggy and some other uh, well-known pros at the time pressured uh, Binion to uh, create poker tournaments then that was created and uh, in 1970 the World Series of Poker started Puggy won his first bracelet in the 1971 seven card stud event and he ended up winning four bracelets total he won in 73 at the main event that's probably where you best know him from, that uh, he was the 73 event winner. He is on the wall of the World Series of Poker each year. In 73, he won two other bracelets. He won the $1,000 No Limit Hold'em event, which was pretty small. The top prize was 17000 so it's not, it's not like the one case today with the massive fields, but nevertheless, he won. And a $4,000 seven-card stud event that same year in 73, for uh, 32000 Again, kind of a small field. So yeah, winning bracelets in those days, it was uh, a lot easier to do than it is presently. He was also a cash player. In fact, he was mainly a cash player. At one point, he said that uh, he will play anyone at any game, any time, for any amount, as long as he likes the game. That was one of his favorite quotes. He's, he was actually the first player in World Series of Poker history to win three events in a single year. There's only been six people ever who have done so. He was the first one. Now, Puggy was not a nice guy. He was uh, very much the epitome of an old-school Vegas hustler. And he was 
always seeking out an edge. He was uh, often abusive to dealers. He was often very gruff with people. He was a street smart guy. He was a hustler. He was a gambler. And he was someone who would be uh, belligerent and nasty if he was pissed off at you, including dealers who just didn't deal in good cards. There were a number of negative stories about Puggy over the years and his behavior. But, nevertheless, he is a figure in poker history. And because of his prominent place in the early days of semi-modern poker, I'm talking about not you know, 1800s era poker, but you know, poker around like the 1970s and his advocacy of the tournament format that we're still seeing today. In fact, the invention of the tournament format we're still seeing today. He's a very major figure in poker history, not just because of the four bracelets. Puggy died in 2006 at the age of 77. It is surprising that he lived that long because he had a long history of hereditary heart problems. He smoked cigars very often. He lived generally an unhealthy lifestyle. He was overweight. Not a guy you would expect to live to 77. Not that 77 is a a super long lifespan by 2006 standards, but it was kind of, it was actually slightly above average for males in 2006. And he would not be someone you'd expect to be slightly above average in lifespan, especially with the heart problems. If you have hereditary heart problems, your life expectancy goes way, way down. And he did. So that was Puggy, but why are we talking about Puggy right now? He died almost 15 years ago. Well, Puggy also had a brother who played poker who was much less known. That would be J.C. Pearson. J.C. Pearson also won a bracelet. In fact, the first set of brothers to win World Series of Poker bracelets were Puggy and J.C. Pearson. So J.C. Pearson, who was uh, Puggy's younger brother. He was younger by four years. He was born in 1933, and Puggy was born in 1929. There were seven other siblings in that family, and I don't believe any of the other seven played poker, or if they did, nobody knew who they were. So it was really just J.C. and Puggy, and most people who've been following poker over the years know about Puggy, but J.C. is not uh, nearly known as much. He's really only known by uh, either people who knew Puggy or Vegas grinders, because J.C. Pearson was a longtime Vegas grinder. Pearson had a bit of a different uh, life than Puggy, who was kind of a lifetime degenerate. Pearson, of course, had the same beginnings. He was a full brother of Puggy Pearson. He also grew up in rural Tennessee. He also was not well-educated. He originally went into uh, dairy, and he had a dairy business through the age of 42. And uh, presumably inspired by the success of his brother, who had won four bracelets uh, two years prior, in 1975, he moved to Vegas and decided to be a poker pro. Now, J.C., unlike Puggy, was a family man. He married his high school sweetheart. He stayed married to her his entire adult life until he just passed away at the age of 87 on January 18, 2021, which is the reason we're doing this segment. 
because uh, JC passed away last month and I just heard about it. So I decided I would do a little profile on JC for those of you that might be curious. So JC actually began his pro poker career at the age of 42. Now, 42 is not ancient, but to begin as a pro poker player at 42, it's pretty late to do so. But that's what he did. He gave up this dairy business. Which I don't know, maybe the dairy business was struggling, but it really seemed like he was just inspired by his older brother and all the success he was having and decided he wants to do it too. Between 1983 and 2001, J.C. played tournaments, and he actually had a pretty good record. It wasn't a spectacular record, but it was pretty good. In those uh, 19 years, he racked up $975,000 worth of tournament caches. Guess how many tournament caches I have, or how how many dollars worth of tournament caches I have. 974,000, so we're pretty similar except we played in different eras. I didn't play yet. I was playing in 01, but only cash, and I was kind of just getting going. I started playing in January of 01, and uh, JC played, uh, either played or cashed in his last tournament towards the end of 01. Maybe he played past 01, but he never cashed past the end of 01. But the 975000 was pretty impressive, considering that in those days there was no poker boom yet, so tournament fields are smaller, buy-ins are smaller, and, of course, the dollar was worth more back then. So even in 2001, $975,000 is worth a lot more than it is today. But it's worth way more compared to 1983. It's worth more than double than it was in 83. He mainly won his money in limit tournaments. He won a lot of limit hold'em tournaments, but also did well in Omaha tournaments and other limit poker tournaments. In fact, his bracelet in 1994 was at $2,500 Omaha 8 or better. As I said, that was the moment where they had the first pair of brothers to have won bracelets. And that stayed that way for another 14 years till Grant and Blair Hinkle did it in 08. Now, J.C. unfortunately inherited the same heart genes that Puggy had. So he had the same long-term heart issues. I don't know when they started, but just like Puggy, for a long time, at the end of his life, he had heart problems. He was one of these guys who had heart problems, and six months later he was dead. This is a guy who, for a long time, had problems with his heart, as did Puggy, and both of them survived for a long time with these issues. Obviously, it was hereditary. I don't know if the other siblings had these hereditary heart problems. Probably at least some of them did out of seven. It's possible all of them did. I'm not sure why JC quit tournament poker at the age of 68 at the end of 2001. That has never been clear to me because he continued to grind lower and lower mid-limits at the Orleans almost daily until very near the end of his life. I think COVID is what finally uh, stopped it. So up till COVID, he was there every day in his mid-80s grinding uh, the 08 game there. They had an 8-16 and a 15-30-08 that usually went at Orleans. And he was there almost daily doing it. So up until before COVID, if you showed up at the Orleans to play those Omaha games, the J.C. Pearson was right there. 
he had uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He was said to be close to all of them. His obituary describes him as an avid reader who went to night colleges as an adult to make up for the fact that he didn't have much of an education growing up in rural Tennessee in the 30s and 40s. Uh, I don't believe Puggy did that either. In fact, I'd be shocked if he did. Puggy wasn't the type who was interested in education. And J.C., he kind of, you know, he looked back and wished that he had more of an education and, and went to go make up for that night school. He was the last survivor of the nine children, which really makes me believe that probably there were some a lot of heart problems. Though he, he was 87, so I have to imagine some of them are older than him, and 87 is pretty old. Now, I'm not going to make him sound like a saint, because he wasn't. He had people who liked him and people who disliked him. And I got a sample of this when I posted about this on Facebook, because there was very little talk of uh, J.C. Pearson after he passed away. And he's not a major figure in poker. He was more of like an old man who was a daily grinder at the Orleans, and if he wasn't related to Puggy, nobody would care, except for people that played with him at the Orleans. But uh, I, I was still surprised, you know, given that he was related to Puggy and what a big figure Puggy was, that there was more discussion of him, or even much discussion of him even existing. But I posted on Facebook on Terry King's Action Sports Poker Group, which is kind of a replacement for Real Grinders. Real Grinders technically still exists, but obviously uh, it's taken a big hit because of Ray Davis's problems. So I posted about this on Action Sports Poker. And there's a lot of old-school poker players on there who know or knew JC, because these people go way back, including Terry King herself, Terry, in fact, posted a picture of him from the 80s, where he looks substantially different than he did today. Today, he just looks like a typical old man. Uh, in the 80s, he has kind of a mean look to him in this picture. Like He looks kind of like this nice, gentle old man in the picture I've seen of him like recently. <laughs> the 80s, he doesn't look nice at all. He doesn't look young. You know, of course, he's in his 50s, but he kind of looks like a gruff guy in his 50s or 60s. Terry King wrote, I'm lucky JC liked me, but he could be very abusive to others, R.I.P., Jason Stern wrote, dealt to him many times, not a fan, but may he still rest in peace. A person named uh, Mary Wallert wrote, me too, I never had any problems with JC, RIP. Me too, referring to that uh, he got along with her, so she never had any problems with him. Uh, Carrie Davis, another older man, said, I have a very unique history with JC. I got to know him in the early 70s before he was well-known, and he was very nice. I liked him, and I had no problem dealing to him. I don't remember seeing him act out. He was even okay when I was having serious battles with his brother, Puggy. After I quit dealing in the early 80s, I remember playing and seeing him be incredibly mean to dealers. When I talked to friends that were dealers, they told me some horrendous stories about him. Very strange, and the guy that appeared to get angrier and angrier as life went on. Then someone named... Uh, John Gerhardt wrote, Yes, I dealt to him in 2000. He was horrible. It was a small game, and he played every hand. Maybe I was spoiled from de dealing private games in Houston for five years. Marsha Wagoner, a longtime figure in the poker world. She's also older. I don't really know her, but I, I know some people who are friendly with her, and uh, 
I've heard good things about Marsha. She said, JC insulted me at the poker table, but it was his way of saying he liked me. Very strange guy. <laughs> and then uh, Terry King added, JC's wife, Joyce, was very sweet. Remember, she was uh, with him throughout all of his life, and she is still alive. She was with him till the very end. So uh, those are some perspectives on him. It looks like the consensus is that he wasn't very nice to dealers and that for whatever reason, he got to be a lot more uh, difficult as he got older. I don't know if something changed about him. I don't know if the heart problems maybe took a toll on him and made him more frustrated. But whatever it was, uh, people seem to believe that he worsened his behavior toward dealers over time. It, it looks like, though, it's mainly dealers who had the issue with him, which is not an excuse. Like You should never mistreat dealers. You should always treat dealers well and respectfully. And the only reason to not treat a dealer respectfully is if they're not respectful to you or if they're really, really out to lunch with their job, where they're not trying. I, I don't mean where they make some error. I'm talking about where if they're really just not paying attention and consistently doing a poor job, then you can say something. And uh, also, if they are rude to you first, you definitely can say something. And I've had that before. I've had dealers sometimes get rude with me. Not often. Like it, Usually, I have a very cordial interaction with dealers. But uh, I've had a few that made some kind of nasty comment to me at some point or another, and then I'll, I'll say something back. I'm not going to tolerate that. But at the same time, I have never and will never be abusive towards dealers when I'm losing. I don't blame them if I get bad luck. I don't blame them if I take bad beats. I don't blame them if they deal me set under set and I lose a lot of money. That is just the nature of poker, and it is not the dealer's fault. And you're a moron if you think it's the dealer's fault and if you blame the dealer. And some people are very superstitious in poker and really do think some dealers are controlling the cards in some way to make them lose. Not even like, I don't even know how they think the dealers are doing it. They don't think the dealers are fixing the game or cheating in any way. They just kind of think that it's like an unlucky dealer that's just somehow causing them to lose or maybe is wishing for them to lose and they get bad cards. It's really, really strange. So I, I don't know what to say with what, what, where these people's minds even are. They're, they're probably not even thinking rationally. They're just mad they're losing. I mean, I'll get in a bad mood when I'm losing like anyone else, but I don't abuse people. You can sometimes see that I look kind of pissed off, but I don't ever lash out at anybody. You just kind of, if I'm losing, you can just kind of see on my face that I'm unhappy. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't want to abuse anyone, dealers or other players. And if you ask anyone who's played with me, they'll tell you. They'll tell you I'm not nasty to anyone and that I don't get... Uh, to be a jerk to people and I'm losing, especially not the dealer. So I'm not making an excuse for that, though it does look like if you were just another player, then uh, he wasn't as likely to give you a hard time, which which does make sense why some of these people who are more players than dealers said they got along with him. Though Terry King was also a dealer. She was both a player and a dealer, depending at different times of her life. But, like, there's nobody... In this Facebook thread, who's saying, "Oh no, no, no! I've I've never seen him be nasty to dealers. Like I don't know what you guys are talking about." Like uh, some people are like, "Oh, he's been, always been nice to me," but like nobody's saying, "No, I've never seen him be a jerk to anybody." 
So it looks like he and Puggy had some similarities. Puggy was known to be horrible to dealers. So he definitely was not a saint. He was somewhat different than Puggy, though, in some ways. You know, he was a family man. He did have the same wife since he was uh, right out of high school. And it was the girl he dated in high school. And he was close with his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and he had some value for education because he went back and got a night education, which he didn't really need. He just did it for his own enrichment because he probably felt like he lost out on not being educated as a kid. So these are admirable things about him, but I'm sure he did mistreat a lot of people. So sounds like a flawed guy to me. But in any case, he has passed away at the age of 87. And I know there were some people that liked him. In fact, the person who brought the story to me that he passed away was someone who liked him. So uh, rest in peace, J.C. Pearson. And you will not hear about any more Pearsons in poker unless... uh, his descendants play. I don't think Puggy had any kids. If he does, I don't think they play. So I think that might be it. All right. I'm going to take a break here. And uh, when we return, we will do more. Eric Benzamokin texted me tonight, and he said, do you need additional money for the free roll? And I said, let me get back to you. And then... Uh, I think I never got back to him. (laughs) I thought I did, and I just realized I didn't, and that was kind of rude. I apologize for that. I guess the good news is for him that he didn't have to give any money for the free roll. Though he never had to. He was offering it. But bottom line is, uh, I actually got $51 from other sources. I looked at all the sources that had donated, and it happened to have added up to uh, $51, between the $25 in honor of Robert Gray and Reno's 11 and Divewar Dave's 15. So we didn't need it. So I meant to tell Eric he could keep his money this week, but I forgot. But I guess I'll text him uh, while I'm taking this break and playing his ad that I'm apologizing for not responding, but that we didn't need it. But he did offer it. And uh, I appreciate his generosity to this site. Hopefully we will prevail in court on March 18th. I think the case speaks for itself. You never know what happens in court, but I'm feeling good about it. Like, I'm not even worried. I'm not saying I'm 100% sure, but like I'm not even that worried because it looks like such a good case and Eric did such a good job. And because it looks like Mike will probably be appearing without an attorney or maybe even not appearing at all. That'll be on the 18th. I'll definitely give you guys the update after that occurs. In fact, I'll give you the update if I have it as to what occurred at the uh, March 16th hearing for Veronica. In the meantime, if you have uh, a legal matter that you'd like to discuss with Eric, especially if you're in California or you have a case that would be heard in federal court, or if you need arbitration or mediation, then contact Eric, and he does a lot of different things and does them well. If you need to declare bankruptcy in California, or you have any friends or family that need to, he's a good one to contact for that. I know he's done a number of those for people. Anyway, uh, you'll hear his contact information on the ad, 
And I will be back shortly, and we will do the rest of the show. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. We are back. Let's move on here to the next topic we have on our agenda. I want to talk about a little uh, poker game I played at back in 2012 and would probably had some far-reaching results, not for me, but for somebody else in the game. So I was at the win just to play a little blackjack. I decided to stop trying to play blackjack at the win quite some time ago because there's just a lot of heat in these games. I was never backed off or I was never banned from the game, but I just noticed they were watching like a hawk when I was playing and every time I had a pretty short session before I felt uncomfortable and got out of there. I never seemed to win or lose a lot there either. I was always kind of having like evenish sessions over there playing blackjack. But one of my uh, later blackjack sessions later meaning as far as uh, in time before I quit. I was done, and I was on my way out, and I walked by the poker room. Now, the win poker room for quite some time had not any kind of uh, middle or higher stakes limit hold'em games anymore. They did at one point in the 2000s when they first opened, but those disappeared pretty quickly. So I never expect to see any limit hold'em over there. 
but I happened to be walking by and I noticed the top section had some games going. So just in case, I walked up to the top section and took a look at what was going. And shockingly, there was a 5100 Limit Hold'em game going that had only three people playing. I also didn't recognize anybody in the game, which was good. That meant these were not likely pros and that it's very possible it was three amateurs playing 5100 Limit Hold'em. Well, it turned out that's exactly what it was. And this was a dream find for me. It was at the win where people weren't expecting to find that game, and they probably weren't going to know about it. And there were three people on the table who were not good players. None of them were any good. I mean, it, it ranged from, like, horrible to kind of, like, a... The best of the three was kind of like, I'd say, between bad and okay. <laughs> and uh, So it's kind of like from below average to terrible, the skill level of the three players there at 5,100 limit hold'em. How it got going in the first place, I don't know. So I took a seat there and thought to myself, I am not leaving unless this game either breaks or the place catches on fire. Otherwise, I'm sticking here for as long as this goes. So I played, and not only were the players as bad as I had thought they were, but I also was running pretty well. So I was getting a combination of good luck, and the competition sucked big time. I've said before that the hallmark of a good game in poker is not the presence of fish, it's the absence of pros. When there's an absence of good players in the game and you are easily the best player at the table, that's really the main thing that matters. Having players at the table who are really bad, of course, is nice too, but it's not essential. What's most essential is that uh, you are substantially better than everybody. So if you're good and everybody else at the table is average, you have a big edge. You have a lot better edge in that situation than if you're good, if there's a few people who are bad, if there's a few people who are average, and a few other very good players. You don't want that. You really want to be the one and only good player at the table. So that's what I had there, plus the players were bad. Plus I was running fairly well. So I was running up money there very quickly. By the end, I ended up winning $15,000 in that game, which at 5,100 limit hold'em live is not very easy to do. If you think about it, that's uh, that was 150 or not, sorry, there was 300 big blinds. Because remember, 50, 100 is not 50, 100 big blinds. That's a, it's not 50 small blind, 100 big blind. It is actually 25 small blind, 50 big blind. And the 100 is referring to the betting on the turn you'll be doing, on the turn in the river. So I actually won 300 big blinds in that game, which to this day remains my all-time live one-session record in number of big blinds won in Limit Hold'em. I've never done better than that. I've never won 300 big blinds playing Limit Hold'em in one session live. Online, I've done better than that, but that's because live, you can play a lot more hands a lot more quickly, and you can do it at more than one table at once. If you're wondering what my all-time best in online was, this is actually on Cake Poker, when I won $76,000 over one weekend playing a single table of 5,100. Now, it was over one weekend, not over one session. 
But all at a single table of 5,100, I won $76,000 over one weekend. That was pretty insane. That was uh, substantially more than a 1,000 big blinds. But that was online, and that was over a period of days. This was live over a period of one day. Towards the end of that session, somehow some better players started to find it. First, an okayish player found it. Some guy who was kind of more of just a gambler, but he also played Limit Hold'em sometimes. And he was by no means a pro, but he wasn't bad. So he was kind of okay. So he became the new second best player at the table. And then some pros found it. I don't know how, but guys I knew, and they sat down. So that worsened the game, and then eventually the fish left, and I actually left the game before it was over. I was happy with my 15000 I was tired, and I left. Well, while I was there, one of those pros who showed up toward the end had a question for me. He said, Todd, I trust you. I trust your advice. I know you're responsible. I know you have a good feel for these things. He wasn't my friend, by the way. This is not a friend of mine. This is an acquaintance. But he said to me, I have a thousand Bitcoin. What should I do with them? This guy was not a Bitcoin enthusiast. He had won them gambling. So he said to me that uh, he wanted to know what to do with these thousand Bitcoin. Now, this is back in 2012. I think Bitcoin was around 50 bucks at this time. And he asked, should I get rid of them? Should I have keep some of them? Should I just hold them? What do you think of Bitcoin, he asked me. And I said, Bitcoin is a cute little science project. It's nothing more than that. It's interesting, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to have much of a practical application. It has gone up from $5 when I first found it, and it was a few cents initially, or I think like a fraction of a cent initially. But even when I found it, it was $5. And yeah, it's gone up substantially since then, I told him. But it's not going to get much higher. It's going to crash down. This player was kind of a degenerate, someone who didn't have a lot of money, uh, a lot. Like, he would win a lot of money and then lose it all back very fast. This is somebody who had a hard time holding on to money. So it's not like this is a guy who could uh, just sit on tens of thousands of dollars and not have it impact him. This was really a lot of his bankroll. So he was wondering, maybe he should sit on them, maybe it'll go up. And I said, well, it could, but it's going to crash down at any time, and that's going to be it. Once people really come to the conclusion that there's not much use for these things at this time, and that it's not going to ever have widespread usage because it's too complicated for the average person, it's going to crash, and that's going to be the end of it. So my advice to you, since you need the money, since... It's not something you can just sit on and use other monies, and you could really use this money for your poker bankroll. My advice to you is to sell it. He says, you really think so? I said, yes. He says, okay. That's what I'll do then. He asked the other guy at the table, you know, that guy who showed up who was kind of the, uh, the one who I said was kind of okay, kind of like it's just a gambler type. And that guy agreed. That guy, he said that he didn't think it had much of a future, and yeah, he agreed the guy should sell it. Anyway, this player sold his 1,000 Bitcoin. Now, to be fair, 
he probably would have either lost these Bitcoin or sold them a long time ago. But had he kept those Bitcoin, had he just held on to them and done nothing and held back from any temptation to sell it as it rose and fell, rose and fell, then presently those would be worth... No, not quite that, but a hell of a lot more than one million dollars. They'd be worth fifty six point eight million dollars today. Actually, fifty six point nine million. Right at this moment, Bitcoin has just hit fifty six thousand nine hundred each. Which means that a thousand Bitcoin is worth fifty six point nine million dollars. <laughs> now it would have taken some balls to hold on to a thousand Bitcoin all this time. Especially you see it rise, you see it fall, and you never know if it's gonna hit the bottom. And that's the problem. When is the right time to cash out? Is now the right time to cash out? Maybe now is not the right time. Maybe it's going to go to 100. Maybe it'll go above 100. So let's say you had 1,000 Bitcoin. What would you do right now? Would you just sell it and be happy with the $56.9 million that obviously you could uh, live very, very well on for the rest of your life? And when I say very, very well, I mean very, very well. And have plenty of money to leave your kids as well really be set for life by a wide margin? Or would you risk it and maybe have this turn into a hundred million? Or maybe think it's moving towards a hundred million, so why not let it at least get close and then bail out at ninety something million? Should you do that? It's not a trivial decision because if you just do nothing and watch it crash then you'll think, I could have had $56 million. Why was I so greedy? So this has happened many times as Bitcoin rose. Remember, it rose to about 1200 Then it crashed down. Then it rose again, almost to 20000 and crashed way down and looked like it was headed towards zero. It never got near zero, but it went all the way back down to 3000 and looked like it was going to go even further. Then it went up to... 20k and crashed again. Then it went up to 20k and crashed a second time. Not as much, but it did did have many crashes recently when it got to 20k again for the first time since 2017. And then the third time it busted through and it just kept on going. Now it's all the way at uh, 56. Crazy. Who would have predicted that? But if you could have closed your eyes to that and just let it sit, that's where you'd be right now with just a thousand Bitcoin. That is pretty nuts. By the way, you're probably thinking of MyCon as I say this, and I believe MyCon bailed out of Bitcoin and has only Bitcoin cash. That's just my assumption. I have no inside information on this, just from what I have observed. Bitcoin cash has gone up too, but not anywhere to this extent. Had Mikon sat on what he had at one point, he could be a billionaire. But he's not. I can tell you he's not a billionaire. 
That would be pretty amazing, though, if that happened, huh? <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry to this guy that I gave him this advice. I'm not going to say who it is. Some of you know this person, but I'm not going to say who it is. But it, it was a poker player who sat down at the win and played in that game. And it was someone who uh, I knew, but was not my close friend. Someone just, I knew him, he knew me, he had his impression of me, he had a feeling that I would be a good one to ask about this. I guess I was not. I guess I was a bad one to ask. It's too bad it wasn't my con in the game. Maybe this guy would have $56 million today. But probably not, knowing him. This guy's a degenerate. I think he would have chunked it off, or sold it, or sell it to chunk it off, most likely. The guy's a good player, he's just not the best with money. That's not going to be a lot of hints, by the way. <laughs> That's, that describes a ton of people in poker. Good player, but bad with money. A degenerate. Like, how many people could you say that about? Pretty much most people in poker who became prominent at one point. Okay, let's talk about Las Vegas, some Las Vegas news. I'm sure Brandon would be like, he'd like to be on the show right now, but I believe Brandon is in dreamland. So we're going to have to do this part without him. I held this part towards the second half of the show, just in case Brandon showed up. But four Las Vegas hotels have decided to end their policy of midweek shutdown, and they're going to be back to being open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Three of them are MGM properties. The Mandalay Bay... The Park MGM, a.k.a. Monte Carlo, and the Mirage. They halted midweek operations for those those hotels during the uh, season between November through the present. They decided that they just uh, were not getting enough interest staying there midweek in non-holiday periods. So they shut them down. It was actually cheaper to just completely shut them down than to take what few reservations they were getting. However, they are reopening because the governor announced that at the start of May, casinos will be able to operate at full capacity. And nightclubs and day clubs will be able to reopen. Now, Safety measures such as mandatory masking and social distancing will stay in place, at least for now. But at the beginning of May, those changes will be made. And this has uh, made uh, MGM reevaluate what they want to do with these properties. There's also going to be some other changes coming up in the... Uh, coming weeks and months that led to this. Starting February 15th, and that's of course already occurred six days ago, casinos will be allowed to operate at 35% capacity compared to 25% capacity, and on March 15th that'll go to 50%. So given all of this, they've decided they are going to reopen the hotels. Now of course, 
the changes that are happening on March 15th and that already happened on the 15th of February, those don't affect the hotel directly because these are casino rules. But the casino and hotel are, of course, related. The more people you can have in the casino, the more people are going to want to stay at the hotels. It is also likely that they are assuming that there's going to be more of an influx of people coming back to Vegas now that a lot of them can, as more and more people are getting vaccinated every day. And when you get vaccinated, you have to wait a period of time and then get a second shot, and then you have to wait another two weeks, and then you are considered fully vaccinated. And by most uh, assumptions and research, you are pretty much protected from the coronavirus. You're not expected to get any kind of serious case of the coronavirus once you have been vaccinated with both shots and waited the two weeks after that, that it's said to be uh, 90-plus percent effective at preventing coronavirus symptoms and that those who do get symptoms tend to have them be pretty mild, even those who are in higher-risk groups. So the vaccines are working well so far. They have been a success so far. The the administration of them and the distribution of them has not been a success. That's been a mess. But the vaccines themselves have uh, been doing very well and are doing far better than anyone expected last year. So that's very good news. And casinos are counting on people to be more brave about going out to casinos and playing there and wanting to visit Vegas. So in anticipation of that, they are opening these up again. The Now, I mentioned three of them are MGM properties. The fourth one is going to be the Palazzo. Or sorry, it's not the Palazzo. It's uh, Planet Hollywood. I got that wrong. Planet Hollywood is going to also do the same thing. They're going to reve- they're going to go back to full hours starting February 25th. That was one of the first properties to have weekend only hotel operation, but now they're going to return. The Palazzo, which I got confused for a second, was opening up again. They actually are going to remain uh, shut down. And uh, only the high-end suites at the Palazzo are currently uh, taking reservations. Everything else is completely closed in the Palazzo Hotel, and the casino is only open uh, to a limited basis. The Wynn, which has the Wynn and the Encore, they close both the hotel and casino operations during the week. So they open up at 2 p.m. every Thursday, and they close at noon every Monday. We've reported that before on this show. They have not announced any changes to that, so that's going to stay the situation. So you cannot go to the Win or the Encore between noon on Monday and 2 p.m. on Thursday every week. And that's going to stay the case for a while. However... I have to imagine that's going to change soon once they notice that there are more people coming to Vegas. Vegas should see improvements in their visitation numbers, not just as people get vaccinated, but also as coronavirus numbers fall, which they have been in the past month and a half since peaking in early January. There has been a drop, not all related to the vaccine. A lot of that just seems to be happening on its own because of uh, what I like to call partial herd immunity, where areas that are hit very hard, basically the virus spreads to the most vulnerable, the ones most likely to catch it. 
and then it really has nowhere to go, so the numbers go way down, at least for a while. So that seems to be happening in a lot of the country, and the numbers have dropped significantly since the terrible peak. I think it was on January 7th. So that and the vaccine, which is going to have more and more effect as more people get it. It's still a relatively small percentage of the country has been vaccinated, but as that grows, then we will see the effects of that as well. Provided this keeps up, people will feel more confident about going to Vegas, and they will have more of a reason to go as more things reopen, like day clubs and nightclubs and restaurants and shows at the moment are not reopening, but I have to imagine that's going to happen soon as well. Shows are going to be the hardest thing to reopen because if you think about it, you have a bunch of people together in an indoor theater. That's exactly what you don't want. That's like got all the bad elements of COVID danger, indoors and a lot of people. I assume when they do reopen, it will be kind of a social distancing reopening where everybody is sitting more than six feet apart. Then they'll probably do the usual performance of the sanitizing, and that's not going to mean much, then they will probably have everybody wearing masks in there. I really don't have any desire to return to a masking Vegas situation. It just doesn't seem fun to me. I just don't really have the desire to do it. We've talked about it before here. I just, I don't want to. It just doesn't seem like something that's going to be enjoyable. If I have a purpose for going there, fine. But if it's just to visit Vegas, as much as I miss being there, and keep in mind, I have not been to Las Vegas uh, very much at all in the past year and a half. I was there for the Super Bowl weekend, and that was it. And not of 2021, of 2020. Since July 2019, when I busted the main event and left, I've been to Vegas for those two days, and that was it. I do miss it, but I miss the 2019 Vegas. I don't miss the current incarnation of Vegas. And I don't have that much of a desire to go there and wear a mask everywhere. And again, I'm not an anti-masker. I'm just someone who doesn't find masks comfortable. I'd rather just stay home and not wear one. So it's going to be a while till they ease the masking restrictions Some of that is justified. Some of it is not justified, in my opinion. And I'll get to that later in the show. I think it's highly likely I will not play the 2021 World Series. I know it was suggested by Brandon and Jeannie that I come during the summer, when presumably I'll be vaccinated by then, and just kind of hang out in the hotel room and play some online WSOP events. Which I won't say is impossible. There's a chance I'll want to do that. Especially if you have some limit hold'em and mix game events and 08 events and things like that. I might have the desire to do that. Also, so I can see people in Vegas that I'm friendly with that I haven't seen in a long time, including uh, Brandon and Jeannie. So, um, I would like to uh, visit, but... I will say there's some elements of it that aren't appealing because of the masking. Like, I don't mind wearing a mask for a short time, but 
I don't want to go out recreationally and wear masks. Like, if I have to go somewhere where a mask is required, then fine. But I don't want to wear one somewhere that I don't have to be. And a casino is a place I don't have to be. So I'm not going to be a jerk and refuse to wear it. I'm just not going to go. All right, so let's move on. The Cosmopolitan had a situation that was scary, and it didn't have to do with COVID. It had to do with a fire that broke out on the 51st floor of the hotel. I have been in the Cosmopolitan many times. I'm talking about the hotel, not the casino. I've been in the casino, too, but I have stayed in the hotel many times. It is a pretty unique place because it was built originally to be condos. There's a lot of units there that were supposed to be studio condos with balconies. And it turned out that they went with it being a hotel instead. There's a lot of controversy about that, by the way. But nevertheless, how many Vegas hotels do you know that have a balcony? And I'm not talking about large suites or anything like that. I'm talking about regular hotel rooms in Vegas. How many have a balcony? I bet you'll find very few. And that's because they eliminated balconies decades ago when gamblers were jumping off of them to commit suicide after losing massive amounts of money. So they've made it tougher to do that by not allowing access to balconies and properties which already had balconies, most of which are gone now, and not building balconies on new properties. The Cosmo had balconies because they weren't supposed to be hotel rooms. They were supposed to be condos. So there are accessible balconies on at the Cosmo. I don't know if every room has them, but I know that uh, the rooms I've stayed in have all had balconies. And some of them have a very nice view of the Strip. In fact, I like the balconies that are very high up, that are facing the Bellagio Fountains, which are pretty close, and also face the Strip looking north. And it's a very, very nice view because you're very high up. You're a lot higher than like you would be at Caesars. They're very tall buildings. So you're very high up. You have a very interesting view of the fountains from way up there. And a very nice view of the Vegas lights at night. It's a really impressive view. And that was one of the things I enjoyed about staying there. And I always made sure to get a room like that in the correct tower and facing the correct direction. But I did think about the fact that these were very tall buildings. And I did always think about, well, not always, but I sometimes thought about, like, I really hope there's not a fire here because that could be a problem. Well, there was. Not while I was staying there. But there was a fire on Valentine's Day. Actually, maybe it wasn't Valentine's Day. Maybe it was, uh, no, it was the day before Valentine's Day. It was, it was on, uh, Saturday the 13th. There was a fire at the Cosmo. So a fire broke out shortly before 8 p.m. on the 51st floor of one of the Cosmo Towers. When firefighters arrived, They found smoke in the hallway and fire on a balcony. They evacuated the entire building and firefighters were able to put out the flames to where they did not spread to other floors. 
quote, multiple people were taken to Sunrise Hospital and Medical Center with minor injuries. It's not clear what the minor injuries were, but there were a number of people that had to go to the hospital because of this fire. I don't know if they were burned. I don't know if they got smoke, but whatever it was, it's, it's not very serious, but enough to be admitted to the hospital. The cause of the fire is not known. However, uh, I, I have my guesses here. You probably do too. I think some idiot accidentally set fire to the balcony. <laughs> I think someone was probably smoking on the balcony and dropped a cigarette and it caught on something and created a fire. Then the fire got out of control and they couldn't stop it. They could just dump water on it. Probably grew too fast. And uh, then smoke moved into the hallway. Now, I don't know how only the balcony was on fire and it didn't get into the room. Maybe they shut the door or something. But then how did the smoke get to the hallway? But somehow the smoke got into the hallway of the 51st floor and uh, a balcony, but not the room, was on fire. So fortunately, firefighters got there quickly enough to uh, put out that fire. The problem that could have occurred, the fact that this would have been a tough fire to fight if it had gotten a lot more out of control than it did, if it hadn't been mostly confined to that balcony. Because it's on the 51st floor the ladders from the fire truck cannot even get close to going that high. At least I don't think they can. That's very high, 50, 51 floors. It's probably like 500 feet or more. They would have had a very hard time. They would have actually had to go up into the building and maybe they could try using uh, helicopters, but that's the access would have been tough. And then it could have spread to other floors, and the whole thing could have been a gigantic mess. People know a lot more now about dealing with fires than they did in 1980 when that disastrous MGM fire happened that killed 80 people. But still, uh, while I probably imagine that we're not going to have deaths in the elevator like the MGM had, that people will know not to take that, and maybe the elevator is automatically shut down, still... I could really see a problem here between people just not knowing it's happening until it's too late and smoke being everywhere to people feel they can't even get to the stairways. And I know there's some safety features now that weren't there before, pretty much thanks to the MGM fire that changed fire codes everywhere. And there are sprinklers that could put out fires quickly, things like that. Maybe the reason that the balcony was on fire and the room wasn't was because maybe the sprinklers did their job in the room. And there's no sprinkler in the balcony. I don't know. But if it was a fire that got out of control that the sprinklers did not stop, this would have been a tough one to fight. And people may have had a hard time getting out of there because of the smoke. If the smoke is not terrible, then you can just go to the stairwell and go down the stairs. It's going to take a while from the 51st floor, but you can do it. But if the smoke is bad enough, there's the problem of getting there. There's also the potential problem that the stairwell will get jammed with people and everybody will be moving very slowly. That would be a nightmare, too, trying to get down. And then, and then smoke gets into the stairwell and you're just trapped between all these people who are trying to move. 
that would be a really helpless and awful feeling. Even if you get out of it, it would be a terrible feeling that I'm sure would be uh, causing uh, PTSD for life. Fortunately, none of that occurred. Fortunately, the firefighters got there quickly enough to take care of this matter and only minor injuries resulted from the thing. To my knowledge, nobody was arrested regarding the fire, nor is it believed that this is arson. Just looks like some sort of accidental fire, and my guess is someone on the balcony was just stupid. The Cosmo has not made any claims that they are going to be changing anything regarding access to the balcony over this fire. It was just one of these things that happened, and I think because there was not a tremendous problem from it, I think it's just going to be something that gets by and isn't thought of much without any kind of any kind of consequence. I don't believe there's any kind of structural damage to the Cosmo. Maybe that one room's going to be shut down while they're repairing the balcony, but I have to imagine the rest of the 51st floor will still be used again. The only possibility is maybe it's closed down while they get uh, any kind of smoke damage out of there. Maybe, maybe they have to replace some things because of uh, the smoke smell. But good to see that ended out okay. Well, I'll tell you who ended out okay. And that was uh, employees of the Tropicana Atlantic City who got a very, very, very nice tip from a generous man who hit a $1.1 million jackpot. So here's what happened. This is... Uh, reported, by the way, in the Eastern U.S. Casinos Forum of VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is also my forum, in case you don't know. You can go to Twitter and follow at VegasCasinoTalk, and you can go to VegasCasinoTalk.com and sign up for an account. That is my other forum. Didn't start out as my forum, but I was... uh, Basically, given this forum by someone who didn't want to run it anymore, it had a different name at that time. I, I'm the one who came up with the Vegas Casino Talk name and bought that domain, which was not taken by anybody at the time. But uh, I basically took over an existing forum and changed a few things, but kept all the old material and uh, continued running it because I didn't want that forum to go down and I had been part of it. So now it's mine. Anyway... Uh, on Vegas Casino Talk, you'll find in the Eastern U.S. and non-U.S. casinos section, there's a thread called Dude Hits $1.1 Million Jackpot on Table Game at Trop, Tips $50,000, and that is exactly what happened. At first, I thought this was at a video poker machine. It talked about it first in these articles I was reading that, it was, that he won it at poker, which I knew he didn't win it at an actual poker game. I thought they meant video poker, but no. It was actually on a uh, some kind of table game with a progressive poker award. It was an older guy named Frank Nagy. I see a picture of him here. Don't know how old he is, but looks substantially older than I am, and I'm not a youngster myself. And he won a total of uh, $1,105,757.10. the, he's sitting in front of a machine that says four-card poker, and I see a jackpot on the screen of 228000 which is not what he won. He won $1.1 million. But it's possible it was that game, and that was what the jackpot reset itself to. 
But it's it's important to know this is not poker. This is a table game kind of based on poker, similar to like uh, Ultimate Texas Hold'em and other games like that. So you hear that, oh, he won $1.1 million in poker. No, he didn't. And it wasn't video poker either. This was some kind of uh, side bet you could place, I believe. And it was a $5 bet that hit something very rare to win the progressive jackpot of about $1.1 million. Again, this happened at uh, Tropicana Atlantic City which is currently in the Caesars portfolio, because if you remember, Caesars and El Dorado had their merger. So this was once an El Dorado property, but Caesars now owns it because of that merger. So it was Caesars who made this announcement. Steve Callender, regional president of Caesars Atlantic City property, said Tropicana was thrilled to celebrate this huge win with one of our longtime customers. This was the biggest win on these progressive poker table games in Caesars Entertainment history, according to uh, Noel Stevenson, who's a spokesman for Caesars Entertainment. So the last time this happened when it was in uh, August 2019, but the jackpot was not as much. This is something referred to as a mega jackpot, M-E-G-A in all caps. And it said, to be eligible, guests have to try their luck on a progressive game at Tropicana, Caesars Atlantic City, Harris Atlantic City, including four-card poker, Let It Ride, three-card poker, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, Mississippi Stud, and Texas Hold'em Poker. And these are all in the casino's table game section. Again, Texas Hold'em Poker is not what you think it is. That's uh, some kind of table game they have there. It's not just sitting down at a regular poker game. The bigger story here is the fact that this guy tipped $50,000 to the staff, which is pretty amazing. First of all, $50,000 is close to 5% of his prize. You may say, oh, 5%, that's not much. Well, it is. I mean, it's, it is when the, when the prize is $1.1 million. So you may say, well, all right, this is an older guy. Maybe he didn't have a lot of people to leave it to. Maybe he didn't have anybody to leave it to. Maybe he just wanted to be generous. Or maybe he just felt appreciative that he won this much, and he's happy to share some of it with people who happen to be dealing to him when he won it. I don't know who he gave it to. I don't know if it was just his dealer. I don't know if this was uh, to the dealer and the pit boss around. I don't know if this is what... Uh, it does get shared, though. These are tip These are tip pools. At least I think they're tip pools over there in, in Atlantic City. So... Uh, it it kind of seems like this just went to the TROP employees when it was all said and done. But that was the tip he left to quote the dealers on shift. What I want to talk about here is not so much about the fact that he won because, like, okay, that's good, but this happens all the time where people win million-plus-dollar jackpots at casinos. I wouldn't be reporting that on here. It would be quite boring. That's just a mathematical fact that's going to happen. It's about the tip itself. The tip of $50,000 may sound like it's reasonable. You know, a big win means a big tip, right? You may think about when you have a much smaller win, that you may tip something like 5% if you win a big hand. And then poker players are expected to tip 3% when they cash at a tournament, and sometimes there's an auto tip taken out, which is approximately 3%. So then why is 5% a big deal? 
After all, poker players who win in real poker tournaments are usually tipping 3%. And they will sometimes win tournaments of a million or more. I'm talking about the top prize. So why is this a big deal? Well, there is no standard for tipping in table games and machines. When you're playing regular casino games, there it's expected you tip, but it's not something that is really defined of what is the right tip and what isn't the right tip. And there's always been a lot of awkwardness surrounding that. The way tipping began in casinos was not because the dealers were perceived to be working for minimum wage and people were trying to help them out. That's the justification today, but not back when tipping started many decades ago. Tipping started decades ago because of superstition. People felt that if they tipped the dealer, the dealer would give them better cards. Not that the dealer was any kind of card mechanic who could make better cards come out through any kind of manipulation, but just that it would give them good karma. You, you tip the dealer, the dealer would become lucky. It's kind of the reverse of the commerce players who abuse the dealers because they get bad cards. I'm talking here about people who are giving tips to dealers for good cards. Or some people feel in some way the dealers can control it, even if they're not actually doing it by setting up the deck in that way, but that just somehow so some dealers are lucky and some are unlucky. Uh, the problem is that over the years, this became justification for casinos to pay dealers minimum wage because the thinking was if they're going to get a lot of tips, they're making good money anyway. So why should we pay them any more than a minimum wage-based salary? You may say, okay, well, that makes sense, right? Well, for the casinos, sure. But the problem is it really puts the burden on the casino patrons to pay most of the salaries of the dealers. And that kind of sucks because these casino patrons are already playing negative expectation games. It's one thing if you're a winning player and you're tipping out a certain percentage of your profits to the dealers who are dealing to you. This is a situation where almost all gamblers in casinos are negative expectation gamblers who lose money in the long run. So even if they have temporary blips where they're winning money, um, when they're tipping you, they're actually tipping you money that they should be keeping so they can lose less. I've always brought up the example, if you lose, you know, let's say 20000 straight, and then you hit some kind of big hand or some kind of jackpot for 10000 all in the same session, you're down 10000 yet you're expected to tip generously as if the $10,000 win is something huge. And unfortunately, some dealers see it this way. Some dealers see it like, hey, this guy just won 10000 not this guy just won 10000 back of a bunch of money he's down that's way more than 10000 They just say, hey, look at all the money this guy won and look at how little I work for. Give me money. Another problem I have is that a lot of dealers actually make pretty decent money for what they're doing. And then the question becomes, how much should they be making? I mean, it'd be great if we could all make a million dollars a year, but in reality, that's not uh, something that could really happen. So what is the proper salary for dealers? Let's say there was no tipping and dealers got paid commensurate for the job they're doing. What would that amount be? I don't know what it would be, but it wouldn't be like a hundred grand. I can tell you that. It's still mostly an unskilled job. It's not a completely unskilled job because you do have to learn how to do it. And you have to have the physical dexterity to do it. And there's other 
minor skills you need to have to do it, but it's not like something you have to go to four years of, of college for and get an advanced degree or go through a, a long apprenticeship to learn how to do it. It's, it's one of these things that's not that hard to learn or perform for the average person. So for that reason, uh, it, it shouldn't be paid at a premium rate. It's it's one of these jobs that uh, that's mostly an unskilled job. And I'm not trying to put dealers down. I know there's dealers who listen to the show, and, and I hope they make a lot of money. And I don't begrudge them for making whatever they do. And if you can get a position where you make a lot of money, that's great for you. And I'm very happy for you. But I'm just talking about, you know, if you look at it honestly, what it's fair for dealers to make. Now, if they're making the money through tips, which they are, then you can say, okay, well, this is what people are tipping. And if the dealers get uh, those tips, then that's the way it is. And I agree. But the problem comes when there's entitlement. If you happen to get good tips or the entire pool of dealers that shares the tips gets good tips and they make a lot of money, that's great. And I'm not going to criticize that. What I will criticize are the dealers who feel they are entitled to these tips. Even if they do a bad job, some feel they're entitled to these tips. And I especially am bothered by dealers who feel they are entitled to a certain percentage of a jackpot that's hit. Now, this doesn't apply to poker dealers because poker dealers don't deal jackpots. Regular poker, there are no jackpots. There's just people basically trading money back and forth at the table trying to beat each other, and then a rake is taken. So there, there are no jackpots in poker. Occasionally a bad beat jackpot, but uh, aside from that, there's no jackpots in poker. And even at tournaments, they're not really jackpot situations. Tournaments are situations where certain people win a lot, certain people win a little, and most people win nothing and, and in fact, lose. So... I'm talking about casino dealers here, not poker dealers. But casino dealers, and I, and I know one personally, not someone who listens to this show or posts on my forum, but I know someone personally who's a casino dealer who has complained to me about the tips she gets. And she actually, and she works at a place where they keep their own tips, by the way. This is not a Vegas dealer. So this dealer has complained to me, oh, such and such person hit such and such uh, jackpot at my table, and, and he only gave me $100. And I go, what? But you got a hundred dollar tip. That's good. No, no, no. He just, you know, he hit ten thousand dollars. Why is he giving me a hundred? He can afford to give me more. And I said, no, he really can't. He's he's a losing player. How's he a losing player if he hit ten thousand? Because that's he hardly ever hits ten thousand. He usually loses. I guarantee he's overall a loser. I doubt this is his first day playing. I doubt this is his first week or month playing. So I tried to explain to her that this guy is losing money gambling. And that on a day when he happens to not lose money and win some of it back what he's down, that doesn't make her entitled to his money. And that she shouldn't complain he gave her $100. But that is the entitled attitude that some dealers have. And that's a problem. So what do you do when you hit a jackpot like $1.1 million? You may say, well, okay, the $50,000 tip, that sounds excessive, but... What if you give a tip of of one thousand, of two thousand? What? Why don't you just do that if you think that's right? Well, here's the problem. Would you want to tip the dealers, let's say a thousand dollars on a one point one million dollar win, if after you do so, all the dealers grumble behind your back that you're a cheap asshole? If that's going to be their reaction, would you want to tip at all? Or would you rather give them zero? Because honestly, 
if any tip I leave is going to be scoffed at or there's going to be shit talked about me given what I left, then I'd rather that I give them... Zero point zero. So basically, either appreciate my tip, you don't have to kiss my ass or repeatedly say thank you, but if you're going to hate me for it, if you're going to think I'm a jerk, if you're going to look down on me for it, then I don't want to give you anything. So that's the problem, and a lot of people feel this way. It's not just me. I started this discussion on Vegas Casino Talk. You'll see most of the people in the thread agree with me there. And these are also casino players. These aren't just randoms who are just speaking in theory. These are people who've not been in the position necessarily to win $1 million at a casino, but they have been in the position where they hit some kind of five-figure jackpot and have to figure out what to do. So the problem is, like, if, if you hit something like $1,000 and you, get, you you hand a 20 to the uh, – Either the dealer or the or the slot attendant who's giving you the uh, the W two G form that they have to give you when you hit a jackpot over twelve hundred. Uh, you give them a ten or a twenty. Usually they're okay with it. Sometimes even they will scoff at something like that. But usually they're okay with it. But you're also okay leaving a tip like that because it's not a lot of money. But when you have won a lot of money, can you bring yourself to leave a tip? which is a substantial sum of money, like let's say $1,000, which you know is going to be scoffed at? And to me, the answer is no. The answer is like, I think I'd actually leave zero because I'd be afraid if I left $1,000 on a win like $1.1 million, that I was going to be looked at in a nasty way. And if that's the case, I don't want them to have anything. I'd like to leave a tip if I hit something like that, but not if there's going to be a bad attitude about it. Then I'd rather leave nothing. And I brought up this discussion on Vegas Casino Talk just to see if others felt like me, and yeah, boy, <laughs> a lot of them are said the exact same thing, that they probably would leave zero if this happened to them with the exact same fear, that it, it's not going to, whatever they're willing to leave is not going to be enough. Someone there was arguing, really, you should only leave like a few hundred here. As strange as it looks, you should really only leave a few hundred because the dealer, all they're really doing is dealing you cards. They, they didn't control this. This was just random mathematics that it happened to happen to you that you won. So while that's very fortunate, you don't necessarily owe them that uh, a lot of money. Now, to leave $5 would look ridiculous, but something that's substantially more than that, like a few hundred, this person was arguing, should be fine. That that really is a tip that's more fair. It shouldn't be a percentage. Yes, you can leave a bigger tip if you happen to hit a really big jackpot, but, but it shouldn't be anything that uh, becomes a lot of money. This person was arguing it shouldn't even be a thousand. But let's say you leave a thousand. Like, you're going to have a lot of dealers that resent you. So what do you do? You, say, you may say, okay, well, may, maybe you'd leave more than 1000 You may think, okay, I, what if I'll leave 3000 you may think. What if I leave 5000 There'll be people who resent you for 5000 Now, I guarantee this guy with the 50000 not being resented. I, I guarantee they're thrilled with that. That's probably one of the best tips they've gotten, even on jackpots. But if you leave $5,000, you are going to have people there who are expecting at least ten. Because they'll look at it and say, look, $10,000 is less than 1% of $1.1 million. So this asshole, this cheap asshole, wins more than a million bucks and leaves less than a 1% tip. What a jerk. 
I don't think that, but that's the way a lot of people will think. So imagine someone leaves a tenth of 1%. And to me, that's like taking $1,000 and wiping your ass with it. I'd rather wipe my ass with it than give it to people who then talk shit about me for not giving them more. And the problem is, you don't have the opportunity to take it back. So if you see them get a sour look on their face when you leave that tip, or if they find out later when you're gone and talk shit, like, if you have an idea there's going to be shit talked about you over your tip, you just shouldn't leave the tip. That's a good rule of thumb. If you think your tip is going to be scoffed at or mocked, you should not leave a tip at all. So it's too bad. How do I feel about this 50K tip? I think it's excessive, but the guy can do what he wants. I don't feel that he should be limited or shamed for leaving too much. If, if he wanted to leave the whole thing as a tip, he could. It's his money. He can do what he wants with it. I'm not a believer in telling others how to spend their money. This would not be the tip I would advise him to leave, but yeah, I'm not going to criticize him. That's what he wanted to do. He knew what he was doing, and he did it. And as I said, you don't know his story. What, what if he's just some old guy with no kids and nobody else really to leave it to, so he wants to do something nice here. It could be that. In general, I don't like when people feel entitled to others' money. That includes tips. Feel everything you should earn, anything people give you, you should be appreciative of, and also understand there's different levels of generosity. Also, it's important to understand that tipped positions are very arbitrary in the U.S., and in fact, many other developed first world countries don't have the same tipping culture we do in the U.S., and they kind of look at the U.S. like it's insane. And you know what? In this way, the U.S. is insane. I will admit that. I would much prefer that a lot of these tipped positions stop being tipped positions. I'd be much happier to see the employees just paid a base salary, which is appropriate for the job they're doing, which would be more than minimum wage. I'm not saying dealers should get minimum wage and no tips. Dealers should be paid a fair salary for what they are doing. And then tipping either shouldn't exist, like shouldn't be allowed, or it shouldn't be expected. It should not be where dealers make a sour face and they get no tip, which it is right now. It should be that the dealers are paid more, that the, oh, no, I'm making minimum wage, I need your tips to survive thing goes away, and that they should just be paid the proper base salary, whatever that should be, and I'd be happy with no tipping at all, really. There's no reason for them to get tips. I'd rather they just get paid where they should be paid, and that's it. Because look at the other positions of the casino. They, they, they aren't tip positions, a lot of them, the casino and the hotel. And a few of them get tips occasionally, but... Most of them don't get many tips at all. And even look at the janitors, like the guys who are doing the most unpleasant job of everything. They don't get tips. So you tip the dealer because you're dealt a winning hand. And then you go to the bathroom and you crap in the toilet, make a big mess. The guy's got who's got to clean that, he can walk right in, right by you, and you won't give him a dime but then you're going to tip the dealer really well. You ever think of that? doesn't make any sense, does it? So I think all this should go away, and that's the way they do it in most other countries. People are just paid what they're supposed to be paid. And then if they have to raise the prices of things to compensate for that, that's fine. Because you're going to tip out that amount anyway, so it's not overall you're not going to be paying more money for whatever you're doing. But I find that 
tipping in general creates kind of a, a weird, inequitable situation where certain arbitrary positions get paid way more than others for relatively the uh, same amount of skill and education requirements to get the jobs. And that doesn't make any sense to me. It's not like owning your own business and making more money than somebody else. It's like, like look at valets. Like, how much money valets make in tips? Why? They don't deserve that. I mean, if you're a valet and you get it, that's great. I'm not saying you don't deserve the money you make at work, but honestly, you're overpaid. So that that's another position that just should get paid what it's really worth, and there shouldn't be tips. And people from other countries come here and go, what the hell is going on here? What's, what's with this weird tipping culture? Everything's a tip. Not only that, but uh, tips have been abused by certain corporations in recent years. Abused in various ways. There are some corporations that have just found ways to confiscate tips and kept them for themselves. There have been corporations that trick the customer into believing what they're leaving is a tip. And then in reality, it's a service charge and the employees don't get it anyway. So the customer is left to believe they've left a tip when they actually have not. They think there's an auto tip in place when it's really just uh, going to the corporation. There's there's all kinds of ways that some greedy corporations have played with people's emotions by making them feel like they're tipping when they're really not. The whole thing should go away. It's It's just not working well. There's a lot of problems with it. The problem, and this is brought up by uh, Andrew Barber on Twitter the other day, and I, I often don't agree with him on Twitter. In fact, I usually don't. We have a lot of uh, tense exchanges there, even though I don't mind the guy personally. Like, like uh, Whenever we see each other in person, we get along well. When he's been on the show, we've had very good segments with him, and we get along well. And then on Twitter, we're always arguing. And, and we have very different political views. But uh, he did say something I really agreed with. He said that he's never seen a rational discussion on Twitter about tipping. <laughs> it's true. Whenever there's a discussion about tipping on Twitter, people just end up posturing about how generous they are and what good tippers they are. And they use it as a form to assert superiority over others. Why? Like, if if you really want to give away to the less fortunate, then give away to the less fortunate. Give to good charities or find individuals you know who are really struggling that you know are deserving of it and give them some money. That's a way to give to the less fortunate. But tipping, sometimes you're giving to people who are not less fortunate, like the valets who sometimes make more than 100 k a year. That's not giving to the less fortunate. They're doing fine. So you can feel good that you left the valet a $20 tip, but you're leaving a $20 tip to a guy who makes six figures. So, okay. If you want to do it, fine, but that's, that's nothing to feel good about it for yourself. If you want to feel good, hand that 20 to the guy who's cleaning the toilet in the bathroom. That's something to feel good about. It's funny, I, I used to not tip hotel maids. I wasn't like actively thinking about not tipping them. I just didn't really think of doing it. And then one day it just kind of came to me. I said, you know what? I think I should tip hotel maids more often. Because they, they don't have a very pleasant job. They don't make very much money. I'd rather tip them than other employees in the hotel who do a lot better. And other employees in the casino who do a lot better. I mean, I will when it's customary. I'm just saying that uh, 
I kind of felt like that's someone who really deserves a tip that isn't getting it typically. And they get it sometimes. It's not only me. There are people who leave tips for them, but there's most people don't. Now, if I just like stay for one night or something and I don't make much of a mess, I'm not going to leave a tip. But like when I would stay at the Rio, I wouldn't even let the maid in except if I stayed more than five days. So I would, I would just, you know, just by myself, I don't make much of a mess. I don't want the maid in there every day. But at the end of the stay, when it's time to clean up and get it ready for the next person, and there is somewhat of a job to do because I've been there a number of days, then I, I will leave a tip on the table and I'll actually write there in both English and Spanish for you is what I write there. So they understand it's not money I left behind that they're supposed to turn in. Or I'll put for, I'll put for you for cleaning the room. I'll write in both uh, English and Spanish. So they fully understand it's something I'm leaving for them. Or sometimes if I need to call them to clean something up or whatever, they you know then I'll give it to them on the spot. I, I don't feel like, like a, great person for doing that. I just think you know, it's, it's something I can do. I know it makes a difference. I know it's these are people who really need the money and they've got an unpleasant job. But I don't like doing things that are performative. Like I, If I'm tipping a waiter at a high-end restaurant who I know makes a lot of money for an unskilled job, I'm not one of these guys going to tip like 25% and then go, I'm a great tipper. Look at the 25% I left to this high-end waiter. No, I, I know the guy's doing well. He... See, if you, if you want to do it, fine, but I'm not going to feel generous for doing that. I'm going to feel much better about myself for leaving a, a tip to the maid who I know really needs the money. Issue Shine Box is saying, $20 to valet? Wow, most was five, usually a deuce. Yeah, that's what, I usually leave $2 to the valet. That's usually what I give. And I, I don't need anything special with the valet. I don't need my car parked up front or anything. I just go, you know, just park my car, get my car, and here's your two singles, bye. But I don't even like valets. I like to park myself and then walk. And it's not really to avoid the tip. I know some of you who've heard me on the show, they think that I just don't use valets because I like avoiding tips. But no. I actually just prefer the control. I don't want to wait. I don't want someone else in charge of when I can leave. I just want to get to my car in the expected time. In fact, I've said before, I'd rather do a 15-minute walk to my car than do a 15-minute wait for my car to be brought to me. Because the 15-minute walk, I know what the progress I'm making, I know when I'll get there. Like, I, I understand how long it'll be till I reach my car. When, when you're just sitting there waiting for your car to come, you don't know if it's going to be 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You don't know. You're just sitting, waiting, 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 waiting. And... It could be any point. I've, I've waited as long as half an hour for my car. I think even longer before. You know what they say. The waiting really is the hardest part. I think I've said this before, but I, I had the chance to see Tom Petty's final concert and didn't. I regret that. But who knows who, was, who knew he was going to die of a drug OD? right after that like, he wasn't sick anyway he's right about the waiting thing that's for sure alright moving on we're going to talk about a weird situation that occurred at legalized Tennessee sports books in Tennessee 
The Tennessee Lottery, which manages the legalized sports books there, closed 74 accounts due to what they claim were illegal Super Bowl bets. I don't know what an illegal Super Bowl bet is. I don't believe they're alleging anything was fixed. In fact, in Tennessee, there are no prop bets. Those would really be the only things you could fix at this point. But that's not what happened because those are not allowed by Tennessee law. They considered it in Tennessee, but they decided that they are not going to uh, have those in the state. So it was definitely just regular betting in the Super Bowl. And they said there were some irregularities and they voided certain bets, presumably winning bets because losing bets would have been voided anyway by losing. But they voided uh, certain bets and closed accounts. Actually, I don't know by voiding. Maybe they refunded them. I don't know if they refunded the voided bets or if they just took the money and closed it. Whatever it was, they voided a lot of bets and they closed 74 accounts over the Super Bowl bets. This was according to uh, TNBets.com, which I assume stands for uh, Tennessee Bets. This article is actually written by Brian Pempas, who has written a lot of articles for Card Player. I recognize that name as soon as I saw it. But it said that as, at a meeting of its board of directors, the lottery said that there were significant anomalies with two operators, but they would not say which two operators. Operators meaning the sports books in Tennessee. The lottery there is officially called the Tennessee Education Lottery, which is kind of weird. You wouldn't think of education having to do with sports books, but that's it's it's a lottery system that is meant to benefit education. In fact, that's how the California lottery got started about four decades ago, and that has since been expanded to manage the legalized sports books that have come up recently. And uh, these were online sports books, so this was not a case of people making in person bets that were. Uh, rejected in some way. They would not say what the problem was or what these anomalies were. As I said, they didn't say which books were involved. They said that several Super Bowl bets were avoided and they shut down 74 accounts. It was only on these two platforms. The four licensed books in the state took in $15.5 million on the Super Bowl which isn't that much. That's in the entire state. They paid out $12.6 million of that. So they made almost $3 million on the Super Bowl, these four books combined. But 74 accounts have been closed, and they would not say why or how. I have a feeling it has something to do with people betting from out of state. I have a feeling they either detected that people were betting from outside of Tennessee state lines, or perhaps there were betting syndicates that were taking bets for people from out of state and placing them within Tennessee borders. That's known as proxy betting. And I'm wondering if uh, that's what they thought was happening and they detected some really weird activity with 74 accounts where they all seem to be betting the same way for very similar amounts of money. Let, Let me give you an example. Um, Let's say, I'm not saying this happened, but let's say 
they noticed that 74 accounts all bet exactly $850 on the under on the Super Bowl. And uh, all 74 accounts also bet uh, $530 for Tampa Bay to win with the spread. Well, that would look really weird, right? Like, it would be the chance that 74 individuals who aren't affiliated made the exact same bets. Obviously, there's no way that would happen on its own. These people would have to be associated in some way. So it could have been something like that. When you talk about anomalies, they may have determined that there's something weird going on with the betting patterns that is unnatural and that it looks like there's uh, some kind of account sharing going on or proxy betting going on. And they may have uh, decided to close these accounts for that reason. It is possible that they voided the the bets before the games played, so the results didn't really matter. So it is possible that people who lost even got refunded, oddly. I'm not saying they did or didn't. This article doesn't say so. And the article doesn't say so because the Tennessee Education Lottery is not saying so. We only can know what they're willing to reveal. But I have a feeling it's something like that when they talk about anomalies. It's got to be one of these two things. It's someone from outside the jurisdiction or some kind of betting syndicate or proxy betting service that violates their terms. I'm not sure, again, whether they confiscate the money or whether they just return all the money or what. But that's pretty interesting. And I really would love to know what they caught and how they caught it. They're never going to say how they caught it because they don't want to make it easier on those who break the rules on figuring out their methods of catching people. I would just love to know. But I also would just like to know what happened. And I'm surprised that's not being released. It's one thing to not release how they figured it out. That makes sense. But why not release what was done? Like we hear about all other crimes. I don't know if this is actually a crime or if it's just a violation of terms, but we hear about crimes. We hear about when a criminal is arrested, what he is accused of doing, and the evidence against him. We get all these details eventually. We don't just get like, oh, this person was arrested and convicted, but we're not telling you why or, or what he did or how he did it. Like, you get all the info pretty much. But here, they, it's a blackout. Nobody knows. I don't think that's right. I, I think these things, since they are managed by the state, that this is the public's right to know when things like this happen. Because the public should know when they are closing accounts and voiding bets, just in case there's some kind of abuse going on the other way, where innocent people are being screwed. So if they said, we closed 74 sports wagering accounts that appear to be part of a gambling syndicate that's against our terms, that's fine. They, they can even stop short of giving more information there. We saw some betting anomalies with these 74 accounts that makes it clear they're part of a syndicate. We don't allow that. They're closed. Like that's That would be fine. But just to say, we shut down 74 accounts and voided bets, but we're not telling you why, and we're not telling you which books this occurred at. Why? Why not tell us? Why is this a secret? So that's not enough transparency, given that it's uh, a government body doing this. It's one thing if you have uh, proprietary information, or if a company does not want to reveal customer private information, even if it's about uh, things that the customer did wrong or is facing some sort of uh, discipline for doing. So, like for example, you don't. They don't, a casino does not owe you 
a list of people they've kicked out for cheating. Even if they caught the people cheating and are sure of it, they don't owe you a list of that. They can say, even though we kick this person out, we're still keeping the matter private. That's fine, because a casino is a private entity. But whenever the government is involved, I think the public should have a right to know, including if someone's arrested and convicted for it, like cheating at a casino. But I really think any time there's a government investigation like this with type of actions taken, the public should get at least some details, and here the details were very, very sparse. So I'm not thrilled about that. It won't affect me because I'm not going to be gambling in Tennessee, but still, not a good precedent to set. Not much more to say there. I just wanted to let you guys know about that interesting little uh, Tennessee account closure in the Super Bowl situation. Let's move on to talk about the coronavirus. So let's get to some potential good news. And I say potential because this is just one theory by one scientist, but it's not necessarily something that's going to come true. It is interesting what he's saying. An expert at Johns Hopkins, a professor there named Marty McCary, who teaches in the university's School of Medicine, said in an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal that daily infections for the coronavirus have declined 77% since January. And he said, there is a reason to think that the country is racing toward an extremely low level of infection. As more people have been infected, most of whom have mild or no symptoms, there are fewer Americans left to be infected. At the current trajectory, I expect COVID will be mostly gone by April, allowing Americans to live a normal life. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe it'll mostly be gone by April. But I do think that between what appears to be a natural decline and also that we're starting to move out of winter, we're still very much in winter right now, as you've seen in Texas and in the central part of the country, but Soon enough, we're going to be into March, and we're going to be out of that. March is going to be starting now in a little bit more than a week. And much of the country will warm up, and uh, people will be indoors less, and the number should go down just by that, and then the vaccinations will really take an effect very soon as we get more and more people. Uh, Marty McCurry did say that the vaccinations will have an effect as well, that uh, this could contribute to herd immunity by some time in the spring. He said that herd immunity does occur when enough people become immune to the virus, either through immunization or already having it and not catching it again, and that since we've had 28 million verified COVID cases, plus a bunch that weren't verified at the beginning, and even presently, people who just don't bother to get tested. As I said, there's that guy, Ryan, who's friends with Master Scaler, who got it, that never went to get tested. Officially, Ryan is not one who was counted who had the coronavirus when he definitely did. So there's a lot of people like Ryan out there, especially in the earlier days when you couldn't get a test if you wanted it. So 28 million official cases in the U.S., many more above that that were never counted, plus people who are vaccinated, he's thinking should really bring down the number of people that the thing can even infect, He said, when the chain of virus transmission has been broken in multiple places, it's harder for it to spread, and that includes the new strains. 
And it is true, by the way, that so far they see that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have been effective against the new strains. So I know there's been a lot of fear that the new strains, especially that uh, one from the UK and that one from South Africa, that uh, these were going to be able to dodge the vaccines and that we'll have the same problem all over again, even once vaccinated. But at the moment, the new strains are affected by the vaccines. And furthermore, the new strains are going to have a harder time getting going. And there's going to be even a harder time for this thing to mutate if it just can't transmit it to enough people. And that's, that's what kills these viruses. That's what killed the swine flu. It just didn't have enough people to jump to. And it died out on its own. It is still unknown if it possesses the ability to mutate fast enough to where it survives, like the flu does. The flu does have that ability, even though it's not as transmissible as COVID. The flu can mutate fast enough to where we are never rid of it. We always have new flu cases every year because it mutates enough to beat the prior vaccine. Now, if there were enough of of uh, vaccinations there if, if well first of all if the vaccine for the flu was better because it's, it's not that effective it's like 50 percent effective that's the first problem but if we had a very good flu vaccine which might be coming eventually because these mrna vaccines are very new at least in practice they've they've been around in theory for a long time but there's never been one used in practice until these uh moderna and pfizer covid vaccines so if we get a flu vaccine of the mrna variety and it is as effective as it is against COVID. And if there's a lot of cooperation to take it, which is going to be tougher because other than old people and parents of kids who give it to their kids, there's not a lot of people taking the flu vaccine because there's less urgency to take it. In fact, I'm one of those people. I haven't taken the flu vaccine since the year Benjamin was born because I just don't really fear it at this point in my life. So I, I was never a flu vaccine guy. Yet with a COVID vaccine, I really want it because COVID is much more dangerous to someone my age than the flu is. I don't know if they'll ever get a lot of cooperation with a flu vaccine, but if they ever did, it is possible that uh, that would create a herd immunity that would stop the flu from mutating and it would just die. So the funny thing is it might actually be in our power soon to end the flu, but there may not be enough cooperation to do it. But with COVID, which is much more serious and more contagious and, of course, gets a lot more attention than the flu ever has, COVID might die out between the large number of people infected plus the vaccine. Now, there is a hole in Mr. McCary's theory. The hole involves young people. There is a belief that a lot of young people are not going to take the vaccine because young people are not that afraid of COVID. Young people are actually correct not to be that afraid of COVID. That's why I always laugh at the young people who, who say, I'm never going to take the vaccine. The vaccine is evil. The vaccine is, is something for the government to control us. And they put all these terrible things in it, blah, 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 like all these weird conspiracies about the vaccine. And I say, wait, aren't you like 31? Well, yeah, but I'm never going to take the vaccine. I go, okay, yeah, get back to me in 20 years. It's easy to take that position when the downside of not taking it is not very high. Someone my age refusing the vaccine, I don't agree with them, but at least I see they have the strength of their convictions. At least they're they're taking a real risk. Someone 31 is not. But 
It is possible that between those who uh, take the vaccine and the people who already have immunity due to already having it may be enough for herd immunity. Also, and I don't believe this was mentioned by Dr. McCary, but I'm thinking of it, the people who tend to be anti-COVID vaccine were also kind of COVID deniers. They were the ones who just thought it wasn't serious and just went out and took risks. The ones who didn't want to wear masks, the ones who uh, didn't want to social distance, the ones who just said, screw it, I'm going to live life normally. If I get it, I get it. So these people are probably more likely to have caught COVID already. So it is possible that a lot of the people who have not caught COVID yet, like myself, are also the ones who are going to want the vaccine. Because the reason a lot of us have not caught COVID yet is that we have been very careful not to. I'm, I think there's a good chance I'd have it now if I wasn't careful. But I have been careful, so I have not caught it. So, uh, that also is a factor that may be combined with those who are reckless and get it anyway, and those who are careful and now are going to have a vaccine for it, that this will really shut out the disease from continuing to spread. So we'll see if Dr. McCary is correct. And if we see a tremendous decline in COVID that is far beyond what we were expecting. Sometimes dire predictions of the future, which seem to make sense on the surface, end up not coming true. In fact, we've even had some of that with climate change, which I believe is real. I'm not denying climate change is occurring. It is. And if you look at the numbers, it definitely is. But uh, there, there have long been some very dire predictions about what would happen, including from Al Gore, by certain dates that fell way, way, way short. Some of the predictions 30 years ago about climate change claimed that we would be in tremendously bad shape right now. And we're doing much, much better than those people predicted. So a lot of these claims just simply did not come true. Or if they did in a much, much lesser form. Uh, that's not to say it shouldn't be addressed and looked at, but it has to be addressed in an intelligent fashion that actually works and makes sense, not something that just makes you feel good. Anyway, I don't want to get into a climate change discussion. That was one of them. And another one, this is on a more minor scale and more local scale, but uh, 30 years ago, it's actually 30 years ago, in early 91, there was a drought in Southern California. And uh, where I lived at the time in Santa Barbara, there was a big problem that the reservoir, which is supplying the water to the Santa Barbara area, was almost dry. And there was a lot of panic. What are you going to do? For years, we were getting uh, less rain than average by a wide margin. The reservoir was getting towards the bottom. In fact, the tap water was starting to taste bad, but you were starting to get silt from the bottom of the reservoir getting into it. It wasn't dangerous, but it just didn't taste good. Back in those days, if you said you live in Santa Barbara, you'd hear, people would say, oh, that's the place where the water doesn't taste good. <laughs> so it was seen as a big problem. And there is talk about building expensive desalination plants to actually use the ocean to generate emergency water. And 
there is some discussion of, okay, well, what if we have a good winter? What if we get a lot of rain this winter, in the 90-91 winter? And experts said, it's not going to work. This has gotten so bad, water levels have gotten so low, that it would take 40 straight days of heavy rain to bring us back to normal levels. Kind of like in the Bible. 40 days straight of heavy rain, which are impossible to get. So good luck with that. We have no chance. A big storm came in in March of 91. I remember it. And it hammered the area with several inches of rain. And people said, oh, maybe that's going to help with the drought. And the environmentalists said, no, it won't. Everything is so dry that the ground's just going to suck it up. It's just going to disappear into the ground because everything is bone dry. So it'll just become ground moisture and you will see there will be no runoff and the reservoir will not fill up anymore. And they were right. It did not. The ground sucked up everything. And the situation looked very dire. Then a week later, there was another big storm. In fact, it was even bigger. And there was even more rain. And the reservoir started to fill. And the reservoir started to fill a lot. And the reservoir filled up completely. But wait a minute, what happened to the 40 days of rain we needed? How did, the, how did it fill so quickly? Well, there were two little things they didn't think about. Number one, because the second rain occurred so soon after the first rain, that the first rain saturated the ground, so the subsequent rain, which came shortly after, it did not sink into the ground and immediately ran down. And second, there were a lot of hills in the area surrounding the reservoir. And they underestimated that with the ground saturated, that there would be a massive amount of water running down from a big storm from the hills into the reservoir. And when asked about their mistake, the answer was, we didn't think about the hills. (laughs) These were experts. We didn't think about the hills. Oops. That was a good mistake because we had water again. They were that close to building really expensive desalination plants at taxpayer expense. They were convinced there was no way out of this. took two storms. Two storms to go from the reservoir being almost empty to being absolutely full. So maybe COVID will be like this. Maybe COVID will just go away at a faster pace than we would ever imagine. I'm not saying it will, but I'm saying don't be super shocked if it does, if Dr. McCary is correct. Okay, some more good news. This is about the Pfizer vaccine. I've had some people asking me, what would you prefer the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna? And my answer is, whichever one they can give me. I just want a vaccine. I want it to be one of those two because those are the mRNA vaccines. But whichever one I can get now, I'm not going to be choosy. They say, okay, well, what if you could choose? And I say, I would rather have the Pfizer one. Or no, I'd rather have the I, I, No, I was saying before I'd rather have the Moderna one. The reason I said I'd rather have the Moderna one was because it had less of a potential to be screwed up. The Pfizer one required a negative 94-degree storage prior to being removed 
for usage. So when it's being transferred between locations, it has to be kept at minus 94 degrees, which is super cold and not easy to do. And I felt that there was a much higher chance to screw this up than there was with the Moderna one, which did not have that super cold temperature storage requirement. It does need to be stored cold, but not super cold, like minus 94 degrees. Also, Pfizer had additional requirements the Moderna one didn't regarding once you took it out, how fast you have to use it, how cold you have to keep it then. There were a bunch of temperature requirements of the Pfizer vaccine, which really looked like there were a lot of different potential points of failure, and it made me very concerned. So I actually wanted the Moderna one simply because I thought there was less of a chance someone would mess it up. And I wouldn't know if anyone messed it up. It's not like when they inject it in your arm, you can feel the difference. I would not know this until I got COVID and just felt like I was one of the unlucky ones. And it would turn out that I was given a bad vaccine. So let's get to what has been discovered presently. And that's some good news. It turns out that the minus 94 degrees is not necessary. It was overkill. Pfizer has announced that they don't have to keep it at 90, minus 94 anymore, not because of any kind of change to the vaccine, but simply that they have done some research and that along with the German biotechnology firm BioNTech, that they have figured out that as long as they keep the Pfizer vaccine between minus 13 and 5 degrees Fahrenheit, that that's sufficient. It doesn't need to be minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. This is significant because not only does this lower the chance it'll be screwed up if not kept at minus, at minus 94, but also they can, dis- they can distribute the vaccine more efficiently. It gives vaccine distribution centers more flexibility because they don't have to uh, worry about storing it at those temperatures. They also can easily transport it to areas that are rural or hard to reach where before this was very difficult because having a freezer that can go down to minus 94 is not trivial, nor is transporting such a freezer to that. Try to get your home freezer down to minus 94. You're not going to get anywhere near there. You'll probably get it down to minus 5 or so at best, and that's as cold as it'll get. Minus 94 is is a very tough temperature to get things down to, and it requires very specific equipment, and a lot of times that equipment is not very mobile. So this makes it way easier. There's a huge difference between keeping something between minus 13 and 5 degrees and keeping something at minus 94 degrees. So this new stability data was was, uh, submitted to the FDA... And uh, I don't know if the FDA has to actually approve this or if this is going to be the new practice. The companies that were involved in shipping the Pfizer vaccines complained that the government had failed to consider the issue with the temperature and that the hardest part is what's known as the last mile of delivery. And... The reason the last mile is such a big deal is that uh, to what they're talking about is basically the whole process of uh, getting it into the, uh, the whatever this distribution center is without screwing it up and uh, letting 
the storage go above minus 94. That it's very tough. That it's, it's one thing to have a, a giant uh, freezer of this stuff that is on a big truck, but to then distribute it to various centers and still keep it that low is very tough. This has also delayed the rollout of the vaccine, especially in remote areas without what they call cold chain infrastructure. That is, again, being able to keep it that cold as it's uh, moving from the trucks to the distribution centers. So this is good news, provided that this is correct, as long as they didn't mess up the study. It would suck if they were wrong about this and then people getting it that was stored at 5 to minus 13 that these vaccines aren't as good. Now, as far as side effects, what I have noticed is that uh, there is some hereditary element to this. And unfortunately, my mom has gotten it, as has another relative who is not old but works in uh, in healthcare. And uh, there have been some reactions to this in my family. But another relative got the Moderna one, or got the Pfizer one, and didn't get a reaction. And the Moderna one is actually a vaccine that uh, requires uh, more of it injected. I'm not sure why, but you're getting a bigger dosage of Moderna. And I don't know if there's more reactions with Moderna versus Pfizer because of the uh, higher dosage or if there's something about the difference in the two vaccines, but the relatives of mine who have had the bad reactions to the vaccine, which were like coronavirus-like symptoms for two days, no breathing problems, but coronavirus-like symptoms of illness for two days, uh, they, they were with Moderna and it does appear there is a hereditary element to this, as there are with a lot of things. As I mentioned about my colonoscopy, something that was constant in my entire immediate family was that none of us felt a burning sensation when the propofol was administered, which is fairly common to feel some kind of burning. None of us felt it. And I think there's some kind of hereditary factor that whether you feel it or don't feel it, unfortunately, in my family, we don't feel it. <laughs> It was nice. Some people have reported some pretty awful burning. In fact, some people who get it badly have said it's the worst burning they've felt in their life. I felt no burning, nor did my sister, nor did my brother, nor did my parents. So, uh, in fact, when I went in to do it, everybody else in my family had done a colonoscopy before me. I wasn't even that worried about the burning because I figured if none of them felt it, I'm probably not going to either. And I was correct. So, uh, since I am having family members who are getting reactions to the Moderna shot, now I kind of want the Pfizer one. <laughs> so I think between that and the fact that it doesn't have to be stored at minus 94, I'd really prefer the Pfizer one, though I would take either at this point. I'd be happy to take either if it were available. Unfortunately, I cannot get it, and it may be a while. I just don't land in any of these groups that qualify for it, which sucks. But when I do, I hope it's the Pfizer one, because I think there's a lower chance either because of the dosage or because of heredity, heredity, whatever it is. But I I prefer not to get a bad reaction because it was described to me and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't like horrendous, but it was uh, it was kind of like feeling very sick for two days. And then the first dosage, there was like a lot of arm pain. The second one, it was uh, like sickness, like pretty bad sickness for two days. So if I could avoid that, that would be absolutely lovely. 
Okay, so uh, our final coronavirus topic here is more of a criticism than news. The last two were obviously apolitical segments. Well, before we do that, let's take a call here. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, uh, this is Craig from Spokane. Hello, Craig. Listening to the show. And I want to report in, I just had the, the vaccine this week. Okay. And I was going to tell you my uh, results on it. I had the Moderna one and had no side effects whatsoever. Hmm. That was my f- mother, I took her and she got it at the same time. She's 97 or something wow. like that, 94. And uh, she felt like somebody punched her an arm for two or three days and was dizzy afterwards for a day or two. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my relatives had a horrible arm pain for uh, right. the, one of the days, and then the second dose got really sick for two days. Again, no breathing problems. It was kind of like really bad coronavirus symptoms with no breathing problems and no actual danger. That's what, that's what they had. And and right. uh, and my mom was another separately. My mom, who of course is uh, closest related to me, uh, my mom had. Uh, that as well, but not quite as bad. So I, I, right. I have to imagine if I get the the Moderna, there's a good chance that's what I'm going to get too. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I had absolutely. I mean, I couldn't tell two minutes later that I'd ever had a shot, and I had no effect whatsoever. So I, I was lucky, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So now you're not out of the woods yet. When you get the second dosage, you may get sick. Right. But uh, right. if you had no reaction from the first part of it, then there's probably a better chance you're not going to have a reaction from the second. Right. I'm a little concerned with her getting the second one, but she wants to get it, of course. No, no, she should for sure at that age. Uh, that's, I mean, that's an age oh. you, don't, you don't want to get COVID for sure. So, no, that's, that's for sure. Uh, so, so uh, you know, the good thing about it, it's not supposed to be deadly at all. It's just you're just going to feel very sick. That's, and that's what they warn everybody. It's just it's just your body learning to fight off the the virus, which for some people causes illness. But that uh, right. it, the difference is in in twenty four to forty eight hours, it just abruptly goes away. Whereas the coronavirus right. is not. So that's uh, so it's not going to progress into breathing problems and be need to be on a ventilator or dying. It just it's just going to feel really terrible, like you have it, and then just boom, it's gone. Right. So and I'm willing to put up with that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I am too. I mean, I, I'd much rather do that than get it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'm, I'm glad you got it. Uh, do you have a second dose appointment? Yeah, I got a second uh, for March 16th, I think. Okay. Anyway, but I'm going to be 70 in a week, and I thought I'm not <laughs> by any means at a good age to be getting it. No, you're not. No, no, you definitely should get that. There's. Uh, it's it's important for everybody over forty five to get it, and the older you are, the more important. So it's more important for your mom to get it than you, but it's more important for you to get yeah. it than me. But really, all of us should get it because none of us are young here, and uh, yeah. so that's. It, it, I mean, the problem is there's no cure. Once you get it, then you're in trouble. If, right. if you if you get a bad reaction, if you're destined to get a bad reaction, you're going to die. If you are, yeah. if you're destined not to. Then you're fine. Like we have Eric Benzamokin's dad, who's like 75, and he uh, he had he was asymptomatic, so he got very lucky. Right. But there's people on the other end who die from it, who are otherwise healthy. So, uh, you know, I'm talking about older people. So, yeah, you should definitely. Uh, it's good that you're getting it. It's good that you made the effort. Was it tough to get an appointment? Uh, I had a terrible time. <laughs> they announced that they were going to have you know like a 
you could get online at five o'clock on a Tuesday and, you know, make an appointment. And I'd get on there and they'd have 3,000 doses going to be available. And I'd be number 6,000 in line. And uh, so I finally got on one day and made an appointment, but I couldn't make a second one for my mother. And she doesn't use a computer or anything. So I called the place up and they got got us right in uh, and got an appointment within six minutes of each other. And it worked perfect. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and that's a big problem for the really old people is that they didn't grow up, not just didn't grow up, but even when they were middle aged, there was no computers. So at right. least in your age group, in in the eighties and nineties, you were middle aged and you and you you were getting familiar with computers. I don't know if you worked with them before, but even people who didn't work with computers uh, eventually started learning them and, and became computer literate. So there's a lot of people around seventy who are computer literate, but around ninety, a lot a lot are not. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate, actually, when I got out of high school, I started taking computer science because they, I was intrigued by it. And they, they didn't even really know what to teach us at the time. So we learned Fortran and uh, basic computer, they called it. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of like, and, like, uh, like 1970 or something? Yeah, I, was, I graduated in 69 yeah, okay. from high school. And, uh, you know, they, it was all new. Everything we did, too, was on punch cards. We had one punch card machine in the hallway at the school, and you'd sit out there with everybody going past and punch yeah, out those cards and turn in a whole big deck of them. And, yeah, I know. That was that was uh, tremendously different in those days with, with computers. And, uh, of course, there were, there were no personal computers back then in, in 1970, so those uh, showed up right. in, the, in, the, in the mid-70s and... They weren't even that common then. Uh, by the time yeah. I got into using computers, it was in the early 80s, and things had already improved a lot by then. Very big difference right. between 1970 and, like, 1982. So, uh, yeah, that uh, – well, it's, it's interesting you got into it so early. So, okay, so you were someone who had an interest in all that stuff, so you were you were very likely to yeah. be computer literate at, at this age. And, uh, like, my dad, he, he, he's never wor- he never worked with computers, but, but he was a uh, – a hard science guy, so he was also someone who right. took an interest in it, and uh, he never he knew as much as I did about computers. But uh, but he he had enough of an interest where he got one in the eighties and 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 learned a lot about them and used them for work. So so he's someone who right. who is uh, uh, very computer literate at this point, even though he's in his late seventies. And uh, so right. so like for and then yeah, you know, my mom eventually learned too. She's a little behind with that, but she learned too. Uh, but but so I was fortunate that my parents. Were, were able to navigate through all this and use these sites and, and put in the tremendous effort, which I saw them doing. Right. I was over there when they were doing it to, to get an appointment. But I thought, wow, if, you know, for these people who are like 90, you don't even have a computer, like they have no chance. Yeah, so. I mean, like my mother, she didn't even have a cell phone. And <laughs> it, yeah. to affect all these people in their 80s, 90s that have never done any of this stuff to make an appointment online... No, I don't know what they think they're why. doing. It's it's crazy. It's like it's like the people who designed this are, are uh, forty years old, and they expect everybody to live like them and and be like right. their generation. Right. And you go, no, you that's not the way it works. <laughs> you can't think everybody's like you or, or or lives like your generation. You have very old people here who have very different lifestyles and grew up very differently than you. And and that's that's right. who's most important to get the vaccines now. That's the very most important people to get it are the super old ones who probably don't have a computer. Yeah, yeah. 
So, well, we've got a governor here that's a complete idiot, so (laughs) 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 nothing surprises me like that. Yeah, I mean, the truth is when you have to count on the government to do these type of things right, so often it is, and so so often there's just stupid mistakes made, and you just scratch your head and say, how did they ever think this was a good idea? And uh, right. so this doesn't even surprise me that all this is going on. It's it's unfortunate because they had time. Like they, the vaccine itself was going to take time to develop, and in fact, they were faster than we expected. But uh, they had plenty right. of time to prepare for the eventuality of the distribution of the vaccine, and it was done very poorly uh, on all levels. Right. So that that was disappointing, but not surprising. Well, speaking of the government being behind something, I had to laugh at this. They give you a card when you're done. It shows what vaccine you got. It said Moderna on mine and the date and then when your return time is. And you're supposed to carry that card with you, you know, to identify that you've had the, the vaccine. And I thought, you know, typical government thing. It's not the size of a business card or something. It's not the size of a fit in a wallet. It's this weird size square card. <laughs> typical government. It's not even anything that makes it easy to carry. You yes, know? that's stupid. Uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. amazing what they don't think of, or just the, there's. Uh, and then also changing anything like whenever whenever there's someone smart there and says, "Wait a minute, this isn't good. Let's not do it this way." Then to to get any procedure changed is is so incredibly difficult. There's so much bureaucracy to go through, so many hoops to jump through, and uh, it's, it's, oh, yeah. there's such poor efficiency and they have no flexibility. So these, these sure. type of problems happen all the time. And I, I knew there was going to be a lot of fail with this uh, vaccine distribution. And fortunately, the government wasn't the one developing the vaccine. So that's why we got it so quickly. That's why it was actually developed at breakneck speed here. That was very impressive what was done here in how fast they oh, got yeah. it ready. So now we, now I just got to get it to everybody. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, like I said, I just thought I'd throw in my experience with it. And I appreciate I'm glad that. I, could, I hope you can get it sooner than later. <laughs> yeah, and how, how how long have you been listening to this show? Well, I listened back when you were on with uh, Mike on. Oh, wow, you go way back. Okay, you're not one of the people who found it recently. Wow, that's like 10 years. Yeah, I just am a, a lurker. I kind of don't ever do anything on the... <laughs> Anything. I just listen. I've listened for years. There's a lot of people like that. That's what some people don't realize. They think the only people they hear from or see post on the forums are the ones here. And I said, nope, there's there's a lot of people who have no interaction and are just there and are just listening. So anyway, it's good to hear from right. you. I was like hearing from new callers new, and listeners that have just been there and I didn't know they existed. And it's funny, you've been, yeah. you've been hearing me well, for all these years and I had no idea you existed. But there's I a lot, appreciate every show. It's great entertainment. Like nine hours of it, I love it. I listen to an hour or two every day, and <laughs> well, that's good. And great. All right, I'm glad you like it, and uh, thank you for calling. Okay, yeah, keep up the good work. All right, good night. Good. All right, so we're going to go to our final topic here. Oh, new, not new, an old listener that is new to me. I never heard from him before. Well, I guess it's a good segue from the last call about what I feel is very bad messaging from the Biden administration regarding the vaccine. And this this may screw up what we were talking about in the first topic, the herd immunity that is being theorized by this uh, doctor at Johns Hopkins, if there's poor cooperation with the vaccine. 
Now, there is no way out of poor cooperation when it comes to younger people who just feel like it's something that they don't need. If a young person thinks, hey, why should I take this? Because uh, I'm somebody who really doesn't have much of a downside from catching COVID at my age group and my level of health, then I don't want to risk taking a vaccine that there's not much known about yet as far as the downsides to it. As I said, I know somebody who is in their mid-30s that wants to have kids, and they say, well, there's been no fertility studies on this. What if it screws up fertility, as some vaccines have? So they don't want to take it. And I say, I understand that. I understand why you don't want to take it. There's too many potential downsides for you, especially trying to have kids, which don't exist for me. I'm not trying to have kids. The woman I'm with couldn't have kids anyway at her age. And uh, also, I'm older, so the upside for me is higher. So for me, it's a very easy decision. For that person, it's not an easy decision. In fact, it's a decision that makes sense to go the other way and not take it at this time. So you're going to get a lot of people like that who just don't want to take it, and they're just afraid of uh, the downsides being worse than the upsides. But what you don't want is messaging that is bad, that convinces people not to take it simply because you're not making the upside sound good enough. Now, I am a believer that there needs to be honesty, that there should not be lying to the people about making things sound better or worse than they actually are. But I'm not talking about any kind of dishonesty. I'm talking about a very grim picture that's being painted of post-vaccine life by the Biden administration and by Dr. Fauci. We're being told that after getting the vaccine, that we have to continue masking, we have to continue social distancing, that we have to basically continue with all the same precautions as before. Anything that we were doing before that we can't do now, we can continue not to do now. And when I say now, I don't mean right now, because I understand that most people have not been vaccinated yet, myself included. So it does make sense that you have to be careful before everybody's been vaccinated who wants a vaccine, that you do have to be careful uh, that the vaccinated people don't infect the non-vaccinated ones. However, the way you do that is by having the vaccinated ones return to regular society and the non-vaccinated ones judging their own risk. So the 25-year-olds can say, yeah, I'll return to regular society and I'll take the risk anyway. I don't care if I get COVID. The older people who don't get, who haven't had vaccine yet or the middle-aged people may say, okay, I'm going to be careful until I get a vaccine, like I am saying. But what you don't want to do is tell everybody that life is going to be the same when all or most people are vaccinated who want it as it is today. Because then people are going to say, why am I risking it? Why am I even doing this? So there's an amazing difference in messaging between what we're seeing in Europe and what we're seeing in the U.S. In Europe, they're doing it right. In Europe, they're actually running ad campaigns, showing people having a great time or showing a picture of a person with a big smile saying, I'm getting vaccinated so I can hang out with my friends again. I'm getting vaccinated because I miss going to restaurants. I'm getting vaccinated so I can go out and live my life again. I'm getting vaccinated so I can go to parties again. Like So they, they show all these happy people 
who are thrilled to get vaccinated. And these are just actors, of course. But the, the message they're trying to give is you're getting vaccinated so you don't have to worry anymore and you can go back to life the way it was before COVID. And that's a strong incentive. That's the reason I want to get vaccinated. That's the reason that a lot of people want to get vaccinated. It's it's not just about preventing the disease and preventing death or preventing things like lung damage. It's also about the peace of mind so you can return to things you were doing before so you can return to life and not constantly worry about catching COVID to where you can think, okay, at this point, the chance of catching it is very small. And if I'm unlucky enough to get it, it's very likely that I'll get a mild case. So the real worries about COVID will be gone once you are vaccinated and get two doses and wait the proper amount of time. And that should be the message. The message should be once you've gotten two doses and you've waited the proper amount of time, you're good. Enjoy life. Now, they can give you some additional precautions to take. They can say, we still haven't determined how much it protects people who uh, aren't vaccinated. So if you get vaccinated, you may still be able to transmit it, even if not as much as before. They, they've they determined in a preliminary fashion that it does seem to help with stopping transmission, but they're not sure if it completely stops transmission. So, yeah, if you get vaccinated and wait the right amount of time, I would understand if it's advised not to see, like, very old people who haven't been vaccinated yet for whatever reason, that maybe you could get them sick and kill them. But here was something that was printed in a Florida newspaper, which is insane. They were show, they were doing, like, a, a FAQ about the vaccine, and one of the questions sent into them that they answered in this newspaper was, if I have gotten vaccinated and I've waited the right amount of time to where it's fully affected, uh, effective, can I hug my grandkids? And the answer was no. <laughs> what? No? No? Wait, wait, what? Okay, let's look at this again. If you've gotten the vaccine and you've waited the right amount of time and you've gotten both doses... Can I hug my grandkids? Okay, who's going to have grandkids? That would be people who are older. And if you have living grandparents, how old are the grandkids? Is it possible you're going to have grandkids who are 70? No. If you're 70, you don't have grandparents alive anymore. So how old are your grandkids likely to be? Well, they could be young adults, maybe early middle-aged adults, uh, I think in the context of this question, they were probably talking about actual kids. When they talk about hugging my grandkids, I think they're, these were older people who were thinking about how they miss actually hugging their grandkids, like little kids, like 10 year olds or whatever, and that they can't do it because they're afraid the grandkids will give them COVID and kill them, which is very reasonable. So they're asking, when can I hug my grandkids now that I have gotten the vaccine? Not once they've gotten the vaccine. I understand if, and the kids can't get the vaccine, but let's say, let's, let's say the kids got the vaccine and the old people didn't. Then I would understand not hugging them right now until no, more is known about transmission. But if the old people have had the vaccine and the young people have not, why wouldn't you hug the young people? So, so, so basically the paper was trying to say, watch out, you can still transmit it to your grandkids. Who cares? Who cares? You're, you're saying they shouldn't hug their grandkids just in case they give a 10 year old COVID? 
Are you kidding me? Have you seen the numbers for kids of that age? Or even for teenagers? Or even people in their early 20s? That on the off chance that somehow these old people are transmitting COVID after they've gotten the vaccine, that they have to not hug their grandkids just in case they're going to give the grandkids COVID? Who, who are going to be fine? You've got to be freaking kidding me. But that that's what the paper said. And, and uh, a doctor who's been on Twitter, who's been uh, critical of a lot of this type of crap, showed it and wrote wrong answer with it with a uh, emoji of a hand pointing down at the answer this is insane but it wasn't just some idiotic newspaper in florida uh this is basically the message we're getting out of the biden administration that we have to continue masking again i'm not talking about to protect the people who can't get a vaccine yet we have to continue masking masking after everybody has been vaccinated who wants one like biden himself said we are going to have enough vaccines for 300 million people and both doses. So 600 million total doses will be done, he's projecting, by July 31st. So you would think that Biden would say that would mean that we should not be wearing masks and everything should be back to normal in August, right? No? No? Wait, why, why not? Why not? Everybody should have it by then. He's claiming 300 million people can be vaccinated by by July. So why in August would we still be wearing masks and socially distancing? It doesn't make any sense. And the, the, the reasons are pretty absurd. The reasons are, well, we still don't want to spread COVID around for those that chose not to take the vaccine, and we don't want to spread it around and have it mutate. Well, okay. For the people who choose not to take the vaccine... You know, that's the chance they take. But as far as it's spreading around more and then mutating, first of all, there's a good chance that won't happen. But second, if it does, it does. We can't indefinitely postpone life. The reason for the social distancing right now, the reason for everything being closed, the reason for all the precautions, the reason for all the masking is to save lives is to prevent people from catching COVID and a certain percentage of people from either dying from it or having permanent damage from it because there is still no cure and there's not one on the horizon. So prevention is key right now. Prevention is what is important because a certain percentage of people who catch COVID, especially older ones, are going to have a bad outcome. Even some younger and middle-aged ones. Not not young, but but even like you know, starting... At, 35 and especially over 45 you're going to have an escalating percentage of people who are getting bad outcomes with covid and in some ways it's hard to predict some ways you can predict it but some things are kind of random that just kind of pop people that seem to be otherwise healthy and not even that old so that's the goal right now and it makes sense and i'm on board for that and i'm also on board for not completely letting the guard down everywhere until everybody who wants a vaccine can get one. But once we are there to say that we have to continue masking and social distancing is crazy. And not only does it make no sense, and not only is it a needless burden, but it discourages people from getting vaccinated. Because let's contrast that messaging with the messaging that... Europe is putting out. 
the ads they're putting out showing happy people saying that they can't wait to go party again, see their friends again, go to restaurants again, live life again. That's a reason that is inspirational that will bring you out to get the vaccine so you can be like these happy people in the ads. Not so you can see people wearing masks on TV telling you you're going to look like this for the rest of time. They don't say for the rest of the time, but they don't even give you a target date that you can look forward to that this is going to stop. Just, yeah, we're going to have to keep wearing masks for the future and we'll let you know when it's okay. But it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. That is crazy. That is terrible messaging. It is irresponsible messaging. And it's going to cause less cooperation for the vaccine because people are going to figure, why bother? What are we gaining? Why are we even taking this if we have to behave the same way? Why not just not take it and continue to wear masks and socially distance? Right? So that's really stupid. And same thing with the whole double masking. Yeah, maybe wearing two masks might be better than one, but... At some point, it becomes absurd. At some point, people are saying, you guys are just being stupid, you're, you're being impractical, and I'm not going to cooperate. I'm just, I'm, now I'm not going to do anything. You know, one mask, fine. Now you're saying two masks. You know, I'm not going to wear any masks. Screw you guys. You, whatever I'm doing is never enough. I, I'm tired of this shit. That's what people say. In, in a perfect world, people will say, okay, whatever you say, government will do. But you, you have to always temper that with what people's reactions to it are going to be. And unfortunately, uh, the the Biden administration has been bad at this. They've been bad at reading the room and figuring what people really want and what people are willing to cooperate with and what's going to motivate people versus uh, what they want there and what they think would be absolutely ideal. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be totally ideal if everybody could just wear masks everywhere, socially distance everywhere. Uh, and, and have no problem not returning to life fully, and if everybody's just totally on board with that, no one's going to be negatively affected. But that's not reality. Reality is businesses are struggling. People are struggling. People are depressed. There are suicides. There are people who are drinking way more and doing drugs way more than before. There's all kinds of side problems spawning from these shutdowns and when these shutdowns and when the social distancing is not necessary anymore we can return to normal life we should do it we should not find reasons to not do it we should not be searching for obscure reasons not to do it or searching for the ideal situation for what is perceived to be the way to bring down uh, COVID deaths when they're almost down to nothing At some point, with all things in life, you have to balance safety and the public good. And there's a lot of public good in returning to normal life. So once everybody who wants a vaccine has gotten one, it's time to open again. It's time to return to normal life. It's no longer time to make everybody wear masks. It's no longer time to make everybody social distance. All this crap needs to be relaxed. Dr. Fauci is just so inconsistent with everything he says. And I was watching, I was watching uh, some local cable channel where they buy some uh, program from the New York Times they put on. Not New York Times, the LA Times. I was watching and they had Dr. Fauci on there and they had a Q&A with him. And some parts of what he said made sense, 
But he said some head-scratching things. Like, for example, he was asked about uh, kids returning to school. And he was saying, they were asking him, what are some reasons why schools should open? What, what would be some pros on the school opening thing? They weren't even asking him, should they open schools? They were asking him, like, uh, if schools are reopening, what would be the reasons why they are doing it now as opposed to before when they were all shutting down? Which is a good question, because the other, we, we don't have the vaccine everywhere yet, so that would be a good question of what are the reasons some schools are reopening? And he says, "Oh well, it's because they're 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 keeping everything clean. They're they're sanitizing a lot. They're cleaning very often. They're making sure that the kids use hand sanitizer." I said, "What? what that, that was debunked many months ago. We we talked about it on the show recently the the weird obsession with cleaning that's still going on when it's been determined that COVID is not spreading that way. So why is Dr. Fauci?" The face of fighting COVID. Why is he still talking about this? Why is he telling, why is he saying that it's uh, the reason they're opening schools is, is because they're cleaning better? That, that doesn't matter. And so he goes through this whole spiel about what they're doing at schools to keep them safer. Guess what was missing in the whole thing about reopening schools? Yes, the, the one thing he didn't say. For some reason, Dr. Fauci, the expert on this whole thing, did not mention once that little kids do not have a bad outcome from COVID. <laughs> In that whole speech, he didn't say, oh, the biggest reason to reopen is because kids themselves, if they catch it, it's not a big deal. So provided that we're protecting the teachers, then it's safe to open them. That should have been the answer. The answer should be that especially teachers who are vaccinated, but even ones that aren't vaccinated or younger, like a, a class with uh, a bunch of students and a teacher who's 25 is totally safe for everybody there. Now, there could be an argument for the parents not being safe when the kids bring it home to them if the parents are older. But if you have schools which are both a, a hybrid of uh, in-person learning and Zoom learning, then at least the parents who are either okay risking it or are young enough to where they have no worry about it, uh, they should be able to do it. But he didn't mention any of this stuff. He's talking about uh, the cleaning and about social distancing. And I'll tell you the truth. The kids have a very hard time social distancing. Kids are very bad at that. All kids are very bad at that. So that's not the factor here. Now, there is a belief that kids are not transmitting COVID very much to adults. And I don't know why that is. My assumption is that kids are low to the ground, so when they speak or when they cough or whatever, it's not getting in your face because it's way lower than where you're breathing. I'm talking about little kids, not teenagers, obviously, but like someone Benjamin's age is way lower than I am. So when Ben coughs, if we're both standing, uh, it's not going to get in my face. I'm not going to breathe it in. If uh, Ben's breathing, I'm not going to breathe his breath, whereas an adult who's standing right next to me, it's a different story. So... That could be a reason, or maybe there's some other reason that hasn't really been determined that is a factor that's something else that we wouldn't think about. But it also seems to be true that kids are not transmitting much to adults, which would show that it's probably fairly safe for teachers, especially if they uh, keep their distance from the kids. But uh, I can understand teachers not wanting to come back if they're at an age where COVID is dangerous, though... You may ask, well, wait a minute, how come every other profession they have to go to work? 
Like it's not, it would be ideal for everybody to stay home. But how come grocery store workers have to go to work? How come factory workers have to go to work? How come agricultural workers have to go to work? How come hospital workers have to go to work? Like there's tons of industries people are going to work. Some where people can work from home, but there's a lot where you can't. So how come they have to go in and teachers are the one profession that does not? Doesn't make any sense. Imagine if every profession just said, no, we're staying home because it's unsafe for us. Like the world would stop. It just wouldn't work. There, there have to be people going in and doing certain jobs. So just, we don't want to go into work because we're afraid of COVID is, is unfortunately not a valid explanation because, uh, then what about all the other industry? How, how come you're more special than they are? Now, it, it kind of sucks if you happen to have a job where, uh, there's more COVID danger than others. You know, a lot of jobs didn't sign up for this. You, you, you think that, uh, People who went into healthcare pictured anything like this was going to happen. They hadn't seen anything like this their whole lives. Even their parents didn't see anything like that. I mean, it's like a hundred years ago when this last happened. So nobody was picturing this. There's a lot of things that uh, popped up from this that were not risky before. And if you were in one of those careers, it's unfortunate, but you, know, you got to go in and do your job. And I, I commend those that have continued to do so, but somehow teachers think they're special and they don't have to. And then they claim it's concern for the kids. There's no concern for the kids. The kids are going to be fine. Anyway, I don't know what they think they're doing. And I, I, I will tell you, I'm not going to be on board for all this masking and distancing once everybody has the vaccine who wants it. And I imagine most people are not. I, ima- I imagine there's going to be a big revolt against this. Right now, nobody's saying that much about it because not many people have the vaccine yet. So there's not an immediate need to fight against this, but can you imagine like in August, if really everybody who has wanted the vaccine has gotten it, and they're still telling everybody that things have to stay closed, and there have to be uh, social distancing, and then you, you have to wear masks everywhere, there's, there's going to be a gigantic revolt. There's going to be people just saying, screw it, I'm not doing it, what are you going to do about it? Like I, I can imagine what's going to happen if they continue to push this crap. So wh- why they're even saying this now is bizarre. What they should do is the opposite. They should predict we're not going to need these things and put out a rosy message of the result of people getting vaccinated, like Europe is doing. And then if for some reason there is a compelling reason for people to continue socially distancing or masking, which I can't imagine what it would be, but if there is one at that point, then say, okay, we're going to have to do this for a little bit longer for this very compelling reason that we can all understand. But don't just say we're going to be masking indefinitely. That makes no sense at all. Finally. Well, before we get to finally, let me see if there's any texts to read here. 775-372-8355 is the number. Yes, we got some texts here. From the 612, what do you suppose the reasons are that the Biden administration is going with this narrative you're talking about even after people are vaccinated? It's as if they want to keep people in a perpetual state of fear and mental distress. Why is that? Well, I don't know. I don't know why they are doing it. That, that would be something you'd have to ask them, and you can't. But I think some of this is this weird abundance of caution that they kind of feel like they've stuck with all this time and have to continue with. Because, unfortunately, because COVID has become political, 
you have had many on the right who have been dismissing it the whole way, saying it's not a huge deal. Who cares? They're, you know, if COVID is uh, infringing upon our freedom, all the all the restrictions you guys are putting on, and that's been a lot of the right's view of this. And then the left has been in an over panic about it, and they just want endless restrictions. When I say they, I'm talking about uh, the politicians. I know there are some on the left who don't feel that way. And I've seen a lot of nonsense on both sides. I've seen just com- some complete denial from people on the right. It doesn't make any sense when the data is right there in their faces and they find ways to explain their way out of it, but their explanations make no sense. But then I see people on the left advocating for things like closing beaches, closing public parks, uh, closing outdoor dining, and these things make no sense either. And then they're also very hypocritical when there's a, a big social protest to have about uh, like like George Floyd being murdered, and, and then it's okay to, to all crowd up together. And then there's an excuse why that's okay and why that's not dangerous. So it's, it's a lot of hypocrisy. Same thing with the, with the school thing, that uh, they're finding excuses to back the teachers' union when in reality there's not much logic behind it, as I just said. So unfortunately, I think that they've wanted to look like the party that's responsible, that follows the science, that that uh, is working to fight COVID, that trying to minimize deaths, blah, 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 blah. So now they're in this, we have to be the most cautious of anybody sort of thing. And they're afraid if they say, okay, once we're vaccinated, we can let our guard down that if anything bad happens after that, they're going to look irresponsible. So I think that they think, okay, let's just take the most overly cautious approach, and then there's really no downside to it. Except there is a downside. There's the slow decline, actually not even that slow, decline of people's happiness and of the economy and people's mental health when they are cooped up like this and restricted like this. And that that's not trivial. That's a huge thing. So at some point, you've got to look, and again, the risk and the reward factors start to reverse. And the rewards of opening everything back up become way greater than whatever small risk we are taking by not continuing to mask or social distance at that point. And so this is where following the science is stupid. And yes, I said following the science is stupid if it is not combined with correct public policy. Because public policy is not just based on science, it's based on what's best for society. I like to use the driving example. The science would say it is safest and will save a lot of lives every year to restrict cars from driving any faster than 25 miles per hour. The science would say that, 100%. We'd be way safer if regular passenger cars, I'm not talking about emergency vehicles, but regular passenger cars were restricted to 25 miles per hour maximum. A lot of lives, thousands of lives would be saved every year in the U.S. that would otherwise perish in car accidents. So why don't we do it? Why don't we make a 25-mile-per-hour hard limit on cars? Because that would be terrible policy. It would be highly inconvenient for people. It would be very frustrating. People would hate it. So by allowing ourselves to drive at high enough speeds to where an accident can kill us, we are accepting a certain amount of loss of life in exchange for better quality of life of those that are able to drive safely. So even though the science says keep cars below 25 miles per hour if you want no deaths every year, 
the correct policy is not to make the maximum speed 25 miles per hour. So similarly here, even if this, quote, science says that it's safest for us to all wear masks and social distance after everybody has the vaccine, public policy-wise, that would be a huge mistake. So I think what they're doing is essentially saying, hey, well, that's the safest way. Let's just do it. And it's dumb. From the 916, yes, thank you for these crank calls. Absolute best of 2021. Thank you. Yeah, So far, people have enjoyed the prank call, the one that we had earlier in the show to the Indian scammers. Someone else uh, texted at the time, wait five minutes and do it again. They'll start answering again. <laughs> I should have, but in my experience, when I've done this type of thing, they just turn it off for the day. Uh, a lot about the prank call. The 505, uh, Druff asked the chick if she does anal. <laughs> referring to the female scammer answering that phone. From the 818, uh, LOL, I got it at the same time. Then uh, what's the number so we can call? It's all about the prank call. I just didn't read them till now. Got one that came in here. Something about roulette. Let me see. Oh, I see what this is. Okay. It's not about roulette. This is interesting. doesn't have to do with anything we talked about tonight, but this is interesting. Movie prop money, full print, two-sided, play money, one stack, 100 pieces of $100 bills for movies, kids, and party. And so you can get $10,000 worth of fake money for $14. Now, I don't know how realistic it would look. I'm not saying for counterfeit purposes. The reason this person sending it to me, presumably, is because Christopher Mitchell has been accused of using prop money at times to make it seem like he has more money than he does. Uh, this has been a, a lot of debate because we we have known that he's had tens of thousands of dollars at some points before gambling it all, gambling it all away. But he has had the money. We've had people who have been present when he's lost ten or more thousand dollars. We had that Rick Lee guy on the show who watched him lose uh, twenty thousand, and then about a week later, ten thousand. So he had a thirty thousand dollar bankroll at one point, for example. So I don't know when he, when he was flashing like the fifty k or what he claimed was fifty k on camera, which he doesn't do anymore. Uh, Kevin Davis was insisting that was prop money. At the time, I thought it was real, and then I came around to say, okay, actually, I think it was a hybrid. I think we were both right. I think it was originally real, and then when he lost it, it became prop money. But anyway, we never really got a, a complete answer on that. And I had always kind of wondered about where you even get this prop money. I almost want to buy this for Benjamin. <laughs> it's $14. Uh, let's see. Is it the same size as real money? Yes, it's the same size, it says. Does it feel real? Yes, it feels realistic. This is from the seller, so who knows. But is the holographic realistic too? They wrote, yes, it looks realistic. So they're claiming, and they're showing a picture of someone holding it. And yeah, I mean, it looks pretty real. It, it doesn't, the person said, this is a, a reviewer. They said it's for a photo shoot that they used it for. It was excellent. Someone passing by even thought it was real. It's thinner than real money, so be careful handling it because the edges will curl up. Interesting. And they're showing pictures of it. Yeah, this looks good. I think I may want to buy this. Very interesting. Very interesting. Not to do anything bad with. I'm not, I'm not going to counterfeit or anything, but I, I may want to buy this just to have it as a novelty. For 14 bucks. you know, why not? The only complaint I'm seeing so far is that the picture of it is showing four stacks of it, but there's only giving one stack. But the description does say you're only getting one stack. One stack meaning uh, $10,000. So you can buy 10000 fake dollars for 14 real dollars, and apparently it's fairly realistic. 
looks like this might be Chinese made, but wow, that's pretty good for cheap. So, the one point for Kevin Davis here. There's a good chance he's right. From the uh, 46 country code, which is vegetarian, I see. He's a listener. He says, love you, Druff. Thank you. It's his first text to me in over a month. I can't text back to him, though. I don't have international texting on this number. I can receive it. I just can't send it. So I'm sorry, vegetarian. I cannot respond to you. That's why, that's why I never respond. I'm not trying to be rude. I just can't. It just won't go through. Okay, well, yeah, the, the prank call was a hit. I had some people texting my personal number, those that have that. I had people texting the radio show that they loved it. The prank call was a big hit. And I, I was happy with it. I liked the prank call. So, sometimes I do these prank calls and I think, boy, this thing sucked. I'm embarrassed to have done this. This was a good prank call. This was uh, one of our better ones. So if you're just listening live and missed it, then you'll want to catch it in the archives. It's the third topic we did maybe uh, an hour and a half or so into the show. Okay, I'm going to do my editorial, and I'm going to shut this down. Brandon said he might call in with Jeannie. Actually, Jeannie said she might call in with Brandon at around 5, but I honestly don't think I have the energy for that, as much as I'd like to hear from them. I just don't think I have the energy to do a uh, Brandon and Jeannie segment at this point, so I wish they came on earlier. I'm running out of steam, but I will do my editorial. I want to talk about what a real Republican is. Because uh, you know what's been in the news a lot recently has been the Lincoln Project. And the Lincoln Project has been getting all kinds of bad press because of some stories that came out about it that make it look very bad, and rightfully so. For those of you that don't know, most of you do, the Lincoln Project was supposedly a group of responsible Republicans that just could not bring themselves to support Donald Trump. And they put together a movement to try to make Trump lose the 2020 election. And they put out a lot of uh, viral YouTube ads and television ads that bashed Donald Trump. And it was called the Lincoln Project. And it was basically to uh, supposedly to take the Republican Party back for the sensible conservatives. I never believed this. And I've said this before here. I've written it before on the forum. I'm not just jumping on the anti Lincoln Project bandwagon now, and I was not on that bandwagon at the beginning because I was uh, defending Trump. It was not about Trump loyalty. It was about seeing right away that they were phonies. Now, my original problem with the Lincoln Project was twofold. Number one, um, the time to protest Trump, the time to try to make sure he loses, was before the 2016 primary was over. Once he won the primary, the problem with not supporting him and supporting the Democrat instead is that you're basically pushing for someone to be president who's going to have a lot of policies that are very counter to what you believe if you're a Republican. And to me, if you are a Republican, if you're centrist is one thing that I understand, but if you're a Republican, to vote for the opposite party that's going to want to push through things that are opposite of what you want, it seems very self-defeating to me. You could hate the candidate that your party has put up, and you, you pretty much have to begrudgingly either vote for them or just not vote at all. To try to push for the other side to win doesn't make any sense to me, because that's uh, going to result in a lot of things you don't like, a lot of policy you hate. Again, if you're in the middle, fine, then vote for the Democrat. But if you're a Republican, 
voting for the Democrat because you don't like Trump, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But that's just voting. That's fine. But but putting forth like a whole campaign to beat Trump, that didn't seem like what a Republican would do. And even the Republicans who are pretty anti-Trump, like uh, Mitt Romney, they weren't actively doing this. They would sometimes make statements against Trump, but they weren't actively campaigning to beat him. The Lincoln Project was very aggressively campaigning to beat him. But you can say, okay, maybe they think that Donald Trump is so damaging to the Republican Party that uh, they just have to do this. They're, they're willing to give up having a Republican president in order to stand for principle. Okay, I can respect that. However, there is the big second problem I had here, which showed me that was not the case. When I watched their commercials, their commercials did not have any Republican talking points that criticized Trump. Everything they put out there that was criticizing Trump was from the left. Everything in these commercials looked like it was a Biden ad, not a pro-Biden ad. Well, it kind of was that, too. But an anti-Trump ad with criticisms that the left not only makes against Trump, but against all Republicans and against all Republican policy. There was not a single bit of Republican Party policy now or in the past that was part of those ads. So the ads were not saying we support such and such Republican uh, policy or standpoint or viewpoint, but Trump is awful and has to go for these reasons. That I could respect. Instead, all the talking points were left-wing talking points, which doesn't make any sense if it's coming from a Republican. If it's a Republican who hates Trump, they're still going to be a Republican. They're still going to have conservative viewpoints, conservative ideals. Their criticisms of Trump will not be criticisms of Republican policy. They could be criticisms of Trump-specific policy they don't like, but it wouldn't be criticism of a policy that Republicans now and in the last 40 years would have supported. That wouldn't make any sense, right? If you're a Republican who hates Trump, you're still going to be Republican and think Republican. You're just going to hate this one guy, and you're going to hate maybe people supporting him. You're not going to hate policy that is consistent with that policy of the party that's been in modern times. Yet all the ads were attacking Trump with left-wing talking points. So I knew they were phony. Now, you may say, how are they phony? These were actual Republicans, actual known Republicans who worked as GOP operatives. So how is it possible that they could be fake Republicans? And who am I to say that? They have better Republican credentials than I do. And I said, these are operatives. These are people who fell out of favor. These were Bush-era operatives that fell out of favor. They weren't getting work anymore. The current Republican Party didn't want much to do with them, so they were bitter, and they switched sides. But they didn't want to say they switched sides. So basically, they saw an opportunity. They saw an opportunity to attack the side which spurred them. You know, like how your ex-girlfriend says a lot of bad things about you, hoping that other girls will hear it and not date you if she's bitter with you? That she was once very much an advocate for you, once someone who very much liked you, maybe even loved you? and now hates you and tries to convince everyone to stay away from you out of spite? It's kind of like that. Kind of picture the Republican Party as the ex-boyfriend of these people in the the Lincoln Project. But it went beyond that. It turned out that this was mainly greed. This was mainly a money-making opportunity for a bunch of ex-Republican operatives who had fallen out of favor, were in financial trouble, and had no way to get out of it. But they found a way. 
And that was to put out anti-Trump ads pretending to still be Republicans. So they were pretending to be these heroic Republicans who were going against the grain of their own party, which can be very powerful. It's one thing to have people who are known to be on the left criticizing Trump. We've come to expect that. But imagine people on the right criticizing Trump. And imagine those people speaking language that those on the left can understand and appreciate. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Imagine someone who is a known Republican, someone who was very, very associated with the Republican Party in the 2000s, coming out and putting out ads that are bashing Trump, not just as a person, not just for his behavior, but also doing it with left-wing language and left-wing talking points. Well, people on the left watch this and they agree with everything. They agree Trump is terrible. They agree Trump is dangerous. They agree Trump is unpresidential. And they agree all of his policy is terrible. The commercial has it all right there and they love it. And it's coming from a source that they can claim is credible because it's someone on Trump's own side. So what happens when people at the Lincoln Project do this and when this is received so well by people on the left well these people on the left start donating because the lincoln project is asking for money they're asking for donations to do more of this and people on the left ate it up they loved it they thought that uh, these ads are very effective they're very accurate and they also are likely to work and get people not to vote for trump So money poured into the Lincoln Project, but it wasn't from other angry Republicans. It was from people on the left. And they raised something like $80 million or $100 million. They raised a ton of money, way more than they ever expected to raise. And people like me the whole time are saying, these are phonies. These aren't real Republicans. And I got a lot of nasty responses to that. Not from other Republicans, by the way. I got this from the left even people in the center. Who are you to say if they're real Republicans? You just are so brainwashed by Trump that you think anybody who hates Trump isn't a real Republican. You think anyone who's a little bit to the left of you isn't a real Republican. You're just bitter about what they're doing because they're making great ads trolling Trump. And I said, no, no, these guys are actually not real Republicans. And I explained what I just said here, that someone who puts out all left-wing talking points to criticize Trump is not a Republican. And then, again, I'd get, oh, you just uh, can't stand it if, if you're not a Trump drone that uh, that someone else on your own party can think differently than you. Like, uh, like they, wouldn't, they weren't getting it intentionally. These weren't stupid people. They, they just were closing their eyes to it. A lot of money was raised. Again, I think close to $100 million. And now some things have come out. Number one, one of the very prominent people in the Lincoln Project, John Weaver, was a closeted homosexual despite being married to a woman. Now, that part's no big deal. What is a big deal is the fact that he was sexually harassing young men and doing this repeatedly, and when people would complain to the Lincoln Project, they were being ignored. So the others of the Lincoln Project were aware this was happening, but they just wanted to sweep it under the rug. That was problem number one. Problem number two was the fact that it looks like the whole thing was a grift, which also I suspected and stated on this show, that... This was not about opposition to Trump. This wasn't about being responsible. This wasn't even just about revenge. This was really about bringing in a ton of donations and then spending most of that money on companies controlled by the founders of the Lincoln Project, that they 
consulted with their own companies, and tens of millions of dollars went to themselves. Oh, my. Don't you feel stupid if you donated to the Lincoln Project? Don't you feel stupid right now if you defended them as being legitimate? Now, if you like them just because they trolled Trump and put out anti-Trump ads, fine, as long as you knew what they were. If you were admitting, yes, they're phonies, yes, this is a grift, but yes, this is uh, bashing Trump and it might help turn the election. If you support it for that reason, like, I guess, fine, but it was a grift and these were fake Republicans. They were former Republicans, they were real Republicans at one point, but now they are fake Republicans. So if you defended it from the standpoint of, yes, these are real Republicans, and yes, these are decent people who just couldn't stand Trump, uh, or if you donated to them, then you were a fool. And what ended up happening, the news that came out, has proven that. Everything I said about them has been proven right. Go Seriously, go back and look what I wrote about the Lincoln Project uh, six, seven, eight months ago, and you'll see that everything I predicted came true. Except for the John Weaver thing, I didn't know. I didn't know somebody there was a, a secret uh, closet gay who was harassing uh, young men. That that part I did not know or predict, but uh, the rest of it I predicted. And it was not hard to predict. I was not a genius to predict that. It was obvious to me. It was not obvious to those on the left who were obsessed with the Lincoln Project and thought this was uh, really a, a group of noble Republicans who just happened to now uh, uh, somehow also hold a lot of left wing viewpoints and put them in the videos. <laughs> So uh, now it's it's become fashionable to hate on the Lincoln Project, even by those on the left. But that brings me to the question of what is a real Republican? And some people still don't like when I use that term, when I say someone is not a real Republican. And they think I mean, no matter how much I try to explain it, they think I mean that to be a real Republican, you must be as right-wing as me. False. That's not true. Or for you to be a real Republican, you have to vote for Trump. False. In fact, even I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Or to be a real Republican, you have to like Trump, or at least not hate him. That's also false. Or to be a real Republican, you have to hold certain positions. No. But to be real a real Republican... You have to agree with the majority of the current Republican Party platform. If you do not, if you go through the Republican Party platform and say, no, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, and maybe you find like three out of 40 things you like and the other 37 you don't, you're not a Republican. You may have once been a Republican, but you are not anymore, or maybe you never were. You can't even say, well, I'm a Republican, but the party changed. The party changed around me. Well, it has changed some, but fundamentally it's the same party. There's been some adjustments over time, I agree. But it's generally the same party as it was 50 years ago, with some tweaks. So if you feel radically different from the current Republican Party, and I'm not talking about Trump and all his weird antics, I'm talking about uh, other than Trump, and other than the devout followers of Trump, which I'm not and have never been. But if other than that, that uh, and even the policy coming from Trump was not radical, by the way, his his behavior was very different and not good many times. But uh, the policy really was not. So if you just simply don't agree, really, just go go look at the current Republican platform. 
If you don't agree with most of it, you're not a Republican. And that's not an insult. That's just a fact. To be a Republican, you need to agree with the majority of the Republican platform. If you don't, then you're probably on the other side. So if you go through, I'm just making up this number, you go through 40 Republican talking points, and of those 40, 10 you agree, 30 you disagree. Well, the 30 you disagree, the opposite of that is probably the Democratic platform. So in that case, if you went to look at the Democratic platform, you'd probably find yourself agreeing with 30 out of 40. So what does that make you? Does that make you Republican? No. What you are is what you agree with. But do you have to agree with 40 out of 40 on the Republican platform? No. In fact, I don't even agree with all of the Republican platform. But I agree with hell of a lot more of the Republican platform than the Democratic platform. And I want, just honestly, I want people to really be what they are. I want them to say what they are. So if you agree mostly with Republicans, you're Republican. If you agree mostly with the Democrats, you're a Democrat. If you're kind of 50-50, if you're kind of right in the middle, you agree with Democrats sometimes, Republicans sometimes, and it really is roughly even, then you're in the center. Then you're not really either one. And then there's some offshoots. You know, Maybe you're libertarian, but then there's different types of libertarians. There's left-leaning libertarians, there's right-leaning ones. And I've met both. I've met people who describe themselves as libertarian that I'd say are on the left, and there's some that I'd say are pretty much Republicans. So in general, you're either right or you're left, or in the center. But uh, there's no such thing as being a Republican who happens to agree with most of the Democratic platform. So going back to the Lincoln Project, if you look at their ads, all the points they make against Trump that don't have to do with his behavior are from the left. These are left-wing talking points, which means they are not Republicans. How often do you hear me coming out here with left-wing talking points? Just about never, right? Occasionally I'll come out and say, I think the Democrats are right here, or I don't like the way the Republicans are handling this or whatever, but uh, uh, I think it's pretty obvious, without me even stating what I am, but where, where, where I am politically. That's because I'm honest about it. Now, if I were to have a change of heart... And or maybe if the party changed radically and I and I started noticing that I'm agreeing with the Democrats more and more and the Republicans less and less. And I look at both platforms and I say, hey, you know what? It happens that Democrats uh, are more similar to what I believe now. Then I would call myself a Democrat. I'd start voting Democrat. I doubt that'll ever happen, but that that's what I would do. I wouldn't continue lying and saying I'm a Republican, either if I changed or if the party changed enough to where it switched where I am. But my challenge to those who are claiming to be Republicans or conservatives, but yet frequently oppose and strongly oppose Republican politicians, Republican talking points, Republican schools of thought. If you find yourself doing this a lot on social media, if you find yourself just doing this in private or just uh, when you're talking to friends and family, whatever it is, my challenge to you is first to go to the platforms of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and see which ones you agree with more and be honest with yourself. And then second, to find the platforms of the Republican Party in 1980 and see how much you agree with there. And you'll find the party has changed a lot less than you think. I can respect those who were Republicans in, say, 1980, but have pretty much stayed 1980 Republicans to where 
anything that the party has changed, they haven't changed along with it. Now, that still wouldn't make them Democrats. But if you say some of the newer beliefs of the Republican Party, I don't agree with anymore. Such as uh, there's a lot of Republicans who are more for a lot of spending. That wasn't the case before. So if you say that the Republican Party's gotten too out of control with spending, of course the Democrats are too, and in 1980 Republicans weren't about that, so I disagree with that, I can say, yeah, I respect that. In fact, I'd agree with you in many ways. But not enough has changed since 1980 to where a 1980 solid Republican would be a Democrat in 2021. They just would not be. There, there's too many similarities between the party of 1980 and now. So those that say the party has changed around me and then they cite individual things, that doesn't really matter if the majority of the, of the worldview is very similar. And this segment is not meant to criticize Democrats or Republicans. If you are a Democrat, that's fine. And you see the world differently than I do, and that's fine. And if you're a Republican, that's fine. If you're in the middle, that's fine. I'm just saying to be honest about what you are. Much like I would not want a gay person to live a straight lifestyle. If you are gay, then go be gay. And go marry someone of the same sex. And don't force yourself into opposite sex relationships because people expect it of you. If you are gay, then be gay. If you are straight, then be straight. I am not a believer that someone should pretend to be something they aren't. And that's also true with politics. And acknowledge that people can change. Maybe your politics changed. I've watched, in fact, during the era of Donald Trump, I've watched people change both ways. I've watched people get so disgusted by Donald Trump and the Republican Party kind of uh, not standing up to him and just letting him act the way he does and not really making a big deal of it. They got so disgusted it actually changed their entire political views. That it actually, uh, and I don't see how this happens. It definitely wouldn't happen with me. I wouldn't change my core views because of one individual who's acting badly. But for them, it did. So, okay, fine. It, it made them change, and then they were Democrats. Okay, as long as they say, yeah, I'm a Democrat now, whatever. That's your choice. I've watched the opposite thing happen. I've watched uh, some longtime liberals become very disgusted with the behavior of a lot of the extreme left and how the Democrats have been more and more bending over backwards to uh, not get them angry and to go along with them. And they've they've become disgusted with cancel culture and they've become disgusted with a lot of uh, extreme and odd viewpoints that they're seeing from their own party. I know someone who is a long-time uh, left-winger who's been getting further and further right because they don't like the way the left has handled the coronavirus. They think that uh, they found the whole thing to be very arrogant and, uh, and, and full of politics and uh, often wrong. And they've gotten disgusted by it. And they've told me this. They said they're not Republicans, but they're pushing more and more away from their party. It's someone who hates both cancel culture and uh, and the way that the left has approached the coronavirus. And this is not someone who's a fan of – someone who hates Trump with a passion and someone who doesn't like the way Trump handled the coronavirus either. But they're so disgusted with their own party's handling of it and so disgusted with the party's uh, support of cancel culture that they're actually pushing right and saying, I'm almost, I'm almost close to voting for a Republican next time. They hate Trump. 
But there's someone who's a, a lifetime, not just liberal, but leftist, who's, who's actually been pushed right because of the antics of the far left that has gone largely unchecked. So I've seen it both ways. And I've seen centrists go both ways. I've seen former centrists become very right, some even big fans of Trump, and then I've seen some former centrists go very left. And that's fine. People change. I don't hold it against you for changing. Just be honest that you changed. So when I say real Republicans, I'm not being arrogant. I'm not holding an unrealistic standard. I'm not saying if you're not like me, you're not a real Republican. I'm saying if you do not hold views that are mostly on the side of the Republicans, if the GOP platform mostly disgusts you, you're not a Republican. And I challenge you, if you don't believe me, go find the GOP platform 40 years ago, find it today, and show me how that made you a Republican then by those standards, but not by today's standards. You won't be able to. You'll be able to point out a few differences. You won't be able to show me how one would make you a 1980 Republican today, but would make you a 2021 liberal. It's not possible. It's not enough differences. So that's all I'm asking. And the way to spot a phony, the way to spot someone who is not on the side they claim to be, is listen to them. Read what they are writing. And if everything they are saying seems to be aligned with the opposite political side, guess what? They are on the opposite political side. You're a big fat phony! Hey, you know who lives in this house? A great big phony! That's right, a phony lives here! A big, fat phony! By the way, I've seen this in the reverse, too. I've seen supposed uh, Democrats and liberals who are now on the right and won't admit it because it's convenient, especially if they're trying to make a living or get attention on social media by being the Democrats willing to call out the left. And I'm not talking about real longtime liberals like Noam Chomsky who wrote a anti-cancel culture uh, essay. I, I'm, I'm talking about uh, people who really have gone right and won't admit it because, again, it's more powerful to say, hey, I'm on their side and I think they're acting stupid. It's kind of like this. Think about if your neighbor says you're acting like a jerk. And think about if your mother says you're acting like a jerk. If someone hears your mother say you're acting like a jerk, they're going to really, really uh, take that with a lot of uh, credibility. They say, if this guy's own mother is saying he's being a jerk, he probably is being a jerk. But if the neighbor's saying it, well, maybe the neighbor's the one who's the jerk. Maybe the, maybe the neighbor has a stupid reason to dislike you. Maybe the neighbor is biased for some reason. Maybe the whole thing's his fault. Like it, if you just hear that someone's neighbor says they're a jerk, you don't know what to believe. Someone's mother, someone's own mother says they're a jerk, you think, wow, okay. If his own mother's saying that, he probably is a jerk. So it's the same thing. Like if someone in your own party is criticizing you or criticizing the whole party, it, it comes out a lot more powerful. So people take advantage of that. The Lincoln Proje- Project took advantage of that to the tune of like $100 million. Don't let people mislead you. And some people mislead themselves. Some people actually like that they have that role. The Republican who's 
open-minded enough to criticize other Republicans, to criticize Republican part, uh, policy, to show, prove that they're not a drone, but then in reality that they've completely changed their politics. So they, they can't wave that flag anymore. And that's very different than from someone who actually is a conservative, who is a Republican, who just has issues with certain aspects of the party platform of, or the behavior of certain uh, politicians in the party or certain movements within the party. And you've heard me do that before. You've heard me criticize certain things from the right, including on this very episode. But I'll never claim that I'm a Democrat, because I won't be, unless really the parties change so much or I change so much that I find myself really on the other side. And I'm never going to be on the other side and claim to still be a Republican. If I ever do switch, I will tell you. I'll be honest. So when you hear someone say such and such person isn't a real Republican, or they use the term rhino, Republican in name only, a lot of times it is BS. I've been called a rhino, believe it or not. But sometimes they're right. Sometimes someone isn't a real Republican. Simple litmus test. How many things are they saying or writing that are supportive of right-wing policies? If you can't find any, they're not a Republican. Okay, well, that's it. We're done. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We did not have uh, Brandon this week. We did have Trader Ruski during the beginning of the show. I guess I'll have to hear the prank call in the archives. I believe he probably went to sleep. Usually when he goes to sleep, he doesn't leave the show on. He just goes to sleep and then picks up from that point in the archives. I'm going to try to come back on this Friday. It's always tough to come on after six days instead of seven. There's less to talk about. And it just feels like it's too soon, but I'll try. I'll try to come back on Friday the 26th. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert and uh, you'll see the next day of the show, which I'm not deciding right away, but I'm not guaranteeing Friday, but I'm going to shoot for Friday. I'll be more encouraged to do Friday if there's more to talk about. Some weeks there's more, some weeks there's less. Otherwise, it'll be Saturday the 27th. We should be doing the show every week, though. I don't see any reason that uh, I'm going to be skipping a week. The only skipped week recently was when I had uh, the colonoscopy. But I don't have anything like that coming up. And I'm not going anywhere, so I probably won't get sick. Though occasionally I'll get like sick to my stomach for something I eat. I eat. That's the only sickness I've felt in the past year. It's kind of like stomach-related sicknesses. Well... I'm happy to have all you listeners riding along with me and listening to this show, whether it's 10 years or 10 days. If you want to text me before, during, or after the show, remember 775-372-8355, and I'm always happy to hear from you. That is all. I will see you sometime next week, Friday or Saturday, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Shalom.